Chapter 21 I rolled back up to the slaughterhouse just before the rented town car's transmission gave out on me altogether. It sort of cheered me up, actually. I hadn't wrecked a car with my wizardliness in a long time. And it just couldn't have happened to a nicer guy's rental vehicle. For a moment I felt a sudden sharp pining for my old Volkswagen, which made about as much sense as anything I'd been doing that day. The Blue Beetle had been uncomfortable and cramped, and it had smelled a bit odd, not to mention that it was put together from the cannibalized scraps of a bunch of other late 60s VWs, and I must have looked absolutely ridiculous, crouched behind its wheel. But it had been my car, and while it hadn't run like a race car, it did run, most of the time. Suck it, rental town car. The built-in talking GPS computer hadn't lasted two blocks. Jordan! I boomed as I came in. I tossed a paper bag with a couple of cheeseburgers in it at the Denarian Squire. Chow down, buddy. They're hot, so don't let the cheese burn your tongue. Oh, right. Sorry. Jordan scowled at me and fumbled with the bag and his shotgun until he managed to balance the two. I clapped him on the shoulder in a genial fashion and rolled on by. I pointed at the guard at the next post and said, You don't get cheeseburgers. You didn't say nice things to me like Jordan did. The guard glowered at me in silence, of course. It was an act. No one could resist my bluff and manly charisma. In his heart of hearts, he wanted to be friends with me. I just know it. As I descended to the floor of the slaughterhouse, Karen looked up from a long work table absolutely covered in guns. She tracked my entrance, her expression touched with both wariness and a certain amount of incredulity. Harry, she asked as I came down the last few steps. Who else would I be, I asked, except that jerk Gray, except he's too busy being Harvey to be me. I took another paper bag from Burger King and plopped it down in front of Karen, then dumped the loaded duffel I'd picked up from a military surplus store off where it hung over my shoulder. Figured you might be hungry. She eyed the fast food bag. I'm not sure I'm that hungry. Whoa, whoa, hold on there, Annie Oakley. You did not just say that, I said. Not right to my face. A slow smile spread over her mouth and reached her eyes. Harry. I... I exhaled. The talk with Michael had made me feel about twenty tons lighter, at least on the inside. Yeah, I guess maybe it is. I felt my own smile fade. Harvey's dead. Her face sobered and her eyes raked over me, stopping on my arm. What happened? Polonius Lartessa showed up with a squad of soldier ghouls and whacked him, I said. Unless maybe it was Deirdre who did it, or Gray. I had ghouls all over my face when it happened. Who took care of your arm for you? A good man, I said. She stared at me for a moment and then her eyebrows lifted. Oh, she said. Her eyes glittered. Oh, that explains some things then. Yeah, I said, bouncing my weight lightly on my toes. The point being, someone's trying to screw with the job before we even get going. What a crime, Karen said. I grunted. If Tessa's trying to stop Nicodemus, I've got to wonder why. She's married to him, she suggested dryly. That's vengeance-worthy, all right, I said, but I don't know. I hate working in the dark. So, what's the move? I chewed my lip and said, Nothing's changed for us except... Except what, she asked. Except someone's going down for Harvey before this is done, I said. Yeah, she said. I can get behind that. I took a long look at the table. Uzis, I noted. They're a classic, Karen said. 
Simple, reliable, durable, and not assault rifles. That was good for the innocent bystanders of Chicago. Pistol ammunition wasn't nearly as good at flying through an extraneous wall or ten and killing some poor sap sitting in his apartment two blocks away. Which wasn't to say that they weren't insanely dangerous, just less so than a bunch of AK-47s would have been. Nicodemus wasn't doing that to be thoughtful. Either he bought what was available, or else he had a reason to cause only limited collateral damage. Can Binder's goons handle them? she asked. I assume so, I said. They seemed to take the guns pretty easily the last time. Check with Binder on it. Check with Binder on what? asked Binder, appearing from farther down the factory floor. He was carrying a sandwich in one hand, a cup of what might have been tea in the other. Speak of the devil and he appears, I said. Binder sketched me a courtly little bow, rolling his sandwich as he did. Your uh, people, Karen said. Do they know how to handle an Uzi, or do they need some kind of orientation? They'll be fine, he said, his tone confident, even cocky. Don't ask them to field strip and repair one, or for witty banter before the shoot, but for trigger work or reloading, they're golden. His sharp, beady little eyes landed on my arm in its splint. Does someone not know how to play well with others? His eyes went from me to start flicking around the slaughterhouse. I could see all the calculation going on in his head. One hairy, no Deirdre, no Gray. They're fine, I said. We ran into some opposition around the accountant. Bookmark, Binder said, holding up two fingers. He turned and retreated, wolfing down his sandwich, and returned a moment later with Hannah Asher in tow. Asher had ditched her sweater in favor of a tank top, and she looked as if she'd just come off a treadmill. She was breathing lightly, and her skin was sheened with sweat. There were bits of ash stuck in the fine hairs of her forearms and smudging one cheek. Like every other look I'd seen on her, it was an awfully intriguing one, easily translated to let a fellow imagine what she might look like during... Right then, Binder said. Resume. We staked out the accountant, I said. Nicodemus's wife showed up with a crew of ghouls and went after him. The accountant was killed. The wife did it? Asher asked. Women, Binder said scornfully. Karen and Asher both eyed him. He folded his arms. I'm a century older than any of you sprats, he said. I'll stand by that. I'm pretty sure I didn't kill Harvey, I said. My gut says it wasn't gray. Other than that, your guess is as good as mine. Uh-huh. Binder said, nodding toward me conspiratorially. Women. Karen gave me a very level look. I coughed. The female of the species is deadlier than the male? She snorted and picked up the next Uzi in the row. I don't understand. Why would Nicodemus's wife be trying to sabotage him? Asher asked. Maybe she wants to cop the job, Binder said wistfully. Lot of money. Nah, I said. Money isn't her thing. Afraid you'd say that, he said. Personal. Let's just say that dysfunctional doesn't even come close to that family. Bloody hell, Binder said. Why does everyone have to get bloody personal? No bloody professional pride anymore, he glowered at me. Present bloody company included. Language, Asher said, wincing. Sod off, he said. Where's Deirdre and Gray? Gray's doubling the accountant, I said. No clue about Deirdre. Binder made a growling sound. Hey, Asher said. 
Has anyone else been keeping track of how many goats are in the pen? Eight, said Karen and Binder together. I did a rough calculation. Uh, it's eating one goat at every meal. That got me a round of looks. I shrugged. Something's here. It stands to reason. Asher and Binder both looked around the factory floor. Asher folded her arms as if she'd suddenly become cold. Big, Karen noted calmly, if it eats that much. Yeah, I said. And quiet. Yep. And really, really fast. Binder shook his head. Bloody hell. What is it? Asher said. Could be a lot of things, Binder said. None of them good. He squinted at me. Muscle, you think? Maybe where we're going, we need something with that kind of physical power, I said. Asher scowled. Or maybe it's there to clean us up after the job. We wouldn't have been given a chance to become aware of it if that was the case, Karen said. Unless that's what Nicodemus wants us to think, Binder said. Us. I like the sound of that. The more people I could incline against pitching in on Nicodemus's side when it all hit the fan, the better. Let's not go down that rabbit hole, I said. We've got problems enough without adding in paranoia. Too right, Binder said. Job worth twenty million each, with an invisible monster nipping about the place, and a psychotic ex trying to bugger us out of tweaking the nose of a bloody Greek god. What have we got to be paranoid about? Look, I said. At the best, it means Nicodemus isn't telling us everything. We knew that already, Asher said. I shrugged a shoulder in acknowledgement of that. At worst, it means someone on the inside is giving information to some kind of opposition. Asher narrowed her eyes. That's rich, coming from the opposition. I waved a hand. At this point, I'm playing the game. I'll get in and out again, because if I don't, Mab is going to have my head. Well, technically, she'd have the splattered pieces, but they didn't need the details. I'm not looking to derail the train before then. Asher looked skeptical. Binder looked pensive. Karen finished her inspection of the next Uzi and picked up another one. Ash, my girl, Binder said and jerked his head toward the other end of the factory floor. She nodded and the two of them moved off, walking close and speaking quietly. Karen watched them go and then asked me, What do you think they're talking about? Same as us, I said, wondering when someone's going to pull the rug out from underneath them and how they're going to get out of it in one piece. Or maybe thinking about doing a little pulling themselves, she said. Or maybe that, I said. But they won't do it until after they've got their packs loaded with jewels. How do you figure? Binder, I said. He's a mercenary, plain and simple. Unless that's what he wants us to think, Karen said. Unless that, I said. I exhaled slowly. This whole thing, I said, is going to come down to guessing who isn't what they look like. Who is? Karen asked, her hands moving surely over the weapon. Ever. Point, I said. But it's going to be about guessing motivations. Whoever's done a better job of figuring out what the other wants, wins. Her mouth quivered at the corners. Then we might be in trouble, because your motivations have never exactly been mysterious, Harry. Not to you, I said. To someone like Nicodemus, I must seem like an utter lunatic. Karen let out a short laugh. You know what? I think you're probably right. She manually cycled the action of the Uzi, 
caught the round as it was ejected, then put the weapon down and nodded. That's it, forty of them. I grunted. Didn't some biblical guy have forty soldiers to take on an army or something? Gideon, he had three hundred. I thought that was the Spartans. It was also the Spartans, Karen said. Except that they had about four thousand other Greeks there with them, in addition to their three hundred. Three hundred makes a better movie. Who had forty guys then? You're thinking about how many days and nights it rained on Noah's Ark. Oh, I said. I was sure somebody had forty guys. Alibaba? He didn't have forty guys, I said. He ripped off forty guys. Maybe you're remembering cartoons again, Karen said. Probably, I said. I stared down at the guns. Forty of those demon suit guys with Uzis. She grimaced. Yeah, gonna take me maybe three hours just to load all the clips. What kind of target is tough enough that it needs forty demon soldiers with submachine guns to assault? Karen shook her head. Military installation? I grunted. You don't plan for this many guns if you don't intend to use them, Karen said. If it comes down to Binder's goons shooting people, we sure as hell don't stand around and watch it happen, I assured her. She nodded. Good. She twisted her mouth in distaste. Won't that upset Mab if you bail out? Her royal freeze-poppiness can get upset, but if she claims to be surprised, I'll laugh in her face. But it could mean she kills you, she said quietly. Could mean she tries, I said, aiming for cocky and confident. Karen looked away, the motion a little too sharp. She didn't go so far as to need to blink tears from her eyes or anything, but for a moment she looked about ten years older. She nodded. It looked like she wanted to say something. Karen? I asked. She shook her head once and said, I've got to get these clips loaded. Want help? Sure. We set to the task of loading 120 32-round magazines with 9mm rounds. 3,800 bullets or so. Even with speed-loading tools, it took a while, and we worked in companionable silence, broken occasionally by the passing guard or an increasingly gentle, intermittent series of whooping sounds that came from the far end of the factory floor. Asher, presumably, practicing her breaching spell. Just as we were finishing up, bootsteps came from the opposite direction, and I looked up to see Nicodemus marching toward us, a pair of his squires tromping along behind him. Deirdre walked beside him in her human form, her expression unfriendly and otherwise unreadable. Weapons ready? he asked Karen without stopping. All set? Excellent. Conference table, please. Why? I asked. My left hand hadn't been good for much beyond holding the magazine as I loaded rounds, and the fingertips of my right hand felt raw. Nicodemus went on by and glanced over his shoulder at me, his eyes lingering on my splint. Gray is back. It's time to talk about our target. Chapter 22 We gathered at the conference table again, and Anna Valmont slid into the seat beside me. Hey, I said, how goes the grease job? She eyed me and smiled faintly. I am in this crew what is known as a grease man. A grease man is the person who can get you into some place you otherwise couldn't get into by yourself. Her voice turned wry. A grease job is something else. Right, I said, narrowing my eyes, nodding. Got it. So how goes the man greasing? Valmont let out a shallow chuckle. 
got to admit, I wouldn't mind being the first to take on one of those Fenucci monsters and win. Can you? She nodded slowly. I think it's possible. Gray sauntered in, looking exactly as he had that morning, and sat down at the table. Order, please, Nicodemus said, as Gray sat down next to Deirdre. We'll make this quick, and then break for a meal, if that's all right with everyone. All right with me, Asher drawled. She looked sweatier and more smudged than she had a few hours before, but her expression was unmistakably smug. I'm ravenous. I know just what you mean, Nicodemus said. Deirdre? Once more, Deirdre circled the table with folders that were labeled simply Goal. I've been meaning to ask, I said. Does this master plan of yours come with health coverage? Dresden, Nicodemus said. Because that kind of thing is getting to be more and more important. I mean, I know the government probably means well and all, but those people, honestly. Nicodemus eyed me. Life insurance seems like something that would be worthwhile, too. I looked up at Asher and winked. Maybe we should strike until we get a whole life policy. Asher flashed me a quick grin and said, I've always thought that insurance was more or less betting against myself. Nah, Binder said. In my experience, you're just playing the odds. Children, Nicodemus said with a sigh, shall we focus on the matter at hand? But I haven't even had the chance to dip Deirdre's pigtails in my inkwell, I said. Deirdre glowered at me, her eyes glinting. Fine, I said, and subsided. Each of you, Nicodemus said, brings something to the table that we need in order to reach our final destination, the manor of the Lord of the Underworld, Vault 7. You mean, hey, shall we not speak his name for the next twenty-four hours or so, please, Mr. Dresden? Nicodemus said in a pained tone. Unless you prefer him to be ready and waiting for all of us, including yourself. Granted, the likelihood of him taking notice of any one of us in particular is vanishing small, but it seems prudent to take a few simple steps. Whatever, I said. I thought he was being pretty fussy. What with books and movies using him as a character and mythology courses being taught all over the world, I figured Hades got to hear his name spoken in one form or another tens if not hundreds of thousands of times every day. Each utterance of a powerful supernatural being's name is kind of like sending him a page, a ping for his attention. If I could have a phone that survived longer than an hour, and it tried to get my attention ten thousand times a day, I'd throw the damn thing into a hole. The big supernatural beings, especially the very human-like Greek gods, probably reacted in much the same way. Odds were good that I could sit chatting for an hour or two and mention his name several times, yet he wouldn't even notice my relative handful of pings among all the others. It took a deliberate and rhythmic repetition, usually at least three times, to really get a signal through the noise. But, on the other hand, there was always the chance that Hades just might feel my utterance of his name and randomly decide to take a moment to pay attention. That probably wouldn't be good. So, despite giving Nicodemus lip, I shut up. Once we gain entry to the underworld vault, Nicodemus began. I held up my hand and said, Question? Nicodemus's left eye began to twitch. I didn't wait for him to respond. You're planning on just jumping straight to the vault? Hell, not even Hercules could do that. It was kind of a journey to get in. 
There was a bit with the dog and everything. Do you really think we're going to just hop right past all of the defenses around the realm of the king of the underworld? That got everyone's attention, even Gray's. They all looked at Nicodemus, interested in the answer. Yes, Nicodemus said in a flat tone. Oh, I said, just like that, huh? Once we're inside the vault, Nicodemus said, as if my question was not interesting enough to waste more time on, there will be three gates between us and our goal. The gate of fire, the gate of ice, and the gate of blood. Fun, I said. Obviously, Nicodemus said, Asher was chosen for her capability with fire. As the winter night, you, Dresden, will obviously handle the gate of ice. Right, I said, obviously. What about the gate of blood? Nicodemus smiled pleasantly. Of course. Old Nick had probably spilled more blood than the rest of us in the room together, if you didn't count Deirdre. Exactly what does each of these gates entail? If I knew that, Nicodemus said, I'd not have bothered recruiting experts. Each of us will take point on our specific gate, with the rest of the team backing whatever play they decide is important. Once we're through, we'll be in the vault. It's quite large. You'll have a few minutes to gather whatever it is you feel you need to take with you. After that time, I'm leaving. Anyone who lags behind is on his or her own. I held up my hand again and didn't bother waiting for a response. What are you after? Excuse me, Nicodemus asked. You, I said. Vault 7 is awfully specific. And you don't care much about money, so I have to wonder what's in there that you're so interested in. That's hardly your concern. Nicodemus said. I snorted. The hell it isn't. We're all sticking our necks out. And if things don't go well, we might have an angry god on our tails. I want to know what's worth that, other than the twenty million. After all, a lot of things could go wrong. Maybe you wind up dead, purely by someone else's hand on the way in. Maybe I want to grab that what's-it for myself. There was a mutter of agreement from Binder and nods from Karen and Balmont. Even Asher looked curious. Gray pursed his lips thoughtfully. Should I fall, the rest of you will already be dead, Nicodemus said calmly. Indulge me, I said. This deal is already starting to stink. A reasonable person might walk based purely on what happened today. That brought a low round of mutters, and Valmont asked, What happened today? I told her about Tessa and her ghouls and Deirdre and Harvey. That made Valmont's lips compress into a line. She knew better than most what was left when a denarian tore into a mortal, and two out of three possible suspects were knights of the coin. That has no bearing on our mission, Nicodemus said. The hell it doesn't, I said. I don't know about the rest of you, but the last thing we need is his crazy ex jumping into things on some kind of vengeance kick. It's not about that, Nicodemus said. Then what is it about, I asked. I dealt with the White Council my whole life, so I'm used to being treated like a mushroom. Huh? Asher asked. Kept in the dark and fed bullshit, Binder reported calmly. Ah. But this is going beyond the pale, even for me. You ask us to trust you about the plan to get into what should be an impenetrable vault. You ask us to trust you that our share will be waiting next to whatever it is you want. You ask us to trust you and believe that Tessa isn't on some kind of jihad that will get us all killed. 
but won't tell us what it's about. I looked around the table at my criminal confederates. Trust is kind of a two-way street, Nicodemus. It's time to give something. Or you'll do what, precisely? Or maybe we'll all walk away from a bunch of empty promises without a sliver of proof to back them up, I said. Nicodemus narrowed his eyes. Dresden and his woman are obviously in accord, he said. Karen scowled. Nicodemus ignored her. What about the rest of you? What he said, Belmont said quietly. Asher folded her arms, frowning. Binder sighed. Twenty million quid. Think, go. We can't spend it if we're dead from sticking our heads into a hole and getting them whacked off, Asher said firmly. Nicodemus nodded. Gray? Gray tented his fingertips in front of his lips for a moment and then said, The personal aspect of this interference troubles me. A job of this sort requires pure professionalism, detachment. Binder made a nonverbal sound of agreement with Gray's statements. I will not walk away from a job once I've agreed to it. You know how I operate, Nicodemus, Gray continued. But I would sympathize if another professional of less ability and less rigid standards did so. Nicodemus regarded Gray thoughtfully for a moment. Your professional recommendation? The wizard has a point, Gray said. He's an annoying, headstrong ass, but he isn't stupid. It would not be foolish for you to invest some measure of trust to balance what you ask for. Nicodemus mused over that for a moment and then nodded his head. One ought not hire an expert and then ignore his opinion, he said. Then he turned to the rest of us. Vault 7 contains, in addition to a standard division of gold and jewels, a number of Western religious icons. It is my intention to retrieve a cup from the vault. A what? Binder asked. A cup, Nicodemus replied. All this, Binder said, for a cup. Nicodemus nodded. A simple ceramic cup, something like a teacup, but lacking any handle, quite old. My mouth fell open, and I made a choking sound at approximately the same time. Gray pursed his lips and let out a slow whistle. Wait, Asher said. Are you talking about what I think you're talking about? Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Karen said quietly. Nicodemus made a face in her direction. Miss Murphy, please. She gave Nicodemus a small, unpleasant smile. Binder clued in a second later. The bloody holy grail? Is he bloody kidding? Valmont turned to me, frowning. That's real? It's real, I said, but it was lost more than a thousand years ago. Not lost, Nicodemus corrected me calmly. It was collected. The cup that caught the blood of Christ, Gray mused. He eyed Nicodemus. Now, what possible use could you have for that old thing? Sentimental value, Nicodemus said with a guileless smile and straightened the skinny strands of his gray tie. I'm something of a collector of such artifacts myself. The tie wasn't a tie, unless you meant it in a very literal sense. It was a length of simple old rope tied into the noose, the one that Judas used to hang himself after betraying Christ, if I understood it correctly. 
It made Nicodemus all but unkillable. I didn't know if anyone else in the world knew what I knew, that the noose didn't protect him from itself. I'd nearly strangled him with it the last time we'd crossed trails, hence his roughened voice. Gray didn't look like he believed Nicodemus's answer, but that hadn't stopped him from being satisfied with it. He looked around the room and said, Yeah, you know more than you did. Is it enough? Tessa, I said. What's her beef with you going after the Grail? She wants it for herself, of course, Nicodemus said. I'll deal with Tessa before we launch. It won't become an issue for the job. You have my personal guarantee. Gray spread his hands. There, he said. That's good enough for me, Banda. The stocky little guy screwed up his eyes in thought and nodded slowly. Ash? All right, Asher said. Sure, that's enough for me, for now. But, I began. Asher rolled her eyes. Oh, don't be such a whiny little... She turned to Binder. Git? Git, he confirmed. Don't be such a whiny little git, Dresden, Asher said. I'm hungry. The more I could force Nicodemus to bend, the more of his authority would drain away from him. The more someone else defended him, the more he would stockpile. Time to try another angle. And you aren't the only thing in here that is, I said to Asher, and pointed at the goat pen. Before I go anywhere else, I want to know what's been picking off the livestock. Ah, Nicodemus said, that. Yeah, that. Does it matter? I glowered at him. It kind of does, I said. Then thoughtfully, I raised my voice to carry a little farther. Whatever big, ugly, stinking, stupid thing you've got hanging around in here with us probably doesn't deserve to be in this company. Given our goal, I don't see the point in taking along a mindless mound of muscle. Gray winced. I felt it almost at once. The hairs on the back of my neck suddenly started trying to crawl up onto my scalp. Part of me kicked into a genuine watery-bellied fear reaction, something purely instinctive, a message from my primitive hindbrain. A large predator was staring at me with intent. Yeah, got your attention now, I muttered under my breath. I raised my voice to address Nicodemus. Point is, Gray's right. It's time to share some details. So who is the last guy on the crew? I certainly never meant to frighten anyone, Nicodemus said. But I suppose I don't have the same point of view as you children. I can understand your apprehension. Bull. He'd known exactly what he was doing, setting out the goats and letting us get the idea in our heads. From the start, he wanted us to know that he had something big and bad and dangerous hiding in reserve. If you don't mind, Nicodemus said to the room at large, I think introductions are in order. The nape of my neck was trying to slither away and find a good place to hide when the smell hit me first. It was thick and pungent, bestial, the smell of a large animal in the immediate proximity. A few seconds later, the goats started panicking in their pen, running back and forth and bleating to one another in terror. What the hell? Valmont breathed, looking around uneasily. I didn't join her in rubbernecking. I was extending my awareness, my wizard's senses, searching for the subtle vibration of magical energies at work in the air. I'd never been able to throw up a magical veil so good that it could mask odor, 
but just because I couldn't do it didn't mean that it was impossible. The one huge weakness of veiling magic was that it was still magic. If your senses were sharp and you were reasonably sure a veil was present, you could find that source of magical energy if you looked hard enough. I found it after a moment's intense concentration, about ten feet directly behind me. I turned, kind of casually, in my chair, folded my arms, fixed my gaze on the empty space where I felt the energy was coming from, and waited, trying to look bored. It faded into sight, slowly, an utterly motionless figure. It was human in general shape, but only generally. Muscle covered it in ropey layers and in densities that were too oddly proportioned to be human. So much muscle that you could see its outlines through a thick layer of grayish, straggly hair that covered its body. It was well over nine feet tall. Massive shoulders sloped up to a tree trunk-sized neck, and its head was shaped strangely as well, sloping up more sharply than a human skull, with a wide forehead and a brow ridge like a mountain crag. Eyes glittered way back in the shadows beneath that brow, glinting like an assassin's knives from a cave's mouth. Its features were heavy and brutish, its hands and feet absolutely enormous, and I had met the creatures like before. Stars and stones, I breathed. That massive brow gathered, lowered. For a second I thought there had been distant thunder outside, and then I realized that the nearly subsonic rumbling sound was coming from the thing's chest. It was growling at me. I swallowed. This, Nicodemus said into the startled silence, is the Genosqua. He, of course, knows you all, having been the first to arrive. Big one, isn't he? Binder said in a very mild voice. What's his job? I share Dresden's concerns about the availability of our target's vault, Nicodemus said. There have, in the past, been rather epic guardians protecting the ways in and out of this particular domain. The Genosqua has consented to join us in order to serve as a counterweight, should any such protection arise. An ogre? Asher asked. Not an ogre, I replied immediately. He's one of the forest people. The Genosqua's growl might have gotten a little louder. It was so deep that I had a hard time knowing for sure. What's the difference? Asher asked. I once saw one of the forest people take on about twenty ghouls in a fair fight, I said. It wasn't even close. If he'd been playing for keeps, none of them would have survived. The Genosqua snorted a breath out through his nose. The sound was simply vile with rage, with broiled, congealed hate. I held out both of my hands, palms up. I had rarely seen the kind of power that River Shoulders, the forest person I'd met several times before, had displayed, physically and otherwise, and it seemed like a really fantastic idea to mend some fences, if possible. Sorry about what I said earlier. I figured Nicodemus had a troll stashed around here or something. Didn't realize it was one of the forest people. I've done a little business with River Shoulders in the past. Maybe you've heard of... I don't even know what happened. I assume that Genosqua closed the distance and hit me. One minute I was trying to establish some kind of rapport, and the next I was about a dozen feet in the air, flying across the factory floor, tumbling. 
I saw the conference table, the windows, the ceiling, and Jordan's incredulous face staring down at me from a catwalk. And then I hit the brick wall, and light briefly filled my skull. I mean, I didn't even notice when I fell and hit the floor. Or maybe I just can't remember that part. I do remember that I came up fighting. The Janosqua walked over the conference table. He just stepped over it and covered the distance to me in cat-like silence in three great strides, moving as lightly as a dancer despite the fact that he had to weigh in at well over 800 pounds. I threw a blast of winter at him, only to see him make a contemptuous gesture and spit a slavering, snarling word. The ice that should have entombed him just drained away into the floor beneath him, grounding out my magic as effectively as a lightning rod diverts the power of a thunderbolt. I had about half of a second to realize that my best shot had bounced off him with somewhat less effect than I would have had if I'd slugged him with a foam rubber pillow. And then he hit me again. Aerial cartwheels. Another flash of impact against a wall. Before I could fall, he had closed the distance again, and his enormous hands drove a rusty old nail into my left pectoral muscle. Once the steel nail had broken the surface of my skin, my contact with the mantle of the winter night shattered, and I was just plain old vanilla me again. And that meant pain. A whole lot of pain. The mantle had suppressed the pain of my broken arm, among other things, but once it was taken out of the circuit, all of that agony came rushing into my brain at the same time, an overload of torturous sensation. I screamed and thrashed, grabbing at the Janosqua's wrist with both hands, trying to force his arm and the nail he still held away from me. I might as well have been trying to push over a building. I couldn't so much as make him acknowledge my effort with a wobble, much less move him. He leaned down, huge and gray and horrible smelling, and pushed his ugly mug right up into mine, breathing hard through his mouth. His breath smelled like blood and rotten meat. His voice came out in a surprisingly smooth, mellow basso. Consider this a friendly warning, he said, his accent harsh, somehow bitter. I am not one of the whimpering forest people. Speak of me and that flower-chewing groundhog lover, River Shoulders, in the same breath again, and I will devour your offal while you watch. <laughs> I said. The room was spinning like some kind of wacky animated drunk scene. <laughs> the nail evidently robbed some of the power of Mab's earring, too. Someone drove a railroad spike into each temple, and I suddenly couldn't breathe. The Janosqua stepped back from me abruptly, as though I was something unworthy of his attention. He faced the rest of the room while I clawed desperately at the nail sticking out of my chest. You, he said to the people seated at the table, do what Nicodemus says when he says, or I will twist off your head. He flexed his huge hands, and I suddenly noticed that they were tipped in ugly-looking dirty claws. Been here most of two days, and none of you ever saw me. Followed some of you all over this town last night. None of you saw me. You don't do your job now. No place you run will keep you from me. 
Those at the table stared at him, stunned and silent, and I realized that my plan for stealing Nicodemus's thunder and destabilizing his authority over the crew had just gone down in flames. The Janosqua was apparently satisfied with his entrance. He strode to the pen and, as if it had been an appetizer at a sports bar and not a nimble animal trying desperately to avoid its fate, he plucked up a goat, broke its neck using only one hand, and vanished again, gone more suddenly than he had appeared. Karen was at my side a second later, grabbing the nail with her small, strong hands, but the pain was just too damn much. I was fading. Well, I dimly heard Nicodemus say, that's dinner. Going, going, gone. Chapter 23 I hadn't been to this place in a very long time. It was a flat, empty floor in some vast, open, and unlit space that nonetheless somehow didn't echo with its emptiness, as if there were no walls from which sounds could reflect. I stood in a circle of light, though I couldn't quite make out the source of illumination above me. It was the first time, though, that I'd ever been standing there alone. Hey! I called out into the empty space. It's not like my own subconscious can up and disappear, you know. If you've got something you want to say, hurry it up. I'm busy. Yeah, yeah, called a voice from the darkness. I'm coming. Keep your pants on. There were shuffling footsteps, and then I appeared. Well, it wasn't me, exactly. It was my double, though, a mental image of myself that had appeared a few times in the past, and that I would probably avoid mentioning to any mental health professionals who had signed mandatory reporting clauses. Call him my subconscious, my id, the voice of my inner jerk face, whatever. He was a part of me that didn't surface much. He was dressed in black, a tailored black shirt, black pants, expensive black shoes. He had a goatee, too. Look, I never said my inner self was hideously complex. In addition to his usual outfit, he also wore a pin on his left breast, a snowflake, wrought from silver with such complexity and detail that one could see the crystalline shapes of its surface. Whoa. I wasn't sure exactly what the hell that meant, but given how my day was going, I was reasonably sure it was nothing good. There was someone with him. It was a smallish figure, covered in what looked like a black blanket of soft wool. It moved slowly, hunched as if in terrible pain, leaning hard against my double's supporting arms. Uh, I said, what? My double sneered at me. Why is it that you've never got the least goddamn clue what's happening inside your own head? Have you ever noticed this trend? Doesn't it bug you sometimes? I try not to overthink it, I said. He snorted. Hell's bells, that's true. We have to talk. Why can't you just send dreams like everyone else's subconscious? I've been trying, he said, and shifted into a voice that sounded suspiciously like Bullwinkle, the cartoon moose. But somebody's been busy not overthinking it. I arched an eyebrow. Oh, wait. That... that dream with Murphy, that was you? All the dreams are me, blockhead, my double said. And I swear, dude, you've got to be the most repressed human being on the face of the planet.
What? Maybe you didn't notice, but I'm not exactly bending over backwards for anybody. Not oppressed, moron. Repressed. As in sexually. What is wrong with you? I blinked, offended. What? You were doing okay with Susan, he said, and Anastasia. Wow, there's really something to be said for experience. I felt myself blushing and reminded myself that I was talking to me. So? And what about all the things you've missed, dummy? He asked. You had the shadow of a freaking angel who could have shown you any sensual experience you could possibly have imagined, but did you take her up on it? No. Mav's been throwing girls at you. You could literally make one phone call and have half a dozen supernaturally hot she-girls playing rodeo with you anytime you wanted, and instead you're playing hopscotch over the cages of has-been demons. Hell, Hannah Asher would have gotten busy with you if you wanted. It's parkour. I said defensively. And just because I don't go to bed with everything with a vagina doesn't mean I'm repressed. I don't want it to be just sex. Why not? My double said, exasperated. Go forth and freaking multiply. Drink from the cup of life. Carpe femme. For the love of God, get laid. I sighed. Right. Id me didn't have to be concerned with long-term consequences. He was my instinctive, primitive self, driven by my most primal impulses. I wondered briefly if id and idiot came from the same root. You wouldn't get it, I said. It's got to be more than just physical attraction. There's got to be respect and affection. Sure, he said, his tone absolutely acidic. Then how come you haven't banged Murphy yet? Because, I said, growing flustered, we aren't... We haven't gotten to... There's been a lot... Fuck off. Ha! My double said. You're obviously terrified of getting close to someone, afraid you'll get hurt and rejected. Again. No, I'm not, I said. Oh, please, he said. I've got a direct line to your hindbrain. I've got your fears on Blu-ray, he rolled his eyes. Like she isn't feeling exactly the same thing. Murphy isn't afraid of anything, I said. Two ex-husbands, and the last one married her little sister. He might as well have sent her a card that said, I'd like you, only you're too successful and old. And you're a freaking wizard who's going to live for centuries. Of course she's freaking out about the idea of getting involved with you. I frowned at that. I... You really think so? No, Dolt. You really think so. I snorted. <sighs> okay, guy, if you're so smart... What do I do? If having something real is so important to you, man up and go get her, my id said. You could both be dead tomorrow. You're heading for the realm of freaking death, for crying out loud. What the hell are you waiting for? Uh, I said. Let me answer that for you, I said. Molly. I blinked. Uh, no. Molly's a freaking kid. She was a freaking kid, my double said. She's heading for her late twenties, in case you forgot how to count. She's not all that much younger than you, and the proportional distance is only shrinking. And you like her, and you trust her, and the two of you have a ton in common. Go get laid there. Dude, no, I said. That is not going to happen. Why not? It would be a serious violation of trust. Because she's your apprentice, he asked. No, she isn't. Not anymore. Hell's bells, man. She's practically your boss when you get right down to it. 
At the very least, she got promoted past you. I'm not having this conversation, I said. Repression and denial, my double said acerbically. Get thee to a therapist. The figure next to him made a soft sound. Right, the double said. We don't have much time. Murphy's pulling the nail out. Time for what? I asked. And who is that? Seriously? he asked. You aren't going to use your intuition even a little, huh? I scowled at him and at the other figure, and then my eyes widened. Wait, is that... is that the parasite? The shrouded figure shuddered and let out a pained groan. No, my double said. It's the being that Mab and that stupid Alfred have been calling a parasite. I blinked several times. What? Look, man, my double said, you've got to work this out. Think, okay? I can't just talk to you. This near-dream stuff is my best, but you've got to meet me halfway. I narrowed my eyes. Wait, you're saying that the parasite isn't actually a parasite. But that means... The wheel is turning, my double said in the tone of a reporter covering a sports event. The fat, lazy old hamster looks like he's almost forgotten how to make it go, but he's sort of moving it now. Bits of rust are falling off. The cobwebs are slowly parting. Screw you, I said, annoyed. It's not like you've showed up with a ton to say ever since... I trailed off and fell entirely silent for a long moment. Ah, he said and pointed a finger at me, bouncing up onto his toes. Ah ha, ah ha, ah ha, 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 the light begins to dawn. Ever since I touched Lashiel's coin, I breathed quietly. Follow that, my double urged me. What happened next? Touching the coin put an imprint of Lashiel in my head, I said. Like a footprint in clay, the same shape as the original. She tried to tempt me into accepting the true Lashiel into my head along with her, but I turned her down. My double rolled his wrist in a keep-it-moving gesture. And then... And then the imprint started to change, I said. Lashiel was immutable, but the imprint was made of me. A shape in the clay. As the clay changed, so did the imprint. And... And I gave her a name, I said. I called her Lash. She became an independent psychic entity in her own right. And we kind of got along until I swallowed. Until there was a psychic attack, a bad one. She threw herself in the way of it. It destroyed her. Yeah, my double said quietly. But, look, what she did was an act of love. And you were about as intimate with her as it gets, sharing the same mental space. I mean, it's funny, you get twitchy when you start considering living with a woman, but having one literally inside your head was not an issue. What do you mean? Christ, you're supposed to be the intellect here, my double said. Think. He stared at me for a long moment, visibly willing me to understand. My stomach fell into some unimaginable abyss at the same time my jaw dropped open. No, I said. That isn't... that's not possible. When a mommy and a daddy love each other very much, my double said as if speaking to a small child, and they live together and hug and kiss and get intimate with each other, I'm... I felt a little ill. You're saying I'm 
Pregnant? My double threw up his arms. Finally, he gets it. In years and years and years of experience as a wizard, I dealt with concepts, formulae, and mental models that ranged from bizarre to downright insanity-inducing. None of them had, in any way whatsoever, ever prepared my head to wrap around this. At all. Ever. How is that... That isn't even... What the hell, man? I demanded. A spiritual entity, my double said calmly. Born of you and Lash. When she sacrificed herself for you, it was an act of selfless love. And love is fundamentally a force of creation. It stands to reason, then, that an act of love is fundamentally an act of creation. You remember it, right? After she died? When you could still play the music she'd given to you, even though she was gone? You could hear the echoes of her voice? Yeah, I said, feeling dazed. That was because a part of her remained, my double said, made of her and made of you. And very gently, he drew back the black blanket. She looked like a child, maybe twelve years old, in the last few weeks of true childhood before the sudden surge of hormones brought on the chain of rapid changes that lead into adolescence. Her hair was dark, like mine, but her eyes were a crystalline blue-green, the way lashes had often appeared. Her features were faintly familiar, and I realized in a surge of instinct that her face had been constructed from those of people in my life. She had the square, balanced chin of Karen Murphy, the rounded cheeks of Ivy the Archive, and Susan Rodriguez's jawline. Her nose had come from my first love— Elaine Mallory, her hair for my first apprentice, Kim Delaney. I knew because they were my memories right there in front of me. Her eyes were fluttering uncertainly, and she was shivering so hard that she could barely stand. There was frost forming on her eyelashes, and even as I watched, it started spreading over her cheeks. She's a spiritual entity, I breathed. Oh, my God! She's a spirit of intellect. What happens when mortals get it on with spirits, my double confirmed, though now without heat. But Mab said she was a parasite, I said. A lot of people make jokes, refer to fetuses like that, he said. Mab called her a monster, said she would hurt those closest to me. She's a spirit of intellect, just like Bob, my double said. Born of the spirit of a fallen freaking angel in the mind of one of the most potent wizards on the White Council. She's going to be born with knowledge and with power and be absolutely innocent of what to do with them. A lot of people would call that monstrous. Oh, I said and clutched at my head. I got it now. Mab hadn't been lying, not precisely. Hell, she'd as much as told me that the parasite was made of my essence. My soul, my me-ness. Spirits of intellect had to grow, and my head was a limited space. This one had been filling it up for years, slowly expanding, putting more psychic and psychological pressure on me, reflected in the growing intensity of my migraines over that time. If I'd realized what was happening, I could have done something sooner, and probably a lot more simply. Now... I was overdue, and it was looking like this was going to be a very, very rough delivery. 
And if I didn't have help, I'd be in much the same shape as a woman giving birth alone and encountering complications. Odds were good that my head wouldn't be able to stand the pressure of such a being abruptly parting ways with me, fighting its way out of the space that had become too small in sheer instinct for its own survival. It could drive me insane or kill me outright. If that happened, it would leave the newly born spirit of intellect alone and bewildered in a world it didn't understand, but about which it had lots and lots of data. Spirits like Bob liked to pretend they were all about rationality, but they had emotions, attachments. The new spirit would want to connect, and it would try to do so with the people who mattered most to me. I shuddered, imagining little Maggie suddenly gaining a very, very seriously dangerous imaginary friend. See? I demanded of my double. You see? This is why you don't go around having sex with everyone all the time. You're the brain, he said. Figure it out. The lights flickered, and he looked up and around. Ugh, he said. Nails coming out. He was right. I could feel a faint pang in my chest and a fading echo of the agony in my head. Frost continued covering the little girl, and she sighed, her knees buckling. My double and I both stooped down and caught her before she could fall. I picked her up. She didn't weigh anything. She didn't look dangerous. She just looked like a little girl. Her eyes fluttered open. I'm sorry, she stammered. Sorry, but it hurts, and I couldn't talk to you. I traded a look with my double and then looked down at her. It's okay, I said. It's okay. I'm going to take care of it. It'll be all right. She sighed slightly, and her eyes closed. Frost covered her in fine layers upon layers, as the spell on Mab's earring wrapped her in sleep and silence, stilling her, for now, and turning her into a beautiful white statue. I hadn't even known she was there, and she was entirely my responsibility. And if I didn't handle it, she would kill me being born. I passed her carefully to my double. Okay, I said. I've got it. He took her very gently and gave me a nod. I know she's weird, but she's still your offspring. His dark eyes flashed. Protect the offspring. Primal drives indeed. I torn apart a nation protecting my physical child. I was looking at part of the reason why. That drive was a part of me, too. I took a deep breath and nodded to him. I'm on it, I said. He wrapped the girl in a blanket and turned to carry her back into the darkness. He took the light with him, and darkness swallowed me again. Hey, my double called abruptly from the distance. What? Don't forget the dream, he said. Don't forget how it ended. What is that supposed to mean, I asked. You flippin' idiot! My double snarled. And then he was gone, along with everything else. Chapter 24 I opened my eyes and saw the ceiling of Karen's bedroom. It was dark. I was lying down. Light from the hallway came creeping under the bedroom door and was almost too bright for my eyes. 
That's what I'm trying to tell you, Butters' voice was saying. I don't know. There's no AMA-approved baseline for a freaking wizard night of winter. He could be in shock. He could be bleeding from the brain. He could be really, really sleepy. Damn it, Karen, this is what hospitals and practicing physicians are for. I heard Karen blow out a breath. <sighs> okay, she said, without any kind of heat. What can you tell me? His arm's broken, Butters said, from the swelling and bruising, badly. Whatever put that dent in the aluminum brace on it, did he get it taken care of in a tool shop? Rebroke it. I said it again, I think, and wrapped it up in the brace again. But I can't be sure I did it right without imaging equipment, which would probably explode if he walked into the room with it. If it hasn't been set right, that arm might be permanently damaged. He blew out a breath. The hole in his chest wasn't traumatic by his usual standards. He didn't go through the muscle. But the damn nail was rusty, so I hope he's had his tetanus shots. I gave the hole another stitch, and I washed the blood off the nail. Thank you, Karen said. Butters' voice was weary. Yeah, he sighed. Sure. Karen, can I tell you something? What? This thing he's got going with Mab, Butters said. I know that everyone thinks it's turned him into some kind of superhero, but I don't think that's right. I've seen him move, she said. I've seen how strong he is. So have I, Butters said. Look, the human body is a pretty amazing machine. It really is. It can do really amazing things, much more so than most people think, because it's also built to protect itself. What do you mean, she asked. Inhibitors, Butters said. Every person walking around is about three times stronger than they think they are. I mean, your average housewife is actually about as strong as a fairly serious weightlifter when it comes to pure mechanics. Adrenaline can amp that even more. I could hear the frown in Karen's voice. You're talking about when mothers lift cars off their kid, that kind of thing. Exactly that kind of thing, Butters said. But the body can't function that way all the time, or it will tear itself apart. That's what inhibitors are built for, to keep you from injuring yourself. What does that have to do with Dresden? I think that what this winter night gig has done for him is nothing more than switching off those inhibitors, Butters said. He hasn't added all that much muscle mass. It's the only thing that makes sense. The body is capable of those moments of startling strength, but they're meant to be something that you pull out of the hat once or twice in a lifetime. And with no inhibitors and no ability to feel pain, Dresden's running around doing them all the time. And there's no real way he can know it. Karen was silent for several seconds, digesting that. Then she said, Bottom line? The more he leans on this gift, Butters said, and I could picture him making air quotes, the more he tears himself to shreds. His body heals remarkably, but he's still human. He's got limits somewhere, and if he keeps this up, he's going to find them. What do you think will happen? Butters made a thoughtful sound. Think about a football player or boxer who has it hard and breaks down in his early thirties because he's just taken too damn much punishment. That's Dresden, if he keeps this up. I'm sure that once we explain that to him, he'll retire to a job as a librarian, Karen said. Butters snorted. It's possible that other things in his system are being affected the same way, he said. 
testosterone production, for example, any number of other hormones which might be influencing his perception and judgment. I'm not sure he's actually got any more real power at all. I think it just feels that way to him. This is fact or theory? An informed theory, he said. Bob helped me develop it. Son of a bitch. I kept quiet and thought about that one for a minute. Could that be true? Or at least more true than it wasn't? It would be consistent with the other deal I'd worked out with a fairy. My godmother Leah had made a bargain to give me the power to defeat my old mentor, Justin DeMorne. Then she tortured me for a while, assuring me that it would give me strength. It did, though mostly in retrospect, because I had believed it had. Had I been magic-feathered by a fairy again? And yet, at the end of the day, I could lift a freaking car. Sure you can, Harry, but at what price? No wonder the Winter Knights stayed in the job until they died. If Butters was right, they would have been plunged into the crippling agony of their battered bodies the moment the mantle was taken from them. Sort of the same way I had just been rendered into agonized jello when the Genosqua had shoved a nail into me. I worry, Butters said quietly, that he's changing, that he doesn't know it. Look who's talking, Karen said. Batman. That was one time, Butters said. Karen didn't say anything. All right, Butters relented. A few times. But it wasn't enough to keep those kids from being carried off. You pulled some of them out, Waldo, Karen said. Believe me, that's a win. Most of the time you can't even do that much. But you're missing my point. What point? Ever since you've had the skull, you've been changing too, Karen said. You work hand in hand with a supernatural being that can scare the crap out of me. You can do things you couldn't do before. You know things you didn't know before. Your personality has changed. There was a pause. It has? You're more serious, she said. More intense, I suppose. Yeah, now that I know more about what's really happening out there, it's not something influencing me. Unless it is, and you just don't know it, Karen said. I've got the same evidence on you that you have on Dresden. Butters sighed. I see what you did there. I don't think you do, she said. It's about choices, Waldo. About faith. You have an array of facts in front of you that can fit any of several truths. You have to choose what you're going to allow to drive your decisions about how to deal with those facts. What do you mean? You could let fear be what motivates you, Karen said. Maybe you're right. Maybe Dresden is being turned into a monster against his knowledge and will. Maybe one day he'll be something that kills us all. You're not wrong. That kind of thing can happen. It scares me, too. Then why are you arguing with me? Karen paused for a time before answering. Because fear is a terrible, insidious thing, Waldo. It taints and stains everything it touches. If you let fear start driving some of your decisions, sooner or later it will drive them all. I decided that I'm not going to be the kind of person who lives her life in fear of her friends turning into monsters. What? Just like that? It took me a long, long time to get there, she said. 
But at the end of the day, I would rather have faith in the people I care about than allow my fears to change them, in my own eyes, if nowhere else. I guess maybe you don't see what's happening with Harry here. What? Butters asked. This is what it looks like when someone's fighting for his soul, she said. He needs his friends to believe in him. The fastest way for us to help make him into a monster is to look at him like he is one. Butters was quiet for a long time. I'm going to say this once, Waldo, she said. I want you to listen. Okay. You need to decide which side of the road you're going to walk on, she said gently. Turn aside from your fears, or grab onto them and run with them. But you need to make the call. You keep trying to walk down the middle, you're going to get yourself torn apart. Butters' voice turned bitter. Them or us, choose a side. It's not about taking sides, Karen said. It's about knowing yourself. About understanding why you make the choices you do. Once you know that, you know where to walk, too. The floorboards creaked. Maybe she'd stepped closer to him. I could picture her putting her hand on his arm. You're a good man, Waldo. I like you. I respect you. I think you'll figure it out. A long silence followed. Andy's waiting on me to eat, he said. I'd better get going. Okay, Karen said. Thank you again. I... Yeah, sure. Footsteps. The front door opened and closed. A car started up and then drove away. I sat up in bed and fumbled until I found Karen's bedside lamp with my right hand. The light hurt my eyes. My head felt funny probably the result of being bounced off of walls. I'd lost my shirt again. Butters had added some more bandages and the sharp scent of more antibiotics to my collection of medical trophies. My arm had been bandaged again inside its aluminum brace, and the brace was held in a sling tied around my neck. I got out of bed and wobbled for a minute and then shambled across the floor to the bedroom door. Karen opened it just as I got there and stood looking up at me, her expression worried. God, you are turning into a monster, she said. A mummy, one bit at a time. I'm fine, I said. Ish. She pursed her lips and shook her head. How much of that did you hear? Everything after his usual. I'm not really a physician, disclaimer. Her mouth twitched. He's just... He's worried, that's all. I get it, I said. I think you handled it right. That drew a sparkle from her eyes. I know I did. Batman, I asked. He's been, she folded her arms, ewing, I suppose. With you gone from the city and Molly gone, the streets haven't been getting any safer. Marcone's crowd have taken up the fight against the Fomor whenever their territory is threatened, but their protection costs... Not everyone can afford it, I grimaced. Damn it, I muttered. Damn, Mab, I could have been back here months and months ago. Waldo does what he can, and because he has the skull, that's more than most. Bob was never meant to be used in the field, I said. He's a valuable resource until he attracts attention to himself. Once he's been identified, he can be countered or stolen, and then the bad guys get that much stronger. That's why I tried not to take him out of the lab. The Fomor started taking children last Halloween, Karen said simply. Six-year-olds, right off the streets.
I grimaced and looked down from her steady gaze. We'll sort something out, Karen said. You hungry? Starving, I said. Come on. I followed her to the kitchen. She took a pair of Pizza Express pizzas from the oven, where she'd had them staying warm. They had almost settled onto the table before I started eating, ravenous. The pizza was my favorite. Not good, but my favorite, because it had been the only pizza I could afford for a long, long time, and I was used to it. Heavy on the sauce, light on the cheese, and the meat was just hinted at, but the crust was thick and hot and flaky and filled with delicious things that murdered you slowly. Present for you, Karen said. I asked. She plopped a file folder down on the table beside me and said, From Paranoid Gary, the Paranetison. I swallowed a mouthful and delayed getting another long enough to ask, The one who found the deal with the boats last year? Crazy but not wrong guy? That's him, she said. Huh, I said, chewing. I opened the folder and started flipping through printed pages of fuzzy images. Those are from Iran. Karen said. Gary says that they show a functioning nuclear power plant. The images were obviously of some sort of installation, but I couldn't tell anything beyond that. Thought they had big old towers. He says they're buried in that hill behind the building, Karen said. Check out the last few images. On the last pages of the folder, things in the installation had changed. Columns of black, greasy smoke rolled out from multiple buildings, in another image, the bodies of soldiers lay on the ground. And in the last image, up on the hillside, which was wreathed in white mist or maybe steam, three figures faced one another. One was a large man dressed in a long overcoat and wielding a slightly curved sword in one hand, an old cavalry saber. He carried what might have been a sawed-off shotgun in the other, his skin was dark, and though his head hadn't been shaved like that last time I'd seen him, it could really have been only one person. Sonia, I said. The world's only knight of the cross was standing across from two blurry figures. Both were in motion, as if charging toward him. One was approximately the same size and shape as a large gorilla. The other was covered in a thick layer of feathers that gave an otherwise humanoid shape an odd, shaggy appearance. Magog and shaggy feathers, I muttered. Hells, bells, those coins are slippery. When were these taken? Less than six hours ago, Karen said, according to Paranoid Gary. The Denarians are up to something. Yeah, I said. Deirdre said that Tessa was supposed to be in Iran. That makes sense. In what way does that make sense? Nicodemus wants to pull a job over here, I said. He knows there's only one night running around, so he sends Tessa and her crew to the other side of the world to stir up major league trouble. Let's say Gary's right, and Iran has a nuclear reactor running, and something goes horribly wrong with it. You've got an instant regional and international crisis. Of course a knight gets sent to deal with it, where he can't get to Chicago, or at least not in time to do any good. Karen took that in silently, and I went back to eating. So you're saying we're on our own, and the bad guys keep stacking up higher and higher, I said. The Genosqua, you mean, Karen said. Yeah, she shuddered. That thing, 
Seriously? A Bigfoot? Some kind of mutant serial killer Bigfoot, maybe, I said. Not like one of the regular forest people at all. I can't believe it, Karen said. It's no weirder than any number of... Not that, she said. I can't believe you met a Bigfoot and you never told me about it. I mean, they're famous. They're kind of a private bunch, I said. Did a few jobs for one a few years back named River Shoulders. Liked him. Kept my mouth shut. She nodded, understanding. Then she got up and left the kitchen and came back a moment later with her rocket launcher and an oversized pistol case. She set the rocket launcher down and said, This will take out something Bigfoot-sized, no problem. I opened my mouth and then closed it again. Yeah, I admitted. Okay. She gave me a nod that did not quite include the phrase, I told you so. I like to be sure I've got enough firepower to cover any given situation. She put the case on the table and slid it over to me. And this is for you. I took the case and opened it a little awkwardly, using mostly one hand. In it was a stubby-looking pistol that had been built with a whole hell of a lot of metal, to the point where it somehow reminded me of a steroid-using weightlifter's gargoylish build. The damn thing could have been mounted on a small armored vehicle turret. There were a number of rounds stored with it, each the size of my thumb. What the hell is this? I asked, beaming. Smith & Wesson 500, she said. Short barrel, but that round is made for taking on big game. Big Gray and Ugly comes at you to make another friendly point. I want you to give him a 400-grain bullet point reply. I whistled, hefting the gun and admiring the sheer mass of it. I've got one broken wrist already, and you give me this? Ride the recoil, Nancy, she said. You can handle it. She reached out and put her hand on the fingers of my left hand protruding from the sling. We'll handle it. We'll get this thing with Nicodemus done and get that parasite out of your head. You'll see. Yeah, I said. We've got a problem there. What's that? We can't kill the parasite, I said. We have to save it. Karen gave me a flat look and, after a brief pause, said, What? We, uh... Look, it's not what I thought it was. My condition isn't what we thought it was either. She eyed me carefully. No, then what is your condition exactly? I told her. Come on, I said. Get up. She sat on the floor, rocking back and forth helplessly with laughter. Her plate, with its slice of pizza, had landed beside her when she'd fallen out of her chair a few minutes before and hadn't moved. Stop it, she gasped. Stop making me laugh. I was getting a little annoyed now, as well as embarrassed. My face felt as though it had a mild sunburn. Damn it, Karen, we're supposed to be back at the slaughterhouse in twenty minutes. Come on, it's just not that funny. The look, she panted, giggling helplessly. <laughs> on your face. I sighed and muttered under my breath and waited for her to recover. It took her only a couple more minutes, though she drifted back into titters several times before she finally picked herself up off the floor. Are you quite finished? I asked her, trying for a little dignity. She dissolved into hiccuping giggles again instantly. It was highly unprofessional. Chapter 25
By the time we got back to the slaughterhouse, the sun had gone down, and the night had come on, cold and murky. Rain had begun to fall in the fine mist, and the temperature had dropped enough that I could see it starting to coat the city in a fine sheet of ice. Ice storm, Karen noted as she parked the car. Perfect. At least it'll keep people in, I said. Depending on how this goes, that might cut down on innocent bystanders, she said. Is Mab messing with the weather again? I squinted out at the weather. No, I said immediately and instinctively certain of the answer. This is just winter in Chicago being winter in Chicago. Mab doesn't care about innocent bystanders. But she might care about giving you an advantage. I snorted and said, Mab helps those who help themselves. Karen gave me a thin smile. That thing you did with the Genosqua, you threw magic at it. Yep. It didn't work, I guess. Nope, I said. I hit him with my best shot, something Mab gave me. Just drained off him, grounded out. Grounded, she said. Like with a lightning rod? Exactly like that, I said. The forest people know magic, and they're ridiculously powerful, but they understand it differently than humans do. The one I knew used water magic like nothing I'd ever seen or heard of before. This Genosqua, I think he's using earth magic the same way, on a level I don't know a damn thing about. Pretend I don't know a damn thing about earth magic either, Karen said, and bottom line it for me. I threw the most potent battle magic I know at him, and he shut it down with zero trouble. I'm pretty sure he'll be able to do it as much as he wants. He's immune to magic? Karen asked. I shrugged. If he senses it coming and can take action, pretty much, I said. Which makes me think that he's not all that bright. Hell of a secret to give away when his goal wasn't to actually kill you. No kidding, I said. Maybe he gave me too much credit and assumed I already knew. Either way, I know now. Right, Karen said, which gives you an advantage. You won't bother trying to blast him with magic the next time. I shuddered, thinking of the creature's sheer speed and power, and of exactly how little he feared me. I touched the handle of my new revolver, now loaded and in my duster pocket. With any luck, there won't be a next time. Karen turned to me abruptly, her expression earnest. Harry... She said quietly, that thing means to kill you. I know what it looks like. Don't kid yourself. I grimaced and looked away. Satisfied that she'd made her point, she nodded and got out of the car. She'd slung one of her space guns, she'd called it the Chris, on a harness under her coat, and you almost couldn't see it when she moved. She rolled around to the trunk, looked up and down the street once, and then took out the rocket launcher and slung it over her shoulder. In the dark, in the rain, it looked like it might have been one of those protective tubes that artists use, maybe three and a half feet long. Really think you can hit him with that thing? I asked. It's weapon enough to handle him, she said, if I have to. I squinted up at the drizzling mist and said, I'm getting tired of this job. Let's get it done then, Karen said. This time, when we rolled in, Jordan wasn't on duty. Maybe he'd been given a shift off to get some sleep. Or maybe Nicodemus was so sure I was about to break through his conditioning and suborn him that he'd move the kid to a less vulnerable post. Yeah, that was probably it. When we came in, most of the crew was already downstairs, gathered around the conference table. 
Even the Genosqua was standing around in plain sight, albeit in a deep patch of shadow that reduced his visible presence to an enormous furry shadow. Only Nicodemus and Deirdre were absent, and I spotted Deirdre standing silently on one of the catwalks, looking down at the table where Binder was telling some sort of animated anecdote or joke. She looked disturbed. Don't get me wrong, a girl who goes around biting the tongues out of men's mouths is disturbed one way or another, but the Denarian killer looked genuinely troubled or distressed or something. Karen caught me looking at her and sighed. We can't afford another damsel, Dresden. I wasn't thinking that, I said. Sure you weren't. Actually, I said, I was thinking she looked vulnerable. Might be a good time to confront her about how Harvey died. Karen clucked her tongue thoughtfully. I'll be at the table. Yeah. She descended the stairs, and I ambled out along the catwalk to stand beside Deirdre. She looked up at me as I approached, her eyes flat, but then her gaze shifted back to the room below. And then I said, Binder snickered, evidently coming to the punchline, Why did you wear it, then? Hannah Asher burst out in a short, hearty belly laugh and was joined, more quietly, by Anna Valmont. Even Gray smiled, at least a little. The expression looked somehow alien on his oddly unremarkable features. Deirdre stared down at them all, her expression dispassionate, like a scientist observing bacteria. Her eyes flickered toward me for a second as I approached, her body tensing slightly. Being a genius interrogator, I asked her, So, why'd you kill Harvey? She looked at me for a few seconds, then turned her eyes back to the room below to watch Karen come to the table. There was a moment of silence from everyone as they took in her armament. Then Gray rose, suddenly dapper, and offered to help her with a rocket launcher like it was a coat. Karen led him, giving him an edged smile that she directed past him to the shadows where the Genosqua lurked. I didn't kill the accountant, she said quietly. Nicodemus said not to. That surprised me a little. If she wanted to hide herself from me, she didn't need to go to the effort of lying. All she had to do was stay silent. He said that to all of us, I said. Maybe he said something else to you privately. He didn't, she said. My mother killed him with a spell she calls the Sanguine Scalpel. The cuts looked a lot like the ones you would inflict, I said. A cutthroat is a cutthroat, wizard. Tough to argue with that one. And you chased her. I went to say... to talk to her, yes. What did she have to say? Personal things, Deidre replied. I narrowed my eyes. Something wasn't jiving here. Deirdre was demonstrating absolutely no emotion about her mother, which, in my experience, is the next best thing to impossible for almost anyone. Hell, even Maeve had carried enormous mother issues around with her. If Tessa was really trying to beat Nicodemus and Deirdre to the Holy Grail, there should have been something there. Frustration, irritation, fear, anger, resignation, something. Not this distant, cool clarity. Tessa wasn't after any grail. But what else could motivate her? Deirdre looked up from below and studied me calmly. He knows that you mean to betray him, you know. Makes us even, I said. No, it doesn't, she said in that same distant voice. Not even close.
I've seen him disassemble men and women more formidable than you dozens of times. You don't have a chance of tricking him, outplanning him, or beating him. She stated it as a simple fact. Mab knows it, too. Then why would she send me? She's disposing of you without angering your allies at her. Surely you can't be so deluded that you don't see that. A slow chill went through me at the words. That could make a great deal of sense, actually. If Mab had decided not to use me after all, then my presence was no longer needed. But enough people thought well of me that they could prove extremely trying for her, should they set out to seek revenge. Of course, that wasn't how Mab played the game. When she set something up, she did it so that no matter what happened, she would run the table in the end. Mab probably intended me to do exactly what she told me she sent me to do. But what she hadn't said was that she'd set it up so that it wouldn't hurt her too badly if I failed. If I was too incompetent to work her will, she would regard me as a liability to be dispensed with, preferably without angering my allies. Nicodemus would get the vengeance-level blame for my death if I failed, and Mab would be free and clear to choose a new knight. I felt my jaw tightening and loosening. Well, I couldn't really have expected anything else. Mab struck me as the kind of mother who taught her children to swim by throwing them into the lake. My entire career with her would be shaped the same way, sink or swim. We'll see, I said. She smiled very slightly and turned back to regard the table below. Gray was sitting with Karen, speaking quietly, a smile on his face. She had her narrow-eyed expression on hers, but a smile also lurked somewhere inside it. He was being amusing. Jerk. Is there anything else you'd like to ask me? Deirdre asked. Yeah, I said, quietly. Why? Why what? I gestured around. Why this? Why do you do what you do? Why bite out the tongues and murder hirelings and whatnot? What makes a person do something like this? She fell silent. The weight of it became oppressive. Tell me, child, she said. What is the longest-lasting relationship in your life? Uh, I said. Like in terms of when it started or how long it continued? Whichever. My mentor in the White Council, maybe, I said. I've known him since I was sixteen. You see him daily? You speak to him? Work with him? Well, no. Ah, she said. Someone that close to you, who shares your life with you. Uh, I said, a girlfriend or two. My cat. A small smirk touched her mouth. Temporary mates and a cat. One cat. He's an awesome cat. What you are telling me, she said, is that you have never shared your life with another over the long term. The closest you have come to it is providing a home and affection for a being which is entirely your subject and in your control. Well, not at bath time. The joke did not register on her. You have nothing but firefly relationships, there and then gone. I have watched empires rise and fall and rise again beside Nicodemus. You call him my father, but there are no words for what we are. How can there be? Mortal words cannot possibly encompass something which mortals can never embrace and know. 
centuries of faith, of cooperation, of trust, working and living and fighting side by side. Her mouth twisted into a sneer. You know nothing of commitment, wizard child. And so I cannot possibly explain to you why I do what I do. And what is it that you think you're doing with them exactly? I asked her. We, she said with perfect sincerity, are fighting to save the world. Which, if true, was about the creepiest thing I'd run into that day. From what? I asked. She smiled very faintly and finally fell silent. I didn't press. I didn't want to hear anything else from her anyway. I withdrew and went down to the table with the others. Dinner, Gray was saying. Assuming we're all alive and filthy rich afterward, I mean. I certainly can say no, Karen replied, her tone light with banter. You're a little creepy, Gray. Goodman, Gray said. Say it with me. Good man. I was a cop for twenty years, Gray, Karen said. I can recognize a fake name when I hear it. I settled down next to Karen and pulled the new revolver out of my pocket, put it on the conference table right next to where I could reach it, and said to Gray, Hi. Gray eyed me and then the gun. Then he said to Karen, Does he make these kinds of calls for you? You'll have to try a little harder with something a little less obvious than that. Karen said. Honestly, I'm sort of hoping he shoots you a little. I've never seen a round from that beast hit somebody. Gray settled back in his seat, eyeing me sourly. Bro, he said, you're totally cock-blocking me. In answer, I picked up the monster revolver. No, I said. Then I freaking cocked it, drawing the hammer back with my thumb. Rather than a mere click, it made a sinister ratcheting sound. Now I'm cock-blocking you. The table got completely quiet and still. Anna Valmont's eyes were huge. Touché, Gray said, nodding slightly. Well, there was no harm in my asking the lady, was there? None to her, I agreed amiably. Murphy, should I shoot him anyway? Karen put a finger to her lips and tapped thoughtfully. I've got to admit I'm curious as hell. But it seems a little unprofessional, as long as he backs off. Hear that? I asked Gray. You people are savages, Gray said. He shook his head, muttered something beneath his breath, and rose to stalk away from the table and settle down not far from the Janosqua, who did not object. The two exchanged a very slight nod and began to speak in low voices in a language I did not recognize. I lowered the hammer carefully and put the revolver down. The table was silent for another long moment before Binder said in a jovial tone, as if he'd never stopped speaking, So, Dara was in Belize with thirty monkeys, a panda, and a pygmy elephant. He had begun to tell a story that everyone around the table thought was completely fabricated, while he insisted that every detail was absolutely true, when Nicodemus entered the factory through emergency doors on the floor level, letting in a blast of freezing mist and winter air. He had added a long coat to his ensemble, and he dropped it behind him as he strode forward across the floor. His shadow slid over the floor beside him, too large and never quite in sync with the rest of him. Good evening, he said as he took his seat at the head of the table. Ladies and gentlemen, please give me your attention. 
Wizard Dresden, if you would, please give us a brief primer on the nature of ways and how they open. I blinked as every eye on the table turned to me. Uh, I said, ways are basically passages between the mortal world and some portion of the never-never, the spirit world. Any point in the mortal world will open a way to somewhere, if you know how to do it. The way opens to a place that shares something in common with the point of origin in the mortal world. Uh, for example, if you wanted to open a way to hell, you'd have to find a hellish place in the mortal world and start from there. If you want to go to a peaceful place in the never-never, you start with a peaceful place here. Like that. Chicago is a great place for ways. It's a crossroads, a big one. You can get just about anywhere from here. Thank you, Nicodemus said. Our goal is to open a way into the secured facility containing our objective. He accepted a large sheet of rolled paper from a squire who had hurried up to hand it to him. Bearing all those factors in mind, I'm sure you'll understand why we will begin the job here. With a flick of his wrist, he unrolled the large sheet of paper. It proved to be blueprints, a floor plan. I frowned and stared at it, but it didn't look familiar. Karen made a choking sound. Murph, I asked. Ah, Nicodemus said, smiling. You know it. It's a vault, Karen said, looking up at me. A vault that belongs to a lord of the underworld. I felt myself clench up in a place that didn't bear much more clenching. Oh, I said weakly. Oh, hell's bells. Binder jerked a thumb at me. What's he on about? he asked Karen. Karen put a forefinger on the plans. This is the Capristi building, she said. It's the second most secure facility in the city. She took a deep breath. It's a mob bank, and it belongs to Gentleman John Marcone, a courted baron of Chicago. Chapter 26 I'd been afraid it would come to something like this, though I'd held out hope that Nicodemus would come up with a better way of getting to where we needed to go. Like maybe burning down a building around our ears and hoping to open a way at the last second. That would have been merely dicey. Marcone was dangerous. Gentleman Johnny Marcone had clawed his way to the top of Chicago's outfit back when I had first set up business in town, and he had ruled the city's crime with an iron fist ever since, with an eye toward making organized crime safer, more efficient, more businesslike. It worked. A lot of cops thought he had more power than the government. Those cops kept their mouths shut about it for the most part, though, because he commanded more cops than the government, too. Then, a few years back, he'd sought and gained the title of Freeholding Lord under the Unseelie Accords, the legal document that was the backbone of civilized relations between supernatural nations. He was the first vanilla human being on record as having done so, and he had claimed, fought for, and held Chicago against all comers thus far as its baron. Though, to be fair, I'd been out of town for a lot of that time. Still, I didn't think it would be smart to cross him if I wasn't prepared to go right to the mat for keeps. Marcone commanded an army of thugs and hired killers, some of whom were truly excellent at their jobs. 
He kept a small squad of Einherjaren, dead but not gone Viking warriors, on retainer, and I'd seen them efficiently take on some of the toughest nasties I've ever encountered. He had at least one freaking Valkyrie on the payroll, and the man himself was ruthless, intelligent, and absolutely without fear. I thought getting into it with Marcone was going to be about two steps shy of getting into it with Hades himself, but all I said out loud was, Oh boy. Problem, Dresden? Nicodemus asked. Marcone is not someone to cross lightly, I said. Not only that, but he's a member of the Accords. I'm not, Nicodemus said. Not any longer. I am, I said, twice. As a wizard of the White Council and as the Winter Knight. I'm sure the White Council will be stunned and disappointed should you not conform to their policy, Nicodemus said. And as for Mab, you are in effect simply my tool during this operation. As far as she is concerned, any obligation you incur with regard to the Accords can be laid at my feet, not hers. He was right, twice, which made me scowl. My point is, I said, Marcone is not a man to be taken lightly. If you hit him, he hits you back, harder. Indeed, Nicodemus said, he has an excellent reputation. He would have made a fine monarch only a few centuries ago. Good King John Marcone? I shuddered at the thought. Let's say we hammer our way into his building, I said. Fine, it's probably doable. Getting back out again is going to be the hard part. And even if we do that, it isn't over. He isn't going to forget or let it go. Dresden's right, Karen said. Marcone doesn't suffer intrusions on his territory, period. We will do what we have come to do, Nicodemus said calmly. If necessary, reparations to the Baron can be considered once our mission is accomplished. I believe I can make the point to him that accepting such restitution will be more cost-effective than pursuing more personal collection efforts. I traded a look with Karen and could see that she was thinking the same thing I was. Nicodemus had abducted Marcone himself not so many years back as part of one of his schemes. Mab had, in fact, sent me to bail Marcone out back when I just owed her a couple of favors. I still remembered Marcone as a helpless prisoner, the image had kind of stuck in my memory. He would never forget that. There are some things money can't buy. One of them is redemption from the vengeance of gentleman Johnny Marcone. And if Karen and I went along with this plan, it would mean as much as declaring war on the Baron of Chicago. What do you think? I asked her. Karen could do the math. She knew exactly what I was talking about. Had to happen sometime. <laughs> I said, right. I don't get it, Binder said. Look, if he's a man of business, why don't we just make him a proposition and cut him in for a piece of the action? A valid notion, Nicodemus said, but it is not possible. Why not? In the first place, Nicodemus said, the vault houses materials belonging to more persons than our principal target alone. Marcone has become something of a notoriously neutral party in the affairs of the modern supernatural world. Svartalfheim, the White Court, Dracul, and a number of other individuals of similar weight have entrusted a portion of their wealth to his keeping, and he has given his word to protect it to the best of his ability. That's it, then, I said to Binder. He won't bargain. 
Guy's a murderous asshole, but he's good to his word. Binder settled back, frowning. What's the other reason, then? If he let us in, it would change the nature of the place, I said before Nicodemus could answer. We're trying to open a way into a jealously guarded vault. We probably won't be able to do it from a vault that's been opened to the public. Exactly, Nicodemus said. Barring a few security systems requiring specific countermeasures, I have complete confidence that we can seize the building. Holding it until the job is done and escaping it with our hides is another matter. And that, Mr. Binder, is where you and your associates will play a critical role. Binder grunted and leaned forward to study the map. How long will I need to hold it? An hour, at most, Nicodemus said. Barring anyone manipulating time on us between here and there, I put in. Nicodemus gave me a sour frown and said, We shall be finished in one hour, one way or the other. He pointed to a portion of the floor plans. Here is the master vault door. That, Miss Valmont, is your responsibility. Hang on, Binder said. If you leave me playing doorman, how am I supposed to collect my backpack of jewels, eh? I can't go off to the never-never and leave my lads here behind me. That'll cut the connection between us. I'm not doing this job on salary. I suggest your partner carry and fill two packs, Nicodemus said. I will undertake to carry your pack out myself and give it to you upon my return. As I am, with the possible exception of Gray, the one most likely to survive, to escape, this arrangement would give you a greater chance of successfully receiving your payment than anyone else here. Binder squinted at Nicodemus and sat back in his seat, obviously thinking it over. What do you think, Ash? Hannah Asher shrugged, which any red-blooded hetero male would have found utterly fascinating. It wasn't just me. If you'll trust me to pick your share, I'm willing. Binder grunted and then nodded slowly. I like the red ones. I'll remember, Asher promised. I idly scratched at an itch on the back of my neck. So what's the big deal with Valmont cracking the door? And why drag poor Harvey into this? Poor Harvey, Nicodemus said, with all the sympathy of a bullet in flight, was our principal's factor in Chicago. He had exclusive access to the vault in question, which is kept shut by the best vault door money can buy in combination with what is known as a retina scan. A retina scan? We know what a retina scan is, Asher said impatiently. But why do you need it? Why not just blow the vault instead of going to all the trouble of getting Gray to duplicate the guy? Same deal as before, I said. We're trying to get into a secure vault, not one that's been blown the hell open already. If we alter the place in the real world too much, we screw up the way to the one in the never-never. I glanced at Nicodemus and thumped a finger on the blueprint. Our target has a private vault here? Precisely. An inner security room inside the main vault. This location is one of several in which he acquires additional items for his collection by proxy, Nicodemus said. I had to give Nick this much. He thought this business through, lining up like to like the way you needed to do to make magic work. So first we have to get to the main vault? Through two security doors, which Miss Asher will see to with a newly practiced spell, Nicodemus said the better not to activate the seismic sensors in the vault that will lock down the building more thoroughly and force us to take more destructive measures to gain access. I nodded. 
Then Valmont does the door on the main vault, and Gray does the private security room with the retina scan. I blinked and eyed Gray. Right down to his retinas. Seriously? Gray looked up from where he sat in the shadows and gave me a modest smile. I shuddered visibly. You are an extremely creepy man, I said. I looked back at Nicodemus. I can see a possible problem. Yes. Marcone is not a dummy, I said. He's gone up against supernatural powers more than once. He knows that sooner or later he and I are going to get into it. He doesn't make mistakes often, and he never fails to learn from them. He'll have supernatural precautions as well as physical ones. Such as? Nicodemus asked. If I was him, I said, I'd have something rigged to shut down all the electronic gizmos and close off the vault as soon as the building's power got disrupted, which just might happen when Asher and I start throwing magic around. In fact, I'd set it up to happen as soon as any amount of magic started flying. It would be smart, Binder said in agreement. Don't think it'd be too hard to fix, either. I have circuits set up around the place, something delicate that would go out without too much trouble. Like the ones in cell phones or something, I added. Those things go to pieces if a wizard looks at them funny. Yeah, Binder said, nodding. I can use one, but only just. Had to start keeping it powered off when I took up with Ash here. Assuming such a wizard alarm, I suppose, exists, Nicodemus said. How shall we defeat it? Not a problem for me, Binder said. It wouldn't even blink. These two, though, we'd have to... I eyed Binder sourly and rubbed at the itch on my neck again. Sorry, mate, he said. He sounded genuine about it. Thorn manacles, he said to Nicodemus. You know the ones? I have some in stock, Nicodemus said. Though mine are Svartalf make, not fairy. Steel. I suppose they'll keep the talent of you and Miss Asher suppressed as much as possible. Simpler than keeping running water flowing over you both, in any case. He gave me a small smirk when he said it. He once had me chained up under a freezing cold stream to prevent me from using my talents to escape or make mischief. If another good man hadn't given himself in exchange for me, I might have died there. Thorn manacles were uncommon but by no means unattainable magical bindings that accomplished the same thing, dampening a wizard's powers to the point of uselessness. And they hurt like a son of a bitch. In fact, if he had some that worked the same way but were made of steel, they were going to hurt me to an outstanding degree, given how they functioned. I returned Nicodemus's smirk with a wintry smile. Binder continued, either ignoring or not noticing the look between Nicodemus and me. Once the two of them are inside, get them into a circle before the manacles come off, Binder said. That will contain the excess energy when they work the mojo. It should help. Hmm, Nicodemus mused. We'll have to change the entry plan. Dresden won't be able to provide a distraction. We'll have to use more, he glanced toward the Genosqua, overt means. In the darkness, a faint gleam of yellow appeared beneath the Genosqua's eyes. Hell's bells, the thing was smiling. Karen shot me a look. She was thinking the same thing I was. The Genosqua wasn't going to distract anything except by ripping its head off. Depending on when we went in, God only knew how many people might be in that bank. People with absolutely no knowledge of its provenance. 
Even the building security forces wouldn't necessarily know they worked for the outfit. And hell, when you got right down to it, I wasn't willing to feed even a monster to something like the Genosqua at Nicodemus's behest. I rubbed at my neck again and said, Nah, I got it still. Excuse me, Nicodemus said. Noisy distraction? I'll handle it. No sense showing our secret weapon early if we don't have to do it, right? Nicodemus smiled faintly. What, wizard, without your talents? I hadn't planned on using them anyway, I said. Could be someone was going to get hurt during this. The White Council takes a pretty dim view of magic used for that kind of thing, and I have to think about my future. You want loud and obvious? Not a problem. The Genosqua's voice came rumbling from the shadows. He's soft. He's smart, I said in harsh rejoinder. The harder you hit things on the way in, the harder Marcone's going to be ready to hit back on the way out. Hell, if you make a big enough stink, you'll have the cops there, too. There are only about 13,000 of those guys running around Chicago, but I'm sure the eight of us can handle them, right? The Genosqua let out a low growl. I am not afraid of them. Sure you aren't, I said. That's why you cruised all over the place, invisible the past two days, because you didn't care if you were spotted. Gentlemen, Nicodemus said, his voice raised and slightly tense. And then he paused, frowning, his head cocked partly to one side, as if trying to identify a distant sound. Asher suddenly looked up, frozen in the act of scratching her arm again, and said, Dresden, do you feel that? The itching on the back of my neck resolved itself into a full-on creepy sensation, the awareness of someone watching me. I closed my eyes and extended my other senses, reaching out with my talent to feel for magic in the air around me, and found the eavesdropping spell almost at once. Asher had already given us away with her comment, so there was no point in being cute about it. Someone's listening in on us, I breathed, coming to my feet. Where? Nicodemus spat. Asher pointed to the far end of the slaughterhouse. There, not far, just outside, I think. The sensation abruptly vanished as the spell winked out of existence, but not before I'd found the spell's focus, the thaumaturgic version of the bug that had been planted so that the eavesdropper could hear us. Binder, Nicodemus said at once. Binder had already produced a hoop of wire from his suit coat's pocket. He moved to a clear space of floor, gave it a toss with a flick of his wrist, and the wire unreeled and unfolded into a circle almost three feet across. It landed on the floor even as Binder spoke a few words and filled with amber light. Binder was a chump sorcerer, but he had one trick that he could do really, really well, summoning a small army of creatures from the never-never that he had somehow bound to his will. It took him less than two seconds to whistle up the first of his suits, humanoid figures dressed in something that resembled a badly fitted suit, their proportions and features looking almost normal until one looked at them a little more closely. The demonic servitor flung itself up out of the circle like an acrobat emerging from a trapdoor in the stage, and Binder tapped his foot down onto the circle of wire in perfect time, releasing the suit from the circle's confinement as it tumbled clear. Then he lifted his foot and dropped it down again in metronomic time as a second suit emerged from the never-never, and a third, and a fourth, and so on. Spell's gone, Asher reported. He heard us. He's running. He's heard too much, Nicodemus said, and turned to Binder. 
Can your associates track him? Like bloodhounds, Binder confirmed. Nicodemus nodded. Kill him. Binder let out a short whistle and cocked a finger in the direction Asher had indicated. The suits needed no more indication than that. They bounded off in that direction with greater-than-human agility. I jerked my head at Karen and stalked away from the table. What? she hissed. In answer, I dug into the bandages over my arm until I found the object, hidden from me until I had finally focused my attention on it, a rounded black pente stone that had been worked into the bandages when they had been reapplied. There were a number of familiar runes painted over its dark surface in metallic gold. I'd used the exact same spell design myself more than once back in the day when I'd been learning how it worked. What's that? Karen asked. The bug, I hissed quietly. The one the listener was using to hear us. It got put in the bandages over my arm when it was reset. Her eyes widened. But, yeah, I said, and watched as more of the suited servitors poured forth from the never-never to streak into the night in pursuit. It's butters. They're going to kill him. Chapter 27 Go, Karen said. I'll catch up. How are you going to find me? She gave me a quick roll of her eyes. Harry, please. Right. Karen had been a Chicago cop for twenty years. She'd find me whether I wanted her to or not. I touched her shoulder, called upon Winter, and took off at a sprint. Staff clenched in my right hand. As I ran, I could feel the power of the winter mantle infusing my body, my senses, and my thoughts. Binder's suits were hounding after the prey in a pack, moving in instinctive coordination, their leaders slowing the pace slightly until a few of the ones with a later start could catch up, the better to bring down the prey together. I caught up to the rearmost suits and passed them before I'd even exited the slaughterhouse, which sent a rush of elation through me. Slowpokes. But they were necessary. I couldn't hunt Butters down by my si- I faltered for a few steps and forced multiplication tables to start running through my head. I wasn't hunting down Butters. I was keeping them from hunting him down. And I had to figure out a way to do it without overtly turning on Nicodemus and company and shaming Mab. That particular line of reason seemed to interfere mightily with the flow of energy from the winter mantle, as if it simply didn't understand why it was going to all this trouble for so incomprehensible a goal. Butters is one of mine, I snarled at it, and we're not letting these chumps kill him unless that's what I decide should happen. Territory and power, those were things that winter could sink its teeth into. I regained my stride as we exploded from the exit of the slaughterhouse and into the near-silent mix of sleet, rain, and frozen slippery cold that was a Midwest ice storm. The ground outside the slaughterhouse was already freezing over, not in a uniform sheet, but in treacherous patches of various consistencies of nearly transparent slush, invisible ice, and wet concrete, with very few visible cues to differentiate between them. The streetlights gleamed off of all of them with benevolent cheer, and the suits started slipping at random, further slowing them. I adjusted my pace only enough to be sure of putting my feet on the least slippery option available at every stride, trusting the instincts of the mantle to guide me. Butters was sprinting across the small gravel parking lot, maybe seventy yards ahead of his pursuers. I could recognize his build and his shock of dark hair from where I was, 
though he was wearing a long, billowing overcoat and a rather bulgy-looking backpack and moving more slowly than he should have been. In the lowering skies, the mixed rain and lumpy snow, the sound seemed muffled and close, as if everything was happening indoors. I could hear Butters's quick, clean breaths, his pants of effort as he slowed, nearing the street. I hoped he was about to throw himself into a getaway car. Instead, he fumbled at his backpack and spun in a comical circle, trying to pull something off of it. As he whirled beneath the yellow cone of illumination cast by a streetlight, I saw him take a wide-looking skateboard off where it had been fastened to the pack and slam it to the concrete. You've got to be kidding me, I muttered. A freaking skateboard? The suits saw it and surged ahead. I'd seen them move before, and they could pounce like mountain lions. They'd be within a long leap of him in seconds. Butters threw a glance over his shoulder, his face pale, his eyes huge behind his glasses, and stepped hard onto the skateboard, setting it into motion. He fumbled with a short strap on the front of the board, crouching and taking hold of it with the same intensity as a water skier about to be launched into motion. Go! 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 He screamed. And then a small inferno of orange sparks erupted from the wheels of the skateboard, and the damn thing took off down the empty street at the speed of a motorcycle. I felt my jaw drop open for a second, and then a bubbling chuckle rolled up out of my chest. Butters, it seemed, had been using more of my old artifice spells, doubtless learned from Bob the Skull. That particular one looked an awful lot like the one I'd put together in my one ill-advised attempt to create a wizardly classic, a flying broomstick. The experiment had damn near killed me and scared me enough that I abandoned its use until I had a better understanding of the aerodynamics involved, but I'd never even considered applying it to something that wouldn't necessarily flip me upside down while in motion and carry me into buildings at suicidal speeds. Why had I never applied the same magic to a freaking bicycle? Or to a skateboard? Butters didn't have the kind of power it took to be even a serious sorcerer, but the little guy had knocked together a number of useful magical tools over the past couple of years, also with Bob's help, and it looked like those exercises had developed into a real gift for creating magical artifices. But how the hell was he powering the damn things? Wizardly tools like that were like toys that needed batteries to work. But Butters didn't have the strength to power any but the simplest toys. So what was he using as a battery? Oh. Oh, no. The suits let out howls of excitement and began lengthening their strides. They weren't done, not by a long shot, and they started curling the path of their pursuit, bounding over the fence surrounding the property, leaping over the landscaping of nearby buildings. I went with them, leaping the same fences. One of the suits slipped and hit the chain link at better than thirty miles an hour, with moderately gruesome results. Another suit might have accidentally caught the end of my quarterstaff in the teeth as we both leapt a six-foot hedge and wound up slamming into the side of an office building at the same pace. But it was pretty dark, what with the rain and sleet and snow and all, and I just wasn't entirely sure what happened. <laughs> By the time we hit the next cross street, I saw Butters fling out an arm. There was another glint of orange sparks, this time in a long line, and I saw some kind of dark fiber whip out from his hand and wrap around a streetlight's pole. 
He leaned into it with a high-pitched, half-panicked whoop of excitement and used the line to carry the racing skateboard through a tight 90-degree turn without slowing down. There was another sparkle of orange campfire sparks along the length of the line, and the thing evidently let go of the pole as it kept sailing down the street, heading north. Suits were letting out hunting cries at regular intervals by now, and running unimpeded on streets that were still warm enough from the day's light to resist the ice. I knew that Binder could probably have forty or fifty of the damn things on the street by now, and that they were smart enough to communicate and work cooperatively. I had to hope that Butters would have the good sense to continue heading in one direction. Every turn in the chase would give his more numerous pursuers a chance to maneuver, closing in around him like hounds around a panicked rabbit. He kept fleeing down the street, but the smooth surface that let him use his, and I can't believe I'm going to use this phrase, enchanted skateboard also gave an advantage to his pursuers. The street was still warm enough from the sunlight of the day, and the passage of early evening traffic meant that the falling precipitation had been given less time to settle, and consequently ice had not yet begun to clog it. The suits and I began to close the distance, and I couldn't act to discourage them in the excellent lighting without risking observation. Then came what I had feared might happen— a pair of suits, maybe, a little leaner and faster than their companions, vectored in on the chase from a side street, using the cries of their companions to coordinate their attack. They bounded forward in a rush, and it was only because Butters had his left leg forward, and so was facing them as they came, that he saw them close on him. I'll give the little guy credit. He didn't panic. Instead, he dropped his free hand into his coat, seized something, and smashed it to the street in his wake, shouting a word as he did. There was a flash of light on some kind of glass globe, and then it shattered on the concrete, expanding into a cloud of thick gray mist just in front of his pursuers. The two suits hit the mist, unable to avoid it in their surge of closing speed, and plunged into it and out the other side, where their steps abruptly slowed, and the pair of them stumbled to a halt, looking around them blearily as Butters and his orange-sparking skateboard whooshed on down the street. As the rest of the pack passed the spot, the suits dodged around the cloud of gray mist, and the two who had stopped gave their packmates a startled, confused look, and then took off in belated pursuit again, obviously straining to catch up. That was when I realized what I'd just seen, and I went by the cloud of mist, cackling madly. Mind fog. Better than ten years ago, a foe had used the enchanted mist to blanket an entire Walmart store, rendering the memory of everyone inside it temporarily non-functional and effectively blurring the previous hour or so of experience beyond recall. Bob and I had worked out the specifics of how the spell must have operated in the aftermath of the case. Obviously, Butters and Bob had, between them, figured out how to can the stuff. Butters rocketed on down the street, dodging around a couple of slow-moving cars, used his light-pole lariat again twice in quick succession, and careened onto Michigan Avenue, heading into the heart of downtown, where the towers and lights of Chicago burn brightest in the freezing haze. That gave even the demonic suits pause. Cities aren't just streets and buildings. They are collectives of sheer will of the determination of every person who helped build them and every soul whose work and life maintains them. 
To something from the never-never, a place like downtown Chicago is an alien citadel, a source of power and terror. Mordor, basically. One does not simply walk into Mordor, except that's exactly what everyone in the story did anyway. Similarly, Binder's goons were not sufficiently impressed with the loop to let it stop them from pursuing Butters. They put on a surge of speed and gained on him, and for a moment it looked like they might nab him again. But he hurled a second glass globe of forget-me mist to the street and disrupted the pursuit at exactly the right moment. Butters let out a shriek of terrified defiance and shook his fist at his pursuers as several staggered in confusion, stumbling into their packmates. Then the Genosqua appeared out of nowhere on the sidewalk in front of a cafe and kicked a stone planter the size of a hot tub directly into Butters' path. Butters had maybe a whole second to react and nowhere near enough time to steer around the planter. The Genosqua had acted with calm, precise timing. Butters did the only thing he could do. He let go of the skateboard strap and leapt into the air. He wasn't wearing padding, and he didn't have a helmet. That dopey little skateboard had been moving at thirty miles an hour, and all that waited to receive him was cold asphalt. If he'd been in a car with an airbag, I'm sure he'd have been fine, but he wasn't. I ground my teeth and prepared a spherical shield to catch him with. But while that would protect him from the fall, it would also mean that he could be briefly held inside it until his momentum was spent. Without the skateboard, the suits, or the genosqua would catch him in a few heartbeats, and I would be forced to fight to defend him, bringing my mission to an unfortunate conclusion. So be it. You don't leave friends, even friends twisted up with mistrust, to the monsters. But instead of falling onto the street and splattering, or into my shield and getting us both subsequently killed, Butters' two-billowy overcoat flared with orange sparks and spread out into a giant cupped wing shape. He windmilled his arms and legs with a high-pitched, creaking shout and then tucked himself into a ball while the orange light seemed to gather the coat into a resilient sphere around him, one that bounced once when it hit the street and then rolled several times, dumping him onto the street more or less on his feet. The little guy darted straight away from the Genosqua, for which I did not blame him, up the steps of the nearest building, as it happened the Art Institute of Chicago. The nearest of the suits leapt at his unprotected back. I flung my staff forward with a howl of, Forzare! and smashed the suit with invisible power in midair, flinging him just over Butters' shoulder as he leapt. Damn it! I howled with as much sincerity as I could muster, which wasn't much. Clear my line of fire! Butters shot an aghast look over his shoulder at me and stumbled away, fetching up against the northernmost of the two lion statues outside the Art Institute. He darted a look at the statue, licked his lips, and hissed something beneath his breath. Orange light flooded out of the inner folds of his coat and promptly seeped into the bronze of the statue, confirming how he was managing all of these tricks. Bob. Bob the Skull was running around loose like some kind of bloody superhero sidekick. Bob had been the one powering the skateboard. Bob had guided the ropes that had flown from Butters' wrist. 
Bob had manipulated Butters' coat to bring him into a safe landing. Damn, Bob was kind of awesome. It only stood to reason. Though Bob was a spirit, he had always been able to manipulate physical objects. And if he had mostly only done so with fairly small, fairly light things in the past, like romance novels or his own skull, there was no reason that I knew that he might not have tried something larger. I'd always assumed he simply lacked the motivation. But I'd rarely removed Bob from my lab for a reason. To be exercising that kind of control over the spirit, Butters had to be in possession of Bob's skull, like right now. He was actually carrying the skull around, probably in that backpack, and that meant that Bob's allegiance was as fragile as Butters' ability to remain in physical possession of the skull itself. If someone like Nicodemus got hold of the skull, with Bob's centuries of experience and knowledge, I shuddered to think what my old friend might be used to accomplish. Of course, that concern abruptly dwindled to a secondary issue, as I realized what Butters had commanded the spirit to do. Orange firelight sparks suddenly erupted from the eyes of the enormous bronze lion. Then, moving exactly as if it had been a living beast, the thing turned its head toward me, crouched, and let out an enormous and authentically leonine roar. Oh, crap, I said. Hold them off! Butters shouted. The lion roared again. Damn it, Butters, I snarled under my breath. I'm helping. And then several tons of living bronze predator, guided by the intelligence and will of the most powerful spirit of intellect I had ever encountered, flung itself directly at my head. Chapter 28 It had been a good long while since I'd had a freaking lion coming at me, and at the time it had been one of the genuine flesh and blood variety from the zoo. I'd never had something made entirely of metal try to kill me before, unless you counted the instruments of the occasional would-be vehicular homicide that came my way, and never both at the same time, so actually that made this a first. And that's important in a job. Fresh challenges, what would I do without them? Without the winter mantle on my side, I think Bob might have taken my head off of my shoulders. But instead, I ducked, fast enough and low enough to avoid the enormous paw that flashed toward me in anticipation of the move, and Bob flew over me, crashing into a pair of binder suits with juggernaut enthusiasm. They went flying like nine pins, and the bronze lion whirled toward me far too fast for something so massive, and crouched to leap at me again. And one of the lion's golden-orange glowing eyes, the one away from the street, shivered down in the barest little wink imaginable. Bob got it. My former lab assistant thundered, Die, traitor! And then roared again. Watch out! He's loose! I screamed to a nearby suit, reeling back toward him and fighting to keep the sudden grin off my face. He'll tear us all apart! Rah! Bob screamed and came rushing at me again. I flung myself to one side at the last second when the suit wouldn't see Bob coming until it was too late. The bronze lion smashed into the suit, sending it tumbling in a whirl of broken limbs to smash into the side of the art institute. 
It exploded into gelatinous clear goo, its physical vessel simply too mangled to enable the spirit Binder had summoned to continue animating it, and the lion let out a roar of triumph and turned toward the next nearest suits. I'll get him! I shouted. I pointed my staff at Bob and snarled, Fuego! A blast of pure fire erupted from the staff, missed the rampaging lion statue by inches, and took a pair of suits full on, setting them ablaze and causing them to issue weird howls of frustration and rage as it began to consume their physical forms. Furious, the burning suits flung themselves at Bob, and the hunting pack mentality of the demons prompted the others to leap at the rampaging statue as well. Bob roared, his eyelights blazing merrily, and started batting them around like Mister, playing with multiple catnip lures on a string. I hopped back from the immediate vicinity of the havoc and looked around wildly for Butters. I checked his last direction but saw nothing, except an empty plastic sports drink bottle rolling slowly down the sidewalk, pushed by the mild wind coming in from the north exactly like the kind I'd used to store a potion in when I made one. Butters was in the wind. Hell, maybe literally. It had been a long time since I'd brewed that escape potion that had saved me from a toad demon, but if I'd had a twenty, I'd have betted against a piece of bubblegum that Butters had duplicated my old formula and used it to pull a quick vanishing act in the confusion. Because confusion there was. The explosions and roaring and noise had done exactly what I'd hoped they would and attracted attention. Though the muffling effect of the weather had dulled the sounds, and though it was well after business hours, that didn't mean that the area around us was wholly empty of life. Lights had begun to flick on, faces had begun to appear at windows in nearby buildings. One of the cardinal points of common sense in the supernatural world is that you don't get yourself involved with mortal authorities. The average individual mortal, or twenty, might not be a match for a real supernatural predator. I'm pretty sure the serious bad guys, like the hulking, hairy one standing in the shadows across the street from the Art Institute, could take on a riot's worth of mortals without hesitation and expect victory. But in a city like Chicago, starting a rumble with humanity wouldn't mean fighting a score of mortals or a couple of hundred. It would mean thousands, and more important, it would mean tangling with those who had the training and equipment to be a genuine threat. People had actually begun to appear on the street from inside the cafe and a nearby sandwich shop. Cell phones were coming out and Chicago PD had maybe half a dozen stations within a mile of where I stood. What are you waiting for? I shouted toward the Genosqua and pointed at the animated statue. Lend a hand, big guy! The Genosqua glowered at me for a second, and then at the rampaging Bob. There was a flash of ugly yellow tusks, a glitter of malicious and angry eyes, and then the creature faded from sight, turning as it vanished and starting up the street in the direction Butters had last been going. Worse, there was a sound of rushing wind overhead, and something dark and swift passed between me and some of the higher lights in the area, sending a multitude of wavering, flickering shadows across the street. I squinted up into the rain and mist and saw nothing but a large winged form moving fast in the same direction. Well, crap. 
Nicodemus and Anduriel had taken to the air. I had no doubt that the Genosqua could track butters as well as any hound, and that escape potion, if that's what he used, would only transport him a relatively short distance, maybe a couple of blocks. It would be only a matter of time before Nicodemus spotted Butters or the Genosqua picked up his trail, and he no longer had Bob to propel his skateboard or cover his back. I ground my teeth, and Bob sent another one of Binder's suits flying past me. I ducked absently. My instincts told me to get moving again as quickly as possible. I told him to shut the hell up. I could go sprinting off in some direction, but that was unlikely to result in accomplishing anything. I took a moment to lever the winter mantle away from my thoughts and found them clearer. The winter night was not needed here. I ran down the street to the discarded sports bottle and snagged it. Just as I did, one of those mini SUVs sliced through the slush in the middle of the avenue, sliding only slightly to one side as it braked, and Karen stuck her head out the window. Get in! I ran for the vehicle as Karen stared in fascination at the sight of more than a dozen suits swarming over the lion, struggling to overturn it, and the huge thing twisting and spinning like a dervish trying to keep them off, orange eyelights blazing. Huh, Karen said. That's new. I slammed the door shut and said, It's Bob. Butters let him off the chain. Is that good? she asked. I stuffed my staff mostly into the back and fumbled with the bottle. It's exciting anyway. Butters gave them the slip, but Nicodemus and the Genosqua are on his trail. Is our cover blown? Not yet, I said. We're still bad guys. At least enough to satisfy Mab. You know how confusing fights can be. Ha, Karen said. What's the plan? Find Butters. Get me to somewhere I can step out of the rain and give me a second to get a tracking spell running. No need, she said, and started driving. I know where he's going. I blinked. Where? You're Butters. You know basically everything that's been going on in Chicago for the past dozen years. You've got a bunch of demons and supernatural bad guys, including the Knights of the Black and Denarius, after you, she said. Where would you go? I frowned, thinking. She was right about that. If Butters had been working that closely with Bob, he'd know pretty much anything the Skull did, and he'd recognize Deirdre and Nicodemus by name. Hell, he must have, which probably explained his mistrust. I'd declined to tell him anything about what I'd gotten Karen into, and he'd listened in on me, spending a day with a bunch of supercriminals and sitting down at a table with Nicodemus Arc Leone. And where in this city would be the best place to go if one wanted protection from fallen angels? Hell's bells, I breathed. He's going to Michael's. Yeah, Karen said, real anger in her voice. Damn it, he knows better. I blinked several times and then felt my jaw drop as a flash of intuition hit me. The swords are there, aren't they? And Butters knows it. Her jaw tensed. She eyed me and gave me a single short nod. I wanted one other person to know, in case something happened to me. My place isn't secure enough, even with what the Paranetters can do, and I'm sure as hell not going to trust those things to Marcone's people. Anything bad that tries to get into Michael's place has got a world of hurt coming down. It was the best I could think of. If they catch Butters before he gets there, I said, he's dead. If you're wrong about where he's going, he's dead. 
And if we stop for a couple of minutes for you to get your mojo together, we might get there too late to do anything, she said and bit her lip. She was coaxing as much speed from the little truck as she could in this weather, its all-wheel drive churning steadily. What do you think we should do? This was my fault. If I'd brought Butters in, at least far enough to understand what was going on, he wouldn't have gone poking around himself. But damn it, how could I have done it without... Ah, I hated this cards-close-to-the-chest thing. I suck at cards. I'm more of a monopoly sort of guy. I hadn't talked to Michael in years, I said. The first day I do, I set off a chain of events that has some heavyweight monsterage heading right for his house. Yeah, Karen said. I noticed that. Maybe it isn't a coincidence, I said. She arched one pale brow. Faith, Harry? You? Oh, blow me, I said, scowling. Drive. She bared her teeth in a fierce smile and said, Buckle up. I did, as the fine, freezing rain began to turn to heavy sleet. Chapter 29 We were two blocks from Michael's place, back in the residential neighborhoods, when a cab all but teleported out of the sleet, moving too fast. It rolled through a stop sign and forced Karen to slam on the brakes and swerve to avoid a collision. The little SUV did its best, but it slid on the sleet-slickened street, bounced over the curb through a wooden privacy fence, and wound up with its front wheels in someone's emptied pool. Karen slapped the vehicle into reverse and tried to pull out, but the rear tire spun uselessly on the ice. Damn it, she snarled. Go! I'm right behind you! I grabbed my staff and leapt out into the sleet without hesitating, wrapping myself in winter as I went running through the storm and into the hazy pseudo-darkness. I went straight for Michael's place, sprinting down a sidewalk briefly, and then cutting through yards, bounding over fences and parked cars, parkour, as I went. I got to the carpenter's home just as the cab that had caused our wreck slid to a gradual stop a few houses past Michael's. Butters popped out of the back and threw several wadded bills at the driver, then put his head down and sprinted toward Michael's house. He looked pale and shaky. I sympathized. That potion had left me feeling like I'd just ridden a couple of dozen roller coasters all at once with a bad hangover. He hadn't run five steps before one of his feet went out from under him on the frozen, slippery sidewalk, and he went down hard. I heard his head wrap the concrete, and then felt a sympathetic pang at the explosion of air from his lungs as the fall knocked the wind out of him. I didn't slow down until I was close to Butters, sweeping my gaze around the neighborhood and finding it quiet and still. Jesus, Butters blurted out as I got close. He flinched away from me, raising one hand as if to ward off a blow, reaching for something inside his coat with the other. Hell's bells, Butters, I said on a note of complaint. If I was going to hurt you, I'd have blasted you from way the hell over there. You tried, he wheezed, hand still poised inside his coat. Stay back. I mean it. Hell's bells, you are smarter than this, I sighed and offered him my hand. Come on, they're bound to be right behind you. You can't stay out here. Let me help you up. He stared up at me for a second, clearly a little dazed from the fall, and just as obviously terrified. I made an impatient clucking sound and stepped forward. Butters fumbled what looked like a glass Christmas ornament from his coat's inner pocket and flicked it at me weakly. Winter was still upon me. I bent my knees a little and caught it on the fly, careful not to break it.
Whoa, I said. Easy there, killer. I'd rather not have us both forget why we're standing out here in the sleet. He stared up at me, struggling to draw a steady breath. Harry? Easy, I said. Here, I passed the ornament back to him. He blinked at me. Come on, I said. I bent down, got a hand under his arm, and more or less hauled the little guy to his feet. He slipped again at once and would have fallen if I hadn't held him up. I steadied him, guiding his steps off the treacherous concrete and onto the grass in front of one of the houses. There, easy. Come on, let's get you out of the cold at least. He groaned and said, Oh, God, Harry, you're not... you haven't... We stumbled a few more steps, and then he said, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry. Don't be sorry, I said, looking around us warily. Be inside. How bad have I screwed things up? He asked. We move fast enough, nothing that can't be fixed, I said. Impatient, I ducked down enough to get a shoulder beneath his arm and more or less lifted him up, dragging him along with his feet barely touching the ground toward the carpenter's yard. Twenty yards. Ten. Five. The wind rushed. Something shaped like black sails billowed in the sleet. And then Swirling Shadow receded, and Nicodemus Arcleone stood between us and safety, a slender bladed sword held in his right hand, blade parallel with his leg. He faced me with a small smile. Behind him, his shadow stretched out for twenty yards in every direction, writhing in slow waves. I drew up short. Butters' leg swung back and forth. I took a step back and looked over my shoulder. The Janosqua blurred into vision through the thick sleet, maybe twenty feet back, staying in the shadows of a large pine tree, his enormous shaggy form blending into its darkness. I could see the gleam of his eyes, though. Ah, Dresden, Nicodemus purred. You caught him, and in the nick of time. I set Butters down warily and kept him close to my side. The little guy didn't move or speak, though I could feel him shuddering with sudden, intelligent terror. The little doctor, Nicodemus said. Quite a resourceful rabbit, is he not? He's quick, I said, and not much of a threat. There's no reason not to let him go. Don't be absurd, Nicodemus said. He's heard entirely too much, and my files on him say that he's been associated with Marcone's Chicago Alliance. Only an idiot wouldn't recognize a potentially lethal security leak. He tilted his head to one side. He dies. The Janoskor let out a hungry, rumbling growl. Butters stiffened. He did not look behind him. I didn't blame him. I didn't want to look back there either. Nicodemus was enjoying this. It seems, Dresden, he said, that it is time for you to make a choice. Shall I make it easier for you? What do you have in mind? I asked. Practicality, Nicodemus said. Give him to me. I will take him from here. It will be quick and merciful. His eyes shifted to Butters. It's nothing personal, young man. You became involved in something larger than you. That is the price you pay. But I've no grudge with you. You will simply stop. Butters made a quiet, terrified sound. Or, Nicodemus said, you can breach Mab's given word, wizard, he smiled. In which case, well, I have no need of you.
Without me, I said, you'll never get through the second gate. Once I kill you, Nicodemus said, I'm quite certain Mab will loan me her next night or another servant as readily as she did you, if it means a chance to make good on her word. Choose. I'm thinking about it, I said. Nicodemus opened one hand, a gracious gesture, inviting me to take my time. Giving him butters wasn't on the table, period. But fighting him did not seem like a good idea either. With Nicodemus on one side and the Genosqua on the other, I did not like my chances at all. Even with the Winter Knight's mantle, I didn't know if I could have beaten either of these guys, let alone both of them at once. If I gave him butters, I might live. If I didn't, both of us were going to die, right here next door to Michael's house. I was out of options. You take the guy behind us, I muttered to Butters. The little guy swallowed and jerked his head in a tiny nod, gripping his Christmas ornament carefully. Nicodemus nodded, his dark eyes glittering. The point of the slender sword swept up, lithe as a snake's flickering tongue, and a shadow began to dance and waver in sudden agitation. The Genosqua let out another rumbling growl and stepped forward. I gripped my staff, and Butters' tremors abruptly stilled into an electrified tension. And then Karen stepped out of the sleet with her rocket launcher, prepped and resting on her shoulder, aimed directly at Nicodemus. Hi, she said. I really don't like you very much, Denarian. Ha, I said to Nicodemus. <laughs> His eyes slid from me to Karen and back. His smile widened. Ms. Murphy, he said, you won't shoot. Why not? Karen asked brightly. Because it is obvious to me that you love him, Nicodemus said. That weapon will kill the wizard, as well as your friend the doctor, if you fire it. At that range, I'm not at all certain that you would survive the blast either. Karen seemed to regard that offering thoughtfully. Then she said, You're right, and took several steps closer. There. That should just about do it, don't you think? Nicodemus narrowed his eyes. You wouldn't. Karen spoke in a very low, very calm voice. People do crazy things for love. I'd rather kill us all and take you with us than let you harm him. Her voice became a bit sharper, and she took another pair of quick strides nearer Nicodemus. Take one step closer, tall, dark, and furry, and I blow us all to hell right now. I checked over my shoulder to see the Genosqua pause in the act of slipping a little closer. Its cavern eyes glittered in silent rage. Karen took a couple of slow steps toward Nicodemus, her eyes strangely bright. Crazy, crazy things. Don't push me. Nicodemus's smile turned into a smirk. You proceed from a false assumption, he said. You assume that your toy can actually threaten me or my companion. Guy had a point, even if I didn't want to admit it. With that noose around his neck, I was pretty sure Nicodemus would smirk just as hard at a flamethrower or a giant meat grinder, for that matter. Actually, you're the one proceeding from a false assumption, Karen countered in that same deathly calm voice, a decidedly odd light in her eyes, still approaching. You think I'm holding a rocket launcher. 
And with that, she knocked some kind of concealed cap off the back of the rocket launcher's tube, and from its length withdrew a sword. Check that. She withdrew a sword. It was a Japanese-style katana blade set into a wooden cane sheath, in the same style as that of the apocryphal Zatoichi. Even as the false rocket launcher casing fell to the ground, the sword's blade sprang free of its sheath, and as it did, Fidelakius, the sword of faith, blazed with furious white light. But more important, the presence of the sword suddenly filled the night, a nearly sub-audible thrumming, like the after-vibration of a bass guitar string. It wasn't something that could be heard precisely, or seen, or felt on the skin, but its presence was absolute, unquestionable, filling the sleet-streaked air. It was power, bone-deep, earth-solid, and terrible in its resolution. I think it was that power that wiped the smirk from Nicodemus's face. His eyes widened in dismay, even his shadow abruptly went statue-still. Karen's bid to narrow the distance between them as she had been speaking meant that she was only a few strides away. She closed in, her feet sure, barely seeming to touch the icy ground, and he barely lifted his blade to a defensive counter in time. The swords met in a clash of steel and a blaze of furious light, and she carried her momentum into him with a full body check against his center of gravity. Watch the big guy, I hissed to Butters and took a step toward Nicodemus and Karen, then froze in place. Nicodemus slipped on the treacherous ground as Karen slammed into him, but he swept a leg back, dropped one knee to the ground, and prevented himself from falling. She pressed her advantage, their swords locked, each blade exerting lethal pressure against the other. I didn't dare intervene. The least slip or mistake in balance from either of them would mean that the two razor-sharp blades would slice like scalpels into unprotected flesh. I watched them strain silently against each other, strength against strength. Karen wasn't relying on upper body strength to get it done. Her arms were locked in tight against her body, her weight and her legs pressing forward against Nicodemus and her two-handed grip on Fidilakius gave her a significant leverage advantage against his one-handed grip. The edge of her sword pressed closer to his face with each straining heartbeat until a thin, bright ribbon of scarlet appeared on Nicodemus's cheek. He showed her his teeth, and the strain on his arm quivered through his entire body as he pushed the sword back a precious half-inch from his skin. So he hissed. The burnout thinks she has found her new calling. She didn't say anything back. Karen's never been a big one for back-talking the bad guys without a damn good reason. It's not her fault. She's a practical soul. She took a slow, contained breath and kept up the pressure, veering the blades, altering the direction slightly, so that the locked swords began a slow descent toward Nicodemus's throat. And you think you deserve to join the ranks of real knights of the sword, Nicodemus said, his voice smooth and confident. You battered, scarred, broken thing. In my centuries, I've learned exactly what is needed in a real knight. You haven't got what it takes, and you know that, or you'd have taken up the sword before now. 
Her eyes blazed bright blue in her pale, frightened face, and she leaned forward, pressing the sword closer to his neck and the beating artery there. I'd seen how sharp the katana's blade was. It would take a feather's pressure and the movement of a blade of grass to open Nicodemus's neck once that steel reached his skin. You've never done this before, he said. Been this close, this tense, this still. Not in earnest. Do you know how many times I've talked to novices exactly like you, in situations almost exactly like this? I've forgotten more about real sword fighting than this pale modern world knows. Karen ignored him. She shifted her hips the barest fraction, seeking a slightly different angle of pressure. The blazing sword dipped another fraction of an inch closer. Dresden, Nicodemus said, I'm giving you ample chance to call off your dog before I put her down. His eyes flicked to me. End the little doctor and come back to headquarters. There's no reason I should have to kill all three of you. I ground my teeth. Getting myself killed defending Butters was one thing. Taking Karen with me was something else. But I knew her. I knew what choice he would make without needing to talk to her about it. Karen didn't let the monsters take her people either. But there just wasn't a good option open to me. The Janosqua wasn't far from us, and the damn thing was fast. Even if Butters ran for the safety of Michael's place right now, he'd never get there before it caught him. And I couldn't slow the huge thing down with magic, either. I only had one choice. All right, I croaked. Damn it, all right. I grabbed Butters and threw him out in front of me, pointing my staff at him and calling forth my will. The runes blazed up with the pale green-white light of the crystals beneath Demon Reach, from whence the wood from the staff had come. Sorry about this, Butters, I said. Nothing personal. Nicodemus's eyes widened. Karen's gaze flicked toward me for an instant, disbelieving, and then resolute. Harry? Butters asked. Forzare! I thundered and unleashed a blast of unseen force from the staff. It took Butters full in the chest, hitting him like a charging bull and hurling him through the sleet and over the little white picket fence into the nearest corner of the carpenter's yard. Everything happened in the same instant. Nicodemus's left arm blurred and produced a short-barreled pistol from somewhere on his body. He jammed it into Karen's belly and pulled the trigger half a dozen times. I let out a scream of defiance and drew that monster revolver from my duster, even as the Janosqua came charging toward me. The winter mantle made me faster than I could ever have been on my own, but even so there was no time for anything but a hip shot. The Janosqua was maybe three feet away when the gun went off, thundering like a high-powered rifle. Then the huge creature hit me like a freight train picking me up in its onslaught like a piece of litter being towed along by the breeze, and carried me across the street and into the side of the neighbor's minivan. Metal crashed and crunched, glass broke, silver lightning ran through my body without causing me any real pain. The carnivore stench of the Janosqua filled my nose. My arms slammed against the vehicle, but I hung on to the pistol, shoved it against the creature's torso, but before I could shoot, it got hold of my wrist, its huge hands wrapping my forearm as if I'd been a toddler, and slammed it against the minivan, pinning the pistol there. 
Its other hand landed on my head, claws pressing into my skin as the thick fingers tightened on my skull like a nutcracker. Hold! I heard Nicodemus shout, his voice sharp. The Genosqua let out a low growl. It had to turn its shoulders and twist at the waist to look back at him, a simian gesture. There was just too much muscle on that huge neck to allow it the full range of motion. As a result, I was able to see past it. Karen, apparently unhurt, still stood, and she had Fidelacius pressed against Nicodemus's throat. I blinked and felt a sudden surge of ferocious pride. She'd beaten him. I may be no true knight, Karen snarled into the sudden silence, her voice tight with pain. But I'm the only one here. Tell the gorilla to let Dresden go, or I take your head off, and give the noose back to the church along with your coin. Nicodemus stared at her for a moment. Then he opened his hands slowly, and the sword and pistol both tumbled to the frozen ground. The sleet rattled down in silence. I surrender, he said quietly, his voice mocking. He tilted his head slightly toward Butters. And I relinquish my claim on the blood of the innocent. Have mercy on me, O oh knight. Tell the Genosqua to let him go, Karen said. Nicodemus held out his hand. The swarming shadows around him abruptly surged, condensed, flooded toward him. They gathered in his palm, and an instant later a small silver coin gleamed there, marked with a black smudge in the shape of some kind of sigil. Without looking away from Karen, he dropped the coin, and it fell to the icy sidewalk without bouncing, as if it had been made from something far heavier than lead. Let Dresden go, Karen said. Nicodemus smiled, still, his eyes and hands steady. He reached up and undid the noose tied about his throat and let it fall to the ground beside the coin. Karen bared her teeth. Let him go. I'm not going to ask again. Nicodemus smiled and smiled and said, Crush his skull. Make it hurt. The Junasqua turned back toward me, his eyes blazing from back beneath his cavernous brow, and his fingers tightened on my skull. I dropped my staff and tried to reach up to pry his hand off my head, but quickly realized that I was hilariously outclassed in the physical strength department. If I strained with my entire body, I might have a chance against one of the Janosqua's fingers. I tried that. The vice tightened. My breathing turned harsh as red cracks began to spread through the silvery sensation. But I've surrendered, Nicodemus assured Karen. It's very clear what you must do. His smile had returned, and his voice dripped contempt. Save me, O oh knight. You son of a bitch, Karen snarled. Her breath had begun to come in gulps. You son of a bitch! Pain finally began to hammer through the mantle of winter. I heard myself make an animal sound as the Janosqua's grip tightened. His breathing was getting faster and harsher, too. He was enjoying this. My groan shook Karen, visibly, her body reacting to the sound. I saw it coming, what Nicodemus was doing. 
I tried to warn her, but as I began to speak, the Junoskwa wrapped my head back against the minivan, and nothing came out. Save me, Nicodemus said again, and watch him die. Damn you! Karen snarled. Her hips and shoulders twisted to deliver the lethal slash. The light of the blade died away as abruptly as that of an unplugged lamp. The thrum of power that resonated through the very air vanished. Nicodemus rolled, moving like a snake, anticipating her perfectly and flowing away from the sword with a sinuous motion of spine and shoulder. Karen was thrown slightly off balance by the lack of resistance, and his hands swept up and seized her wrists. The pair of them struggled for a second, and then Fidelachius swept up high over Karen's head. Her expression whitened in horror as she saw the sword, now gleaming with nothing more than ordinary light. Then, guided by Nicodemus's hands, the ancient sword came smashing down onto the concrete of the sidewalk, the flat of the blade striking the frozen stone. It shattered with a rising shriek of protesting metal, shards flickering in the streetlights. Pieces of the blade went spinning in every direction, sparkling reflected light through the darkness. Karen stared at it with unbelieving eyes. Ah... Nicodemus said. The wordless sigh was a slow, deep expression of utter satisfaction. Awful silence fell. The sword of faith was no more. Chapter 30 Sleet rattled down. A dog howled somewhere a few blocks away, a lost and lonely sound. Karen's breath exploded from her in a sob, her blue eyes wide and fixed on the shattered pieces of the blade. Judge not, lest ye be judged, Miss Murphy, Nicodemus purred, and then he slammed his head into hers. She reeled back from the blow and was brought up short by Nicodemus's grip on her arm. It is not the place of a knight to decide whether or not to take the life given to another, Nicodemus continued. Before she could recover, he struck her savagely, the heel of his hand cracking into her jaw with an audible crunching sound. Not your place to condemn or consign. Karen seemed to gather herself together. She flicked a quick blow at Nicodemus's face, forcing him to duck and then their hands engaged in a complex and swift-moving series of motions that ended with Karen's left arm held out straight while she was forced down to her knees on the freezing sidewalk. I'd never seen her lose when it came to grappling for a lock. Never. I'm not sure what would have happened if you'd simply struck without that condemnation, Nicodemus continued. But it would seem that in the moment of truth, your intent was not pure. He twisted his shoulders in a sudden, sharp motion. Karen screamed briefly, breathlessly. I struggled against the Janosqua's crushing grip. I might as well have been a puppy for all the effect my best efforts had on the thing. I gathered my will and flung a half-formed working of power against him, but again the energy grounded itself harmlessly into the earth as it struck him. I could do nothing. Nicodemus twisted Karen, tilted his head to one side, and then drove his heel against her knee with crushing strength. 
I heard bones and tendons parting at the blow. Karen choked out another sound of pain and crumpled to the ground, broken. I was afraid for a time that you actually would leave the sword out of it, Nicodemus said. He bent and recovered the noose calmly, fastening it around his neck as casually as a businessman putting on his tie. Survivors of Chichen Itza, and there were more than a few, in part thanks to your efforts, describe your contribution to that conflict as impressive. You were obviously ready and in the right that night, but you were never meant for more. Most Knights of the Cross serve for less than three days. Did you know that? They aren't always killed. They simply fulfill their purpose and go their way. He leaned down closer to her and said, You should have had the grace to do the same. What drove you to take up the sword when you knew you weren't worthy to bear it? Was it pride? Karen shot him a fierce glare through eyes hazed with pain and tears, and then looked over at me. He straightened, arching an eyebrow. Ah, of course, he said, his tone dry, yet somehow filled with venomous undertones. Love. Nicodemus shook his head and picked up his sword with one hand and the coin with the other. Love will be the downfall of God himself. Karen snarled weakly and flung the broken hilt of Fidelacius at Nicodemus's head. He snapped his sword up, flicking it contemptuously away from him. The wooden handle landed in the carpenter's yard. Nicodemus stepped closer to Karen, dropping the point of his sword again, aiming it at her. As he did, blackness slithered down his body again, onto the ground, his shadow spreading out around him like a stain of oil over pure water. Karen fumbled backward, away from him, but she could barely move with only one arm and one leg functioning. The wet sleet plastered her hair to her head, made her ears stick out, made her look smaller and younger. I kicked at the genosqua through the red haze over my vision. With winter upon me, I can kick cinder blocks to gravel without thinking twice. It was useless. He was all mass and muscle and rock-hard hide. Face it, Miss Murphy, Nicodemus said, keeping pace with her. His shadow swarmed all over the ground around her, surrounding her. Your heart, the tip of his sword dipped toward it by way of illustration, simply wasn't in the right place. He paused there long enough to give her time to see the sword thrust coming. She faced him, her eyes fierce and frightened, her face pale with pain. And the front door of the carpenter's house opened. Nicodemus's dark eyes flickered up at once and stayed focused on the front porch. Michael stood in the doorway to the house for a brief moment, leaning on his cane, surveying the scene. Then he limped down the steps and out onto the walk leading from the front porch to the mailbox. He moved carefully and steadily in the sleet, right up to the gate in the white picket fence. He stopped there, maybe three feet from Nicodemus, regarding him steadily. Sleet struck and melted into rain on his flannel shirt. Let them go, Michael said quietly. Nicodemus's mouth turned up at one corner. His dark eyes shone with a dangerous light. 
You have no power here, Carpenter. Not any longer. I know, Michael said. But you're going to let them go. And why should I do that? Because if you do, Michael said, I'll walk out this gate. Even where I was, I could almost see the blaze of hatred that flared out of Nicodemus's eyes. His shadow went insane, flickering from side to side, surging up the white picket fence like an incoming tide chewing at a stone cliff. Freely, Nicodemus demanded, of your own choice and will. A critical point. If Michael willingly divested himself of angelic protection, there would be nothing his bodyguards could do. Angels have terrible power, but not over free will. Michael would be helpless, just like Shiro had been helpless. Michael, I grated. I was under some pressure. I sprayed a lot more spittle than I thought I would. Don't do it! Michael gave me a small smile and said chidingly, Harry. There's no point, Karen gasped, her voice thin and breathless. In you dying too? He'll just come after us again later. You'd both do the same for me, Michael said, and looked up at Nicodemus with that same quiet smile. And then the sleet just stopped. I don't mean it stopped sleeting. I mean that the sleet stopped moving. The half-frozen droplets hung in the air, suspended like millions of tiny jewels. The slight wind vanished. The howling dog's voice cut off as abruptly as if someone had flipped a switch. At the same time, a man appeared outside the little gate. He was tall and lean with youth, broad-shouldered like a professional swimmer. His features were porcelain fine. His hair was glossy black and curling, his skin a rich and dark caramel color, and his eyes glittered silver green. There was no fanfare about his appearance. One moment nothing was there, and the next moment he was. His presence was as absolute as it was abrupt, as if the light of the street somehow picked him out more clearly, more sharply than anyone else there. Even if the abrupt cessation of movement in the physical world hadn't been enough to tip me off, I could feel the power in him, radiating from him like light from a star. He'd appeared to me in many different forms, but there was no possibility of mistaking his presence, his identity. Mr. Sunshine, the Archangel Uriel. His gaze was focused exclusively on Michael, and his expression was anguished. You need not do this, he said, his voice low, urgent. You have given enough, and more than enough already. Uriel, Michael said, nodding his head deeply. I know. The angel held up his hand. If you do this, I can take no action to protect you, he said and this creature will be free to inflict upon you such pain as even you could not imagine. A sudden sunny smile lit Michael's face. My friend, Uriel blinked and rocked slightly as if the words had struck him with physical force. Thank you, Michael continued, but I'm not the carpenter who set the standard. Nicodemus tapped Uriel on the shoulder. 
Excuse me. The angel turned to him slowly. His face was resolute, his eyes flat. You're standing in the way of mortal business, angel, Nicodemus said. Stand aside. Uriel's eyes flickered, and frozen lightning exploded through the clouds overhead, thunder making the standstill sleet drops quiver. You make threats? Nicodemus asked, contempt dripping from his voice like blood from a wound. Perhaps you should cut your losses. You are without power in this matter, angel, and we both know it. You can do nothing to me. And then Nicodemus lifted his left hand and deliberately, calmly, tensed his forefinger beneath his thumb and flicked it out to tap the end of the angel's nose. Uriel's eyes widened and terrible light gathered around his head and shoulders. Looking at it hurt, burned the eyes, seared my mind with sudden memories of every shameful act I'd ever chosen to do scorched me with the obvious truth of how easy it might have been to make a different choice. The light of Uriel's halo banished shadows and averted everyone's gaze. Everyone but Nicodemus. Go on, angel, Nicodemus taunted, his shadow swelling and curling in slow, restless motion. Smite me, visit your wrath upon me, judge me. Uriel stared at him. Then the angel's gaze went to the shards of Fidelachius. He closed his eyes for a moment and turned his face away from the denarian. The light of his halo flickered and died away. A tear slid down his cheek. And he stepped aside and began walking away. Dude! I said in protest. It was getting hard to see through all the red. What the hell kind of angelic protector are you? Do something! Uriel did not look back. Now, then, Nicodemus said to Michael. His sword had never ceased pointing at Karen's heart. If I release this pair, you will step through that gate? Michael nodded once. I will. You have my word. Nicodemus's eyes glittered. He looked up at the Genosqua and nodded, and suddenly I was on the ground, untouched, with the giant thing looming over me. The shaggy, hulking creature stared at Uriel with hateful eyes, but then that feral gaze flickered up to the house and around the yard, skipping from point to point and looking at something that I couldn't see. The blood rushed back and forth through my head, pounding hard, and though winter held the pain at bay, my vision pulsed darker and lighter with every heartbeat. Go on, Dresden, Nicodemus said. Take her inside. It took me a couple of tries to get to my feet, but I did it, stuffed my revolver back into my duster's pocket, and shambled over to Karen. She was in bad shape, obviously in severe pain. When I picked her up, she would have screamed if she'd had the breath. Michael opened the gate for me, and I carried her through it into the yard then put her down as carefully as I could on the grass. Uriel, meanwhile, had gone to Butters' side. He crouched down and shook him. Butters started awake and sat up, rubbing at his head. Uriel spoke to him in a low, intent voice, nodding toward the house. Butters swallowed, his eyes the size of teacups, and nodded. 
Then he got up and half ran around the house into the backyard. Uriel gave me an intent look. Time, said a voice in my head. Get me a little time. I've kept my word, Nicodemus said to Michael. Now it's your turn. The hell you have, I spat. You just ordered your goon to kill me. You've broken your contract with Mab. Nicodemus shifted his gaze to me and looked amused. That, he said. Goodness, Dresden, can you not recognize a ploy when you see one? What ploy, I demanded. I needed to put a little pressure on Miss Murphy, he said. But you were never in any actual danger. Do you honestly think it would take the Genosqua more than a few seconds to crack even a skull so thick as yours? He smiled widely, clearly enjoying himself. Why, it was no more an attempt to kill you than was your participation in the chase of the little doctor a betrayal of Mab's word that you would aid me. Damn it. Nothing like a little pro forma quid pro quo action. By Mab's reckoning, I was pretty sure Nicodemus and I had played this one out evenly. My actions in protecting Butters could be explained as bad luck and sincere incompetence. Nicodemus's attempt to kill me could be explained as a ploy to destroy the sword. His eyes narrowed. And I fully expect you to continue to fulfill your half of the bargain, Dresden, regardless of what happens over the next few hours. I ground my teeth and said, You attacked Murphy. I warned you that I could not guarantee her safety, he said in a reasonable tone. And in any case, she initiated the attack, if you recall. And she's not dead just yet. He showed me white teeth. I'd say that I'm being more than reasonable, and so would your liege. Again, he was right. By Mab's reckoning, he was indeed a reasonable man. Uriel, meanwhile, had paced over to stand at Michael's right hand. I took up station on my friend's left. The bargain was made, Nicodemus purred to Uriel. His word freely given. You cannot stop him from fulfilling it. Correct, Uriel said. But I can help him do so. Nicodemus's smile slipped. Calmly, Uriel turned to Michael. He put a hand on Michael's shoulder and gently took his cane away. Michael blinked at Uriel his arms going out for balance, his body tightening as if he expected to pitch over without the cane's support. And then he abruptly relaxed. He put some of his weight on his bad leg, and then a little more. And then he let out a little laugh and hopped on it a few times. Just then, Butters came running back around from behind the house. There was a twig with a soggy brown oak leaf still attached to it in his hair. His knees were scuffed and marked with sap, and he was carrying a slender package wrapped in canvas and duct tape, almost as long as he was tall. Butters was tearing at the package as he ran over and then offered it to Michael. Michael's eyes widened and went to Nicodemus as he stretched out his right hand without looking, without needing to look, and withdrew from the canvas package a sword, a shining length of straight steel with a cruciform hilt. As Michael's fingers closed on it, Amarakius exploded into white light, 
and for the second time in an evening, the quiet, ominous power of one of the swords filled the air. Nicodemus's eyes widened. You cheat, he snarled. I said I would come out to you, Michael said. Then he lifted a work-booted foot and kicked the white picket gate off its hinges. It struck Nicodemus across the torso, driving him back into the street, and Michael Carpenter, Knight of the Cross, strode out of the open gate onto the icy sidewalk while the archangel looked on, silver-green eyes blazing in answer to the light of the sword in Michael's hands. I'm out, Michael said. In nominee Dei, Nicodemus, I have come to face you. In the street, Nicodemus bared his teeth. I was terrified for Michael, and my heart soared. Ha <laughs> ha! I said like the bully on The Simpsons, pointing at him. Then I walked out of the gate to stand beside my friend. I pointed my finger at my quarterstaff, fallen on the ground where the genosquoi had held me, exerted my will, and called, Vintas Servitas! A burst of wind rose and flung the staff into the air. I caught it and called power into it, summoning green-white light and silvery soul fire into the channels of power that ran through its runes. Uriel smiled tightly, his eyes hard, and the sleet began to fall once more. It burst into little drops of steam when it hit the runes on my staff. Two of you, I said to Nicodemus. Two of us. What do you think, Nick? Michael faced him squarely, both hands on the hilt of Amarachius. The sword's light filled the air, and Nicodemus's shadow quailed before it. Nicodemus finally stood back. He lowered his blade and said, Dresden, I expect you back at our headquarters by 4 a.m. He turned to go. Not so fast, smart guy, I said. Nicodemus paused. If I have to play by these stupid rules, so do you. I still get someone to watch my back during this job. Miss Murphy is more than welcome to do so. You put her out of commission, I said. You didn't have to do that. You'd already beaten her. Then choose another, Nicodemus snapped. I put a hand on Michael's shoulder and said, I already have, and you're going to put up with it or I'll consider it a release of obligation, and so will Mab. Nicodemus simply stood, soaked by the sleet and unmoved by the cold. He stared at me in chilly silence for several seconds, then he said, So be it. Shadows gathered around him and vanished up into the stormy night, taking him with them. I looked left and right and realized that the Genosqua was already gone. Michael was looking at me very oddly as he lowered the sword. What? I asked him. Charity, he predicted, is not going to be pleased. Chapter 31 Once Nick and Big Shaggy were gone, I hurried to Karen. She was on her back, shuddering, her eyes focused on nothing. I turned to Uriel, pointed a finger at Karen, and said, Fix her. Uriel grimaced. I cannot. After a moment, he added, I'm sorry. I'm badly disappointed in you, Mr. Sunshine, I said. Butters? Yeah, yeah, Butters said, already on his way to Karen. 
Jesus, he said after a moment. Come on. We have to get her out of the cold and wet. Like right now. She could be going into shock. I've got a fire going, Michael said. We'll pull the couch up next to it. I stripped out of my coat and put it on the ground next to her. We lifted her onto it. Hey, Mr. Sunshine, I said, maybe a little more harshly than I could have. Some cosmic limitation that keeps you from picking up your corner of the coat? Oriel blinked, but then hurried over to us and took one side of the coat willingly. We all picked up the coat with Karen on it, trying to support her evenly. She made an incoherent sound of pain as we did. We carried her into the house together with Butters opening doors for us. Michael watched my face closely as we carried her. What? I asked. You aren't angry, he said, that she's hurt. Like hell I'm not, I said. It's coming, after we take care of her, when it's time. Michael grunted. You aren't more angry than you would be if it was me or Butters here. I grunted. She's not a delicate princess, I said. She's a warrior. Warriors have enemies. Sometimes warriors get hurt. I felt my jaws clench. And then their friends even things up. Damn right they do, Butters said. Michael's eyes were steady. Harry. We'd gotten Karen into Michael's living room by then and settled her slowly onto the couch. Good to his word, there was a fire burning in a neat stone fireplace inside. Once she was on the couch, I picked up one end, Uriel picked up the other, and we set the whole thing down in front of the fireplace, where the heat of it would surround her. Towels, Butters said. Blankets, hurry. I'll get them, Uriel volunteered. He turned, paused, and then asked Michael, Where are they? Michael directed him to the linen closet. He hurried off and returned a moment later, arms loaded with cloth. Good, Butters said and seized them. He started taking them to Karen, drying her off. The heat and the chafing of the towel seemed to rouse her slightly, and she blinked her eyes several times. Michael, she said. Michael? I'm here, Michael said. Karen looked up, her face drawn, her eyes full of tears. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I lost the sword. Easy, Michael said gently. We'll deal with it. You don't have to worry about it right now. We've got to get the wet clothes off, Butter said. Do you have safety scissors? In my kit, Michael said. In the kitchen. Uriel said, I'll get it. He walked out and in and passed the same red plastic toolbox Michael had used on me earlier to Butter's. Sorry, Karen. Butters said, about your jacket. He went to work with the safety scissors, cutting Karen out of her coat while trying not to move her arm and shoulder. She grunted with pain anyway. I didn't know what to do, Karen said. If I turned from him, he'd have come at my, my back. If I didn't go to Harry, he was, he was going to die. Her eyes widened. Harry, is he? Here, I said. I found a right hand with mine. Her eyes rolled to me, and her fingers suddenly squeezed down tight on mine. Her hand was icy cold, and she was shivering harder. Oh, Harry, she said. Thank God. Holy crap, Butter said. There are bullet holes in her shirt. I blew it, Harry, she said. Damn it, I blew it. She was weeping openly now. They're always too strong. There's always more of them. And they're always too strong.
Karen, I said. I took her face in my hands and made her look at me as Butters cut away at her shirt. Shut up. You screwed up excellently, okay? We all made it out. We're all going to be fine. Right, Butters? Butters gave me a tight look. But the sword, Karen said. Michael leaned down and said, Have faith, Miss Murphy, he said, his voice serious. Things are not always as bad as they seem. Sometimes the darkness only makes it easier to see the light. I looked up at Uriel, who compressed his lips into a grim line. Oh, thank God, Butters breathed. She was wearing a vest. Of course I was wearing a vest, Karen said, her voice for a second perfectly clear and slightly annoyed. She was shivering harder now. Oh, God, cold. Butters plucked at several small, bright bits of metal, passing them to Michael. Four, five, how many shots did she take? Five, Oriol supplied instantly. Twenty-twos, Michael said, maybe twenty-fives. No blood, Butters reported. I think the vest stopped them all. He kept cutting her shirt away until he could see her injured shoulder. It was already swelling. We've got to get the vest off of her. Why? I asked. Because Kevlar doesn't stretch and she's going to keep swelling. And because this needs a hospital. I'd rather she didn't have to answer any questions about a damaged bulletproof vest once we get there. It might not be safe, I said. Why can't you take care of her here? Because I don't have the tools I need to help her here. And I don't have the expertise to use them even if I did. Butters said, his voice hard. Look, Harry, not everyone has got your ability to handle injury. Her shoulder is dislocated, and there's probably additional damage. I haven't seen her knee yet, but from the shape of it, I think he took her ACL. This isn't something she can just walk off, and if she doesn't get proper care fast, it could cripple her for life. So as soon as I'm sure she isn't going into hypothermia, we're going to the hospital. He looked up at me, his eyes steady, his expression resolute. And if you argue with me, I'm going to call her friends on the force and tell them that she needs help. Rage made my vision pulse, and I snarled and clenched my hand into a fist. But Butters didn't back down. Harry, Michael said. He stepped in between us and put a hand on my chest. She can't stay here. She's in agony. I blinked several times and did math pushing the winter aggression further from my thoughts. The rage receded, leaving weariness behind, and my head started to hurt. Right, I said. Right. Sorry, Butters. Hey, Mr. Sunshine, you can put a protective detail on her, can't you? I cannot, Uriel said. So useless, I muttered. The throbbing got worse despite Mab's earring. God, my head... Michael's restraining hand became a steadying one, his voice sharpening with concern. Harry, are you all right? Will be. Just need a minute to rest. Uriel, Michael said, his voice softly urgent. The room tilted to one side unexpectedly, and I flailed my arms to try to catch my balance. Michael caught my right arm. Uriel's nose caught my left, right in the aluminum brace, but the archangel managed to support me. Between the three of us, I found a chair and sat there in it for a minute, while my head spun briefly. Uriel had a shocked, even startled look on his face. 
and his nose was bleeding. I was pretty sure that wasn't possible. Uriel touched his fingers to his face and drew them away, bright with scarlet blood. He blinked at them, the expression almost childlike in its confusion. Tears welled in his eyes, and he blinked them several times, as if he wasn't sure what was happening. Michael caught the direction of my stare, and his clear gray eyes widened. He straightened, staring at Uriel in shock. What have you done? he asked. It was not within our power to heal what was done to you, Uriel said. I'm sorry. It was not chance that brought you to harm, but choice. Michael looked from the angel down to his leg and back. What have you done? he repeated. Uriel looked from his shaking, bloodied fingers to Michael and said, I have loaned you my grace. Michael's eyes became completely round. Wow, I said. Uh, isn't that... that kind of important? It is what makes me an angel, Uriel said. Merciful mother of God, Michael said, his voice awed. Ah, uh, I said. Isn't that kind of overkill? I mean, Uriel, you've got the power to unmake solar systems. Galaxies, Uriel said absently. Harry, Michael said, what are you saying? Why? I asked Uriel. I had to do something, he said. I couldn't just stand there, but my options are limited. Oh, I said, I get it, I think. Harry, Michael said, what are you talking about? Um, I said and rubbed at my aching head. Uriel wanted to help you, but he couldn't exert his will over the situation to change it, right? Correct, Uriel said. But he could act in accordance with your will, Michael, which was to go out and meet Nicodemus. Yes, Michael said. So he couldn't change you, I said, and he couldn't change the world around you, at least not of his own will, but he could change himself. So... He gave you his power in order to make your body function the way it used to. That way, it isn't his will that's using the power. It's yours. The throbbing had begun to recede slowly, and I looked up. It's way more than you needed, but it's the only unit he had to work with. It's as if he loaned you his giant passenger jet because you needed a reading light, I eyed the angel. Right? Uriel nodded and said, Close enough. Michael opened his mouth in understanding. Loaned, he said. It won't last. Uriel shook his head. But this task is an important one. You need it. Use it. Michael tilted his head. But, Uriel, if I were to misuse it, I would fall, Uriel said quietly. I choked on the air. Holy crap! The last time an archangel fell, I'm pretty sure there were extended consequences. Uriel smiled faintly at Michael. I'm confident that you won't. His smile turned a little green. I would, however, appreciate it if you did not push any buttons or pull any of the levers in my giant passenger jet. How could you do this? Michael breathed. You need the reading light, Uriel said. 
You have more than earned whatever help I can give. And you are a friend, Michael. What happens to you while I borrow your jet? Michael asked. Transubstantiation, Uriel said. He gestured with his bloodied fingers. Butters finally chimed in. Holy crap. He's mortal? And he can die, I said quietly. Chapter 32 The fire crackled. Because, obviously, I said, there wasn't enough on the line already. Uriel smiled. It was a tight, pained expression. Take it back, Michael said. You've got to take it back right now. I can do that, Uriel said. If that is your choice, I will respect it. Something in his voice triggered my instincts, and I said, Michael, wait, think about this. What's to think about, Michael asked. An archangel of the Lord is vulnerable. Right, I said, and spread my hands. Almost as if he thinks this is important or something. Or maybe you figure Oriole for the kind of guy who hands out this kind of power all willy-nilly every time the wind blows. I looked at Oriole. Right? Oriole helped Butters get another blanket around the shuddering Karen, watched us, and said nothing. Yeah, I said. You can tell when you're on the right track because he shuts up and doesn't tell you a damn thing. It's about the grail, isn't it? About what Nicodemus wants to do with it. Uriel gave me a knowing look. I flushed and said, I'm playing my cards close to the chest, okay? I know it's about more than that. He put his hand on Karen's head and smiled at her encouragingly. Michael shook his head and walked over to where he'd set Amarachius after he'd drawn it from his belt once we had Karen inside. He picked it up absently and started cleaning water from it carefully with one of the used towels. You're asking me to make a very large choice. Yes, Uriel said, with potentially horrible consequences. Uriel looked at him with sympathetic eyes and nodded. Can you tell me what is at stake that I should risk this? Uriel frowned, considering the question for a moment, then he said, A soul. Michael raised his eyebrows. Oh, he said. You should have said that from the beginning. He extended the sword and looked down the length of its blade. I'm not retired at the moment, he said. What about my family? The guards remain, Uriel said. I have taken your place. Michael exhaled and some of the tension eased out of him. Right, though this is going to draw attention here again. It might. And your protection doesn't extend to the merely mortal, Michael said. No. So mortals could enter and kill you? Kill them? Potentially, he said. Guys, Butter said, we need to get her to a hospital. Right, I said. Here's the plan. Butters drives Murphy to the hospital and tells the guys at SI she needs looking after. Those guys can't stop someone like Nicodemus, Butters said. No, I said, but they can force him to get noisy if he wants to get to her, and Nick won't want that until after the job. He might send some of his squires to do it, but SI can go up against them just fine. Michael, will you loan Butters a car? Of course, Michael said. Good. They'll help you unload her at the emergency room, Butters. Right, Butters said. Great. I'm going to go clean up out front, I said. What's left of the sword, shell casings, what have you. 
Those shots were muffled by the sleet, but we don't need to leave things lying around in case some busybody called the cops. Leaving me to talk to Charity alone, Michael said dryly. Yeah, funny how that worked out, I said. Where is she, anyway? In the panic room with Mouse and the kids, Michael said. Little Harry was all but bouncing off the walls, he was so excited. I didn't want him seeing... He nodded toward Karen. I'll sound the all clear as soon as she and Butters leave. Good call, I said. What should I do? Uriel asked. Sit, I said. Stay inside. Don't put pennies in the outlets or play with matches or run with scissors. I don't understand, Uriel said. Take no chances, I clarified. Oh, yes. He frowned and said, But I want to help. So sit, I said. Sitting quietly is very helpful. He sat down on the arm of the couch, frowning. I think this will hurt the least if one person carries her, Butters said. Right, I said, rising, and wobbled as the blood rushed to my head. Harry, Michael said, and pushed gently in front of me. He went over to Karen, adjusted the couch to give him room to stand in front of her. He passed Butters a set of car keys. It's her left arm and leg that are hurt, Butters said. Carry her right side against you and try to support her left knee. I'll be careful, Michael said, and lifted her gently, keeping her wrapped in the blankets. He didn't seem to have any trouble doing it. I mean, he didn't look like he'd gained muscle or anything, but his strength was certainly that of the night I remembered, and not of the lame contractor and Little League softball coach he'd been lately. Karen let out a soft sound of pain and closed her eyes, breathing with steady, disciplined rhythm through her nose. Right, right, Butters said. He'd discarded his pack before, but he recovered it now, as we went outside and loaded Karen into Michael's white pickup truck. We got her in and buckled up, though she was obviously fighting the pain. Michael hurried back inside, out of the sleet. She opened her eyes once and gave me a little smile. Sorry, she said, that I won't be there to watch your back. You did fine, I said. We'll make sure you've got cover. Worry about yourselves, she said. I can make some calls. Michael's a good man, but he doesn't always see things coming. I bit my lip for a second, trying to decide if I should say anything. I decided not to. If she didn't know what was coming up, she couldn't possibly tip off anyone that I already knew part of what Nicodemus was up to. I need to work on my poker face. She looked at my expression and smiled with one side of her mouth. Need to know. I get it, Harry. She struggled to free her right hand from the blankets so that she could put it on mine and squeeze. Make the sucker punch count. I winked at her. I'll come see you soon. You'd better, she said. Butters slammed the driver's side door and brought the truck to life with a smooth rumble of V8 engine. He turned the heaters all the way up first thing and double-checked Karen's seatbelt. Then he adjusted the mirrors muttered something about the truck being the size of a house, and said to me, Close it up. I'll get you word as soon as I know anything. I nodded and said, Thanks, Butters. He grimaced and said, Thank me when I save your life. You've done that already, I said, back in the museum. So we're even? Once you've made that swap, you don't keep counting, man, I said. Drive safe. I closed the door carefully and watched Butters back the truck out onto the icy street. He put it into the lowest gear and the tires crunched slowly down the street as he drove away. 
He'd been out of the driveway for maybe twenty seconds when a flickering stream of campfire sparks came soaring down out of a nearby tree and through the windshield of the truck. Bob returning to the skull, still in Butters' backpack. I watched until they were gone. Then I hurriedly cleaned up the scene, fake rocket launcher, sword shards, sheath, hilt, and shell casings all, and hurried back inside. I shut the door behind me and leaned against it. For a second, I was alone. I missed Karen already. Logically, I knew that she probably wasn't in any immediate danger from Nicodemus and company, but some irrational part of me wanted to be the one who drove her to the hospital, terrified the doctors into perfection, and watched over her when she could finally sleep. She'd looked so small like that, with her wet hair plastered down, swaddled in blankets. And she wouldn't have been that way if I hadn't invited her along for the ride. I mean, yeah, logically, I hadn't been the one to hurt her. Nicodemus had done that. But there was a great, seething tide of anger somewhere behind the walls of my mind. Absolute fury that she had come to harm. And since it had no handy targets to crash upon, some stupid part of my brain had decided that I would do. And now I was going to drag Michael into my mess as well. And if he got put in a compromising position the way Karen had, the consequences might be significantly more severe. And all because I'd been weak and cut a deal with Mab. I gritted my teeth and forced myself to stand on my own two feet again. What was done was done. There was no point in tearing myself to shreds over it especially since indulging in that kind of self-flagellation would not help me protect Michael or stop Nicodemus from obtaining one of the most powerful holy relics in the world. There would be plenty of time to beat myself up later, assuming I lived long enough to do it. Focus on the task at hand, Harry. Sort the rest out when you have time. Yeah, sure, but isn't that the kind of thinking that got me into this mess in the first place? I was trying to learn to play the game a few more moves ahead than I had in the past. Part of that had been keeping Karen in the dark about what I had in mind for Nicodemus and company. But man, that game was hard to play. Bleak thoughts. I was roused from them by feet on the stairs. I looked up. At the top of the stairs stood two figures, an enormous dog and a little girl. The dog was gray, shaggy, and the size of a bantha. A bulky ruff of fur about his head and shoulders gave him a leonine look, and his dark eyes were bright, his slightly curled tail wagging so furiously that it looked like it might pull him over sideways. When Mouse saw me, he made a happy little chuffing sound, and his front paws bounced off the floor, but then he glanced to the girl beside him and held himself carefully still. The little girl stood with her hands buried in the thick fur of Mouse's mane, as though she had refused to admit that she couldn't just circle her arms around his neck and tote him about like a teddy bear. She was wearing an old T-shirt of Molly's that read Splattercon across the front. The shirt hung past her knees, and its sleeves went halfway to her wrists. She had big brown eyes, the size of softballs, it looked like, and her dark brown hair hung straight down to her little shoulders. Her features were a little long. I could see myself in the shape of her eyes, in the set of her chin. But she had her mother's full mouth and elegant nose. Maggie. My daughter. 
My heart all but stopped beating, and then it lurched into high gear in pure terror. What should I do? What should I say? I mean, I had known I was a father and whatnot, but now she was looking at me, and she was a person. She regarded me soberly from the top of the stairs for several long seconds before she said, Are you Harry Dresden? She was missing a tooth from up front and off to one side. It was kind of adorable. Uh, I said, Yeah, that's me. You're really big, she said. You think so? She nodded seriously. Bigger than Mr. Carpenter. Um, I said, how did you know it was me? Because Molly showed me your picture, Maggie said. She moved her shoulders as though attempting to hold Mouse up the way she might a favorite doll. This is my dog, Mouse. Mouse wagged his tail furiously and managed not to knock Maggie down while he did it. I know, I said. I'm the one who gave him to you. Maggie nodded. That's what Molly said. She said you gave him to me because you loved me. Yes, I said, recognizing the truth as I spoke it. That's true. She wrinkled up her nose as if she smelled something unpleasant. Are you mad at me? I blinked several times. What? No, no, of course not. Why would I be mad at you? She shrugged and looked down at Mouse's mane. Because you aren't ever here? Never ever. Ow. The winter mantle is pretty amazing, but there are some kinds of pain it can't do jack about. Well, I said after a moment, I have a very tough job. Do you know what I do? You fight monsters, Maggie said. Molly told me so, like Draculas and stuff. Had Molly been filling in for me a little while I was away? That sounded a lot like the kind of thing Mab had done or ordered done when I was unavailable, taking up some of the duties of her vassal in his stead. Maybe Molly was following in the same footsteps, or maybe she was just being Molly and being as kind as she could to the child. Or maybe it wasn't as simple as either, or... Yeah, I said, like Draculas and stuff. It's very dangerous, and I do it a lot. Mr. Carpenter works harder than two men. That's what Mrs. Carpenter says. That's probably true, I said. But he comes home every night, and you haven't ever... A thought seemed to strike her, and she pressed a little closer to Mouse. Are you going to take me away? Um, I said, blinking. This was proceeding really quickly. I, um... Would you like that? She shrugged, almost hiding her eyes in Mouse's mane. I don't know. My toys are all here, and my roller skates. That's very true, I said. Um, not tonight, anyway. Oh, she said. Okay. Molly says you're really nice. I try to be. Is he nice, Mouse? Mouse continued wagging his tail furiously and gave a quiet bark. Mouse is smart, she said, nodding. Really super dog smart. We're reading James and the Giant Peach. I blinked. Did she mean that she was reading the book to the dog, or that Mouse was reading the book, too? 
I mean, I already knew that he was as smart as most people, but I never really considered whether or not he could learn to do abstract things like reading. It seemed like a very strange notion. On the other hand, he was going to school. Hell, I only had a GED. If he stayed close enough to Maggie for long enough, the dog might wind up with more education than me. Then there'd be no talking to him. Don't tell people about Mouse, though, okay? Maggie said, suddenly worried. It's top secret. I won't, I said. Okay. Do you want to see my room? I'd like that. I came up the stairs, and Maggie let go of the dog's mane with one hand to grab my right forefinger with it and to lead me down the hall. Maggie's room had, long ago, been Charity's sewing room. They'd cleaned it out and redecorated the little chamber in purple and pink and bright green. There was a tiny, kid-sized desk with a chair and several toy boxes. The toys had all been put neatly away. There were a couple of school books on the desk. A closet stood slightly open and proved to have its floor covered in dirty clothes that hadn't made it into a small laundry hamper. There was a raised bed against one wall, the kind that usually came with a second one beneath it. There wasn't a lower bunk. Instead, there was a big futon mattress on the floor beneath the bed. Posters of brightly colored cartoon ponies adorned the walls and the ceiling above the bed. Once we were in the room, Mouse finally let out a few little whines and came over to me, grinning a big doggy grin. I spent a few minutes rubbing his ears and scratching him beneath the chin and telling him what a good dog he was and how much I'd missed him and what a good job he was doing. Mouse wriggled all over and gave my hands a few slobbery kisses and, in general, behaved exactly like a happy dog and not at all like a mystic, super-powered guardian creature from Tibet. Maggie climbed a little ladder to her bunk to watch the exchange closely. After a minute, Mouse leaned against me so hard that it nearly bowled me over, and then he happily settled down on the futon mattress beneath the little girl's bed. I have a monster under my bed, and it's Mouse, she said proudly. There was another one there, but me and Mouse slayerized it. I lifted an eyebrow. I mean, any other kid, I might have thought she was reporting a recent game of pretend. But on the other hand, I mean, she was a Dresden and all. Maybe she was giving me the facts and nothing but the facts. He's the most awesome dog ever, I said. That pleased her immensely. I know. She chewed on her lip thoughtfully, a gesture that reminded me so much of Susan that a tangible pang went through my chest. Um, she said, would you like to tuck me in? Sure, I said. She nodded and flopped down onto her pillow. I stepped up to the bed and took a few seconds to sort out the sheets and the blanket and to get them pulled over her. Once that was done, she said, Would you like to read me a story? Mouse's tail thumped enthusiastically against the wall. Sure, I said, and we read Where the Wild Things Are. When I finished, she said, You didn't do the voices right. Hmm, I said, Maybe I'll do better next time. I don't know, she said dubiously. I guess you can try. She looked at my face searchingly for a moment and then said in a tiny voice, Do you want to be my dad? 
I went blind for a few seconds until I blinked the tears away. Sure, I said. It came out in a tight croak, but when I said it, she smiled at me. By the time I'd finished the second run-through of Sendak's opus, she was asleep. I made sure the blankets had her all covered up and kissed her hair, and then crouched down beside Mouse and put my arms around him. Thank you, boy, I said. Thank you for taking care of her. He leaned against me, tail wagging, and snuggled his huge head into my ribs. I petted him some more. I have to go soon, but I need you to keep her safe. The carpenters, too. Okay? He chuffed and snuggled a little closer. Missed you, too, boy, I said, rubbing his ears. I just need a little time to figure this out, to figure out what comes next. Had I decided that I was going to be a dad to Maggie now? I examined myself and realized that indeed I had. When did that happen? And why hadn't anyone kept me in the loop? It had happened, I thought, the moment I had seen her, talked to her. Oh, my God. That was terrifying. And exciting. All things considered, I wasn't sure I could put a lot of trust in my emotions at the moment. But one thing was certain. If I wanted to keep my word to my daughter, I'd have to come back. That meant staying alive tomorrow. I got up, gave Mouse a final round of petting and scratching, and padded quietly from the room into the upstairs hallway. The lights in the other rooms were out, except for the one in Michael and Charity's room. A light burned there. The door was slightly open. And I could see Charity sitting on the edge of the bed in flannel pajamas, a tall blonde woman with an excellent physique whose hair was threading through with silver in style as she aged. Her tear-stained face was miserable as she spoke, presumably to her husband, seated on the bed beside her. I couldn't see him from there. Obviously, Michael had intended that talk to take place in private. I turned away from it and went back down the stairs. I sat down on the bottom steps and tried to clear my head. A few minutes later, Charity came down the stairs and sat down next to me. I made room. Where's Michael? I asked. Praying over the children, she answered. He always does that before he leaves. In case... Yeah, I said. You know, Charity said, I had intended to punch you in the nose, twice, the moment I saw you again. Once to make it bleed, once to break it. Oh? Mm-hmm. The first time for trying to kill yourself, the second for using my daughter to do it. You, uh... You know about that? How? I watch. I listen. Her reaction to reports of your death was too much. It took time, but I eventually worked out why she was so furious at herself. You can hit me right now if you think it would help, I said. No, she said tiredly. I just wanted to tell you something. Yeah? She nodded. Kids need their father to come home safe, Harry. Make sure it happens. I'll bring him back to you or die trying, I promise. Charity glanced at me and then shook her head with a weary smile. I wasn't talking about Michael, Harry. I meant you. 
She glanced back up the stairs toward Maggie's room. That child has lost everyone she's ever loved. Did you notice how close she stays to Mouse? Without him, I wonder if she'd be functioning at all. If anything should happen to you... Ah, I said quietly. Maggie doesn't need to feel that pain again. Don't let her down. I chewed on my lip and nodded with my watery eyes closed. Right. And please remember that Michael has children who need him, too. Please. I'll bring him back or die trying, I repeated. Charity exhaled a shaky breath and then touched my shoulder gently. Thank you. God be with you and bring you home safe, Harry. Both of you. Chapter 33 At 3.30 a.m., we rolled up to the evil lair in a soccer mom's minivan with a My Kid is an Honor Student at bumper sticker on the back. It is worth noting that by the standards of my life, this was not a terribly incongruous entrance. Michael regarded the slaughterhouse for a moment after he had killed the ignition and said, This is a bad place. Yeah, I said. I rubbed at the small of my back. I'd gotten a few hours' worth of sleep before we'd left on the futon mattress on the floor beneath Maggie's bed. Mouse had been happy to snuggle up to me. The lummox likes to pretend he's still a tiny puppy that will fit on my lap if he tries hard enough, and I'd been too tired to argue with him. As a result, I'd had to practice defensive sleeping, and it had left my back a little twitchy. On the upside, even the modest amount of sleep I'd gotten had done wonders to restore me, or at least the power of the winter mantle. I felt practically normal, broken arm, gunshot wound and all. Michael was dressed in his old mail, which he had kept clean and scoured free of rust, despite his retirement. He wore body armor beneath it. He put his big white cloak with its bright red cross on the left breast over it. You sure you couldn't just put something black on? I asked him. You're going to clash with all the bad guy robbery wear. That's the idea, Michael said. You don't get it, man, I said. This building we're going to hit belongs to John Marcone. We're supposed to go in without taking down their electronic systems. That means there will be cameras and pictures. The blindest security tech in the world could identify you, and your guardian angels won't protect you from Marcone's people. Michael shook his head. It won't come to that. You say that, I said, but you don't know what Marcone is like. Perhaps, he said, but I do know what the Almighty is like, Harry and he wouldn't give me the strength to do this only to have it result in harm to my family. I grimaced. Seems to me it would be polite of you to take a couple of prudent steps, like wearing dark clothes and a mask, so that the Almighty wouldn't need to go out of his way to arrange things for you. He barked out a quick laugh and gave me a rueful smile. So you have been listening to me all this time. He shook his head. Nicodemus and his ilk operate in the shadows, in secret. The swords aren't meant for that. I have nothing to hide. Hey, I said, letting my voice be annoyed. As shadowy ilk myself, I think I resent that statement. Michael snorted. 
You destroy buildings, fight monsters openly in the streets of the city, work with the police, show up in newspapers, advertise in the phone book, and ride zombie dinosaurs down Michigan Avenue, and think that you work in the shadows? Be reasonable. I will if you will, I said. At least wear a ski mask. No, Michael said calmly. The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Trust him, Harry. Probably not in the cards, I said. His smile widened. Then trust me. I threw up my hands. Fine, whatever. Are you sure your people can find someplace safe to keep the grail if we get it back? Because apparently they go out and use the coins to get snacks out of the vending machine that things go back into circulation so fast. Part of the nature of the coins is to be in circulation, as you put it, Michael said. They can only be contained for so long. The grail is a different proposition entirely. They'll keep it safe. And you know the rules I have to play by, right? I asked. You have to help Nicodemus recover the grail, he said. After that, you can go weapons free. Right. And you'll respect that? I will do what is right, Michael said. I licked my lips. Yeah, but... Could you maybe put off doing what is right until we get clear of Mab's restrictions? All things considered, Michael said. No, I'm not taking chances. Translation, he wasn't going to do anything, or not do anything, that might screw up Uriel's grace, no matter what. Thank you, Mab, for this wonderful, wonderful game. Maybe next time we can play pin the tail on the wizard. I'm pretty sure Nicodemus is going to play it straight, at least until right before we get back to Chicago, I said. Why would he? Because I'm going to say please. Michael arched an eyebrow at me. I'm going to say it in his native tongue, I said. Power. Bingo. Nicodemus hadn't warned his squires what to expect, and when Michael strode in at my side, Jordan and his brothers-in-arms produced a truly impressive number of weapons in what appeared to be a state of pure panic. Michael just stood there with his thumbs hooked into his belt, Amarachius hanging quietly at his side in its scabbard. Son, he said to Jordan, don't you have anything better to do than point that thing at me? Lower your weapons! I snarled in a voice loud enough to carry throughout the slaughterhouse, before I start downsizing your organization. They didn't put their guns down, but my threat did make a lot of the squires eye me nervously. Go me. Hey, Nick! I shouted. Your boys are all jittery. You want to calm them down, or should I do it? Gentlemen, Nicodemus called a moment later. I know who is with Dresden. Let them through. Jordan and the others lowered their weapons with manifest reluctance, but kept their hands on them, ready to bring them to bear again at any time. Michael didn't move or take a threatening posture, but he swept his gaze from squire to squire, one by one. They all dropped their eyes from his, every one of them. We started down to the conference table, and Michael said, I feel sorry for these men. The tongue thing, I asked. Removing their tongues is one way to keep their loyalty, Michael said. Yeah, I love people who mutilate my body parts, he frowned. It's designed to keep them isolated. Think what it does to them. They can't talk, so how much more difficult is it for them to connect with other people? 
to form the kinds of bonds that might let them free themselves of this cult. They can't taste their food, which precludes eating for pleasure, and eating together is one of the primary means of forming real relationships between human beings. Think how much more difficult it makes even the simplest of interactions with outsiders, and how the shared experience of that hardship means that one's fellow squires will always be the only ones who truly understand his pain. He shook his head. It's the last step of their indoctrination for a reason. Once it's done, they no longer have a voice of their own. It's not the same as not having a choice, I said. These guys have made their call. Indeed, after being manipulated by Nicodemus and Enduriel as unwise young men, he shook his head, some men fall from grace, some are pushed. Once their fingers pull the trigger, does it matter? Of course it matters, Michael said. But it doesn't change what has to be done. I just wish they could find another way to fill the empty place inside them. We'd reached the conference table by that time, where the crew was making final preparations. Anna Valmont, Hannah Asher, and Binder were all there, dressed in close-fit dark clothing, and each of them was wearing a shoulder holster. Valmont had a roll-up leather tool pouch laid out on the table, and was going through various bits of equipment in it one by one. Asher was sipping coffee, her bagel untouched on the plate in front of her. Binder was going over his gang's Uzis one more time. The loading doors at one end of the slaughterhouse rolled open, and a pair of large stepside vans rumbled into the place a moment later. Several squires set about getting them lined up and then rolling their rear doors open. Morning, Dresden, Hannah Asher said. What happened to your girlfriend? She's not my girlfriend, I said. And she had a misunderstanding with Nicodemus. Hannah Valmont's eyes flicked up to me, hard. She's alive, I told her but she wasn't in any shape to go to work today. So you brought Captain Crusader instead? Asher asked. He looks like a renaissance fair. Binder abruptly stood up, his eyes widening. Bloody hell, girl. That's a knight of the sword. Asher frowned. I thought there were only like three of those guys in the whole world. Two, Michael said, at the moment. Binder stared at Michael and narrowed his eyes in calculation. Oh, damn it. Dresden, this is what you do because Nicodemus gets in a tiff with your girlfriend? She's not my gr- I rubbed at the bridge of my nose. Look, I want someone I know and trust watching my back. Murphy couldn't do it, so he's doing it instead. What a load of tripe, Binder said. You think I don't know what the coins and the swords are like with each other? You didn't bring him to watch your back. You brought him to fight. Let's just say I don't mind having a deterrent around, I said. If Nicodemus plays it straight and keeps his word, I will too, and we'll all get rich. Binder scowled and eyed Michael. Is that right, Knight? Harry's generally a very honest man, Michael said. I really don't care about the money, though. Binder and Asher both tilted their heads to one side, like a dog that has just heard a new noise. Anna Belmont smiled and shook her head slightly, going back to checking her tools. So, what happened last night? Asher asked me. Binder's goons drew him a picture of a lion, the ones who came back, I mean. Yeah, it got a little crazy, I said. 
Did you get the guy? Binder asked. Nah, he skated, I said. Nobody's fault, really. Tricky, slippery little bastard. Binder eyed me. Yeah, right. You give me a big speech about how you'll come down on my neck if I hurt anyone in your town. Then you two tear out of here to take up the chase, and Murphy winds up too busted up to continue after a misunderstanding with Nicodemus. I gave him a beatific smile. Binder, relax. The op isn't in any danger. I made sure he's not going to go to anyone. That was the point of chasing him down in the first place, right? Binder frowned. I thought the White Council didn't let you use mind magic. Which I hadn't meant at all, and which I really couldn't do, considering my utter lack of talent in that area. But Binder didn't know that. I did what needed to be done, I said. And think of it like this. I don't have to stomp on your neck now. Binder looked skeptical, but he didn't push it, which was smart. Binder had a really formidable skill, but he was a one-trick pony. He wasn't up to facing a wizard of the White Council directly, and he knew it. Michael rounded himself up a cup of coffee and looked at me. I nodded, and he brought me back one. That's a very large pen for just four goats, he noted. Which meant that the Genosqua had come back here last night and gotten a couple more meals in. Damn, but that thing ate a lot. It ate more than something that size should have been able to consume. But a lot of supernatural creatures had supernatural metabolisms that helped fuel their exceptional speed and strength. Ghouls could put down forty or fifty pounds of meat in a meal and need more the next day. Maybe Big Shaggy had a similar high-consumption engine fueling its physical power. I sipped coffee and waited. At a quarter to four, Goodman Gray came ambling in. The unassuming-looking man stopped ten feet short of the table and stared hard at Michael. The knight returned the shifter's look and dropped the heel of his hand casually to the hilt of Amarachius, resting it there with his fingers relaxed. What's wrong? I asked him. I don't like that man very much, Michael said. He's done terrible things. Obviously, Goodman Gray said, his tone wary. I'm a monster for hire, but I got no quarrel with you today, Sir Knight. Maybe, Michael said. Maybe not. Gray's eyes flicked to me. Do you really expect me to work with someone like this wizard on our side? Yes, I said. You've been hired, haven't you? Show a little professionalism. Gray grunted and seemed to relax a little. Well, I won't give him any cause to take issue with me. But if he does, don't think I won't take him apart. Pretty sure you can't, I told him. But it might be fun to watch you try it. Gray gave me a sour look and went over to the coffee pot. At five minutes to four, Nicodemus and Deirdre arrived together. Deirdre was in her demonic battle form, all purple scales and metallic ribbons of hair. Both sets of her eyes were focused on Michael warily. Nicodemus looked like he always did, but more smug. Good morning, everyone, he said. Table, please. In the shadows back behind Nicodemus, I could see the hulking outline of the Genosqua lurking in silence. We all gathered around the table where Nicodemus had laid out a large piece of paper with a map of the bank drawn cleanly upon it. This will be a simple entry, he said. He pointed at the front doors of the bank. 
We'll go in through these doors. There will be between three and six security personnel, and I will expect Binder and Dresden to keep their attention and eventually neutralize them. The rest of us will head straight back to the vaults. There are two large security doors in the way, but we aren't going to bother opening them. Miss Asher will go through the walls beside them, here and here. He marked the appropriate places with a red pen. After that, Miss Valmont and Mr. Gray will move forward into the main vault. Miss Valmont will open the vault's door, and Mr. Gray will open the target's private storage room. Once those systems have been circumvented and the doors opened, it will be safe to bring our wizards into the vault. He smiled widely. And then the real fun can begin. Are there any questions? What happens when we get where we're going? I asked. You got a map for that? Unfortunately, no, Nicodemus said. Though our path should be an obvious one, our target uses active defenses to protect his faults, not obfuscation. No map, I said, just some vague references to gates. One does not attain great reward without daring similarly great risk, Nicodemus said. We will simply have to adapt to what we find as we enter. I did not for a minute believe that Nicodemus had no further information about Hades' vault, but there wouldn't be much point in saying it. If that is all, Nicodemus said, we shall load up. Dresden and his escort, Gray and Valmont, will be in the leftmost van. The rest of us will take the one on the right. I took the liberty of stocking them with heavy-duty backpacks for each of you in order to allow you to gather up your shares. Mr. Binder, twenty of your associates in each van, if you please. Got it, Binder said. He produced his circle of wire and began calling up suits, issuing them an Uzi and a couple of spare clips as they arrived. They rushed to the waiting vans, leaping up into them with a will. Michael watched and shook his head. Oh, cheer up, Mr. Carpenter, Nicodemus said. By the time the sun rises this morning, you may be twenty million dollars richer. I have a family. I am already rich beyond measure, Michael said. But I really wouldn't expect you to understand that. Nicodemus's face went blank, his eyes cold. I took note of that. It was far more reaction than I'd seen from him this whole time. Something about what Michael had said struck home. The time for talking and planning is over, Nicodemus said. Now is the time for action. Everyone, get in the vans. Chapter 34 The inside of the van was crowded, with twenty of Binder's goons crammed in with the four of us and a couple of squires driving. All right, Dresden, Gray said. Let's have your wrists. What? I said. Oh, right. The manacles. What's he talking about? Michael asked. Thorn manacles, I said. They inhibit magical ability. They should greatly reduce the odds that I'll blow out any of the building's security systems by walking past. And we need them to stay up and functioning until we get all the doors open. His wrist is broken, Michael said to Gray. Will they fit on his ankles? Gray held up a set of manacles on a heavy steel chain. They looked just like the ones I'd seen before, only they had the heavy gleam of steel to them instead of that weird silvery metal the she used. The inner surfaces of the cuffs were lined with small, sharp thorns of steel. They would bite into the flesh when they were locked on, and with that steel breaking my skin, the winter mantle would go to pieces.
That wasn't going to feel good. Doesn't matter, I said, eyeing them. If either of the cuffs is on, I can't use the magic. Just have them both on one wrist and wrap the chain around to keep it out of my way. Gimme. Sure you don't want me to do it? Gray asked. Nah, I dislike you enough already. I'll put them on. I took the manacles from Gray and gave Michael a look to let him know that I wanted him to pay attention. He frowned and did. I elbowed myself enough room to wrap the chain around my wrist. Then I closed my eyes for a moment and took slow, deep breaths, concentrating. Blocking out pain was a lesson I'd learned a long time ago, and I could do it pretty well if I had time to prepare for it. Mostly the bad guys aren't that courteous before they start hurting me, but fortunately this time the bad guy was me, and I was willing to cut myself a break. It took me a couple of minutes to erect the mental barriers, and then I opened my eyes, pulled up the sleeve of my duster, and fastened both manacles onto my right wrist, locking them on with their key. Steel bit into my skin with a hundred tiny teeth, and the winter mantle vanished. As suddenly as light comes on when you flip the switch, my body started reporting injuries. My arm was pretty horrid, but my back had apparently turned into a single large contusion when the Genosqua slammed me into that parked car. My calf burned steadily where I'd been shot. My feet were killing me too, which, what the hell? Had I gotten a pair of shoes the wrong size or something? I was aching in the knees, and somehow I'd collected a cut on my tongue and on one of my gums. I hadn't really noticed them before, though I sure as hell felt them now. And my head. Oh, my aching head. Mab's little silver earring was as cold as an ice cream truck in Antarctica, but with its numbing influence reduced by the steel, my head felt like it was going to crack open and spill out streams of molten lead. I realigned my mental shields for a moment, once I knew exactly what I was supposed to be blocking out, and then straightened up slowly. Harry, Michael said, you just went pale. Hurts, I said shortly. I'll be fine. I put the key to the manacles in my pocket, then picked up my oversized duffel bag and started rooting around in it. I tied a leather thong onto my wizard's staff and now wore it over one shoulder like a rifle. Gray, I'm going to be making all kinds of light and noise once we're inside. If you feel like doing something about the guards, try to make it non-fatal. Oh, what? Gray asked. The manacles come off and I get upset with you, I said. Maybe I'll just let them shoot you, he said. I gave him a pleasant smile. If you do, who's going to open your way to the vault, eh? Took me years of formal instruction to learn enough to make that happen. I guarantee you that Asher can't pull that one off. I squinted at Gray. Ask you something? Sure. Why take money for something like this? I asked. Someone with your talents can get it any way he wants. Gray shrugged. No mystery. Everyone's got to pay the rent, he said, and something in his voice put a capital letter on the last word. I don't get it, I said. I know, Gray replied placidly. Not my problem. If you don't mind, gentlemen, Balmont said, speaking for the first time since we got in the van, you may think your bits of the job are simple, but mine is the next best thing to impossible. I would appreciate some quiet, please. I eyed Valmont, grunted, and fell silent, working to rearrange the contents of my duffel to my satisfaction. It didn't take us long to get where we were going. The van came to a stop, and a moment later Jordan rolled up its rear door. 
The Capristi building is one of the last skyscrapers to be had on the north end of the city of Chicago proper, right across the street from Lincoln Park. It's made of white concrete and glass, a mediocre bit of soulless modern architecture that's all monotonous squares and right angles stretching up and up into the still sleeting skies. Between the weather and the time, the streets were almost completely empty and still, which actually bothered me a little bit. That stillness would have made our vans pretty obvious to anyone who saw them moving. I stepped out of the van, slipped on the ice, and would have fallen if I hadn't grabbed onto the truck. Right. No winter mantle to help with the ice. By now, there was half an inch of transparent ice lying over every surface in sight. Power lines were bowed down with the weight of it. In the park behind me, the trees were bent almost double, and here and there, branches had cracked and fallen beneath its weight. The streets had been a mess, and only careful driving and the weight of the heavily loaded vans had kept them from slithering all over the place. A sign on the first floor of the Capristi building read, Verity Trust Bank of Chicago, which was a fine name for a mob bank. The first floor was the bank's lobby, with the secure floors being on the levels below. At least half the outside of the building was glass, and I could see a security guard inside staring at the vans. Michael, I said, striding toward the guard, drawing my gear out of my duffel and preparing it. Doors? Michael stepped in front of me and said, as if reminding himself, The building belongs to a criminal overlord and functions to assist him in this evil enterprise. Then he drew Amarakius made two sweeping slashes, and the glass fell entirely out of the door immediately in front of me. I deployed the material I'd picked up the day before, specifically a self-lighting butane torch and a bundle of two dozen large Roman candles I had duct-taped together. I held the roundish bundle of fireworks under my left arm and was already lighting their fuses en masse with the butane torch as Michael leapt aside. By the time the guard had begun to rise from his chair, twenty-four twenty-shot Roman candles were sending out screaming projectiles that detonated with deafening cracks of thunder. It was a constant stream of fire and sound and light and smoke, and the poor guard had no idea how to react. He'd been fumbling for his gun when the first projectile went off not a foot from his nose, and before he could recover from that, two dozen more were going off all around him. I hated to admit it, but... It was pretty gratifying. I mean, it was like holding my own personal pyrotechnic minigun. So many rounds were spewing out of the various Roman candles. They filled the air with a scorched scent of sulfur and thick smoke that I hoped would confuse the surveillance cameras. The guard was hit by twenty or thirty of the sizzling munitions in a couple of seconds and flung himself down behind his desk while I peppered the wall behind him with more of the raucous projectiles. While I did that, Gray bounded into the place, danced between the last few rounds from my bundle, and slugged the guard across the jaw with bone-cracking force. The guard went down in a moaning heap. Gray looked at something behind the desk and said, He got to the silent alarm. Right, I said. I dropped the first bundle of Roman candles and pulled the second one out of the duffel bag. I started walking toward the stairs down to the vault below as I lit the second bundle and began hosing down the top of the stairway with more fireworks just as two more men in the same uniform came pelting up the stairs. These two weren't as slow as the first one, and they had shotguns. 
That said, there's a really limited amount of damage you can do when you can't see or hear, and loud things are going off bang half an inch from your face, or giving you first-degree burns as they sizzle into your arm. They got a few aimless rounds off before Deirdre, in her demon form, swarmed past them, walking on her ribbons of hair as if they were manifold legs of some kind of sea crustacean. A couple of them lashed out, slashing the shotguns in half, and the guards began to beat a hasty retreat back down the stairs. Gray flung himself down the stairwell after them, not touching the stairs with his feet on the way, and there came the sounds of efficient and brutal violence from below, beneath the howling and banging of the fireworks. Clear! Gray shouted. I went to the top of the stairs and looked down. Gray had both guards lying back to back at the bottom of the stairs in front of the first security door. He was busy using their handcuffs to crossbind their wrists to one another. I spattered him with the last few rounds from the Roman candles. He rolled his eyes and gave me a disgusted look. Oops, I said, and discarded the exhausted bundle of fireworks. Nicodemus appeared on the stairs beside me, looking down at Gray. He arched an eyebrow. All three, still alive. Going soft, Gray. They set off the silent alarm, Gray said. Means the authorities are coming. It will be easier for Binder to convince them to sit and talk rather than simply assaulting the place if we have prisoners instead of corpses. I suppose that's true, Nicodemus said. He turned and called, Mr. Binder, bring your associates in, if you would, and prepare to defend the building. Miss Asher, we are ready for you now. I put the butane torch out, put it back in my duffel, and then slung my staff down off my shoulder. Nicodemus was eyeing me as I did. Fireworks, he said. You think you're the only guy in the world who can get things done without his supernatural gadgets? I asked him. He waved a hand at the smoke in his face and said mildly, Let us hope that their firefighting systems do not include... An alarm began to blare and sprinkler heads all around the first floor started up spraying chilly, slightly stale-smelling water everywhere. Sprinklers, Nicodemus finished on a sigh. Anna Asher came in, moving quickly, and eyed me with disgust. Fireworks? Seriously? Loud and distracting, remember? I called after her as she descended the stairs. I am the king of loud and distracting. Not only do I have to burn through a wall, she muttered, I've got to do it in a downpour, too. Get tough. It should help muffle the excess magical energy, I said, maybe a bit grumpily. Asher shot a look back up at me and gestured at the sprinklers. You did this on purpose? Yeah, well, sometimes when I get bored, I stop and think. She held up a small spray can. How am I supposed to lay out a circle on the floor when there's a layer of water over it? Did you think about that? Deirdre, Nicodemus said. Deirdre promptly swarmed halfway down the stairs, and then there were several sharp sounds of impact as her metallic hair shot out, surrounding Asher, and slammed onto the floor around her. The flat, ribbon-like hairs spread out, edged down, scraping along the marble tile like a squeegee, sweeping the standing water away. Asher looked like she nearly had a heart attack when Deirdre did that, and cast a glare up at the Denarian. But then she took a can and sprayed a layer of what looked like some kind of aerosolized plastic or rubber onto the floor. She laid it out in a large circle around her, overlapping the circle onto the wall, and continuing it up to a few inches above her head. It was lopsided, but technically a circle didn't have to be a perfect one to contain the magic. It was just a lot more efficient, not to mention professional, that way. 
Asher, who was looking damned appealing in her wet clothes, and damn it, how could I blame my reaction on the winter mantle when it was being held at bay by iron, went over the circle again, making sure the plastic spray was especially thick at the joints of the floor and wall. Then she nodded once, bent, and twisted her wrist so that a couple of drops of her blood fell from the manacles onto the circle. It snapped up into place at once, a screen of invisible energy, and she promptly unlocked her manacles and dropped them onto the floor at her feet. Then she narrowed her eyes, touched her finger to the wall inside the circle, and murmured a quiet word. Light sprang out from her fingertip, sudden and fierce, and steam began to hiss up where droplets of water fell onto her hand or the wall. She began to move her fingertips slowly, and I watched as marble and the drywall and the concrete and metal beneath it began to crack and blacken and part. Glowing motes and sparks flew back from her, falling thickly on her hand and her arm, then blackening and dropping to the floor, burning holes in her sleeve, but leaving her flesh, as far as I could see, untouched. I lifted my eyebrows at that. I mean, I guess I could turn my finger into an arc welder, sure, but that wouldn't mean that my entire hand wouldn't burn to a crisp as I did it. That kind of inurement to the elements required an entirely different order and magnitude of talent, talent very few wizards, in my experience, possessed. Man, when Asher said she mostly worked with fire, she wasn't kidding. Binder and his troops came into the bank while she was working, and Binder immediately scouted out the place and started assigning groups to various defensive positions. As he did that, Anna Valmont slid silently across the floor until she stood near me. She looked at the thorn manacles on my wrist. I can't stand to look at those things, she said. It must hurt. I bit down on a sharp reply. She wasn't looking for that by standing near me. Yeah, pretty much. She fiddled with her gear and licked her lips. How long do you think before you can take them off? No idea, I said. Depends on Asher, I guess. There was a loud snapping sound and a squeal of parting metal from below, and Asher half-snarled, That's right, bitch! and began putting her manacles back on in a business-like fashion. It had taken her less than three minutes to slice an opening large enough to admit a big guy into the reinforced wall. She smeared the circle with her foot, and the excess energy of the spell dispersed into the air to be immediately smothered by the falling water. Then she put her hand on the cut section and began to push. Gray slid in front of her and said, Best let me go first, Miss Asher. He set his shoulders and almost casually shoved the cut section of wall down, and it fell through to the hallway beyond with a satisfying boom, and was instantly echoed by the hollow, coughing blast of a shotgun from the hallway beyond. Gray was flung off of his feet to the ground, where he promptly became the origin point of a growing puddle of blood. Asher let out a choked sound and flattened herself desperately to the side of the opening, into the shelter of the unexposed side of the stairwell. The shotgun boomed twice more, and then Deirdre was through the opening. The shotgun went off again, and then a man screamed. Then silence. I snarled wordlessly. I rushed down the stairs to check on Asher, and then peered through the hole in the wall. Deirdre crouched beyond it, on all fours like a wary cat, her hair spread out around her and moving slowly, like strands of kelp in a gentle current. 
A fourth guard lay unmistakably dead on the floor in front of her, his shotgun still gripped loosely in his hand. Gray, Nicodemus said, his voice tight. Of course he was worried about Gray. Gray hadn't done his job with the retina scanner yet. Asher was shaken but untouched. I gave her shoulder a quick squeeze and turned to Gray, trying to remember what I knew about first aid and tourniquets. I needn't have bothered. Gray had already begun sitting up even before I turned around, and his hair was must. Other than that, and the bloodied clothing, he looked entirely healthy. His expression was annoyed. Damn, that hurts. Whiner, I said. One little load of buckshot to the chest, I offered him my hand. Gray stared blankly at my hand for a second, as if it had taken him a moment to remember what the gesture meant. Then he took it, and I pulled him up to his feet. He wobbled once, and then shook his head and steadied. You okay? I asked. He gestured at all the blood on the floor. Hit my heart. I'll be fine in a minute. Man, I said, impressed. Takes a licking and keeps on ticking. Gray showed me his teeth, then turned, poised, and contained once more, and stalked through the doorway after Deirdre. Hannah Asher got slowly to her feet and stood staring down at the smeared puddle of blood on the floor. She swallowed and started back up the stairs. I put out a hand and stopped her. It'll take the cops time to get here, but you probably don't want to be standing around on the first floor when they do, I said. Too right, said Binder, coming up behind Valmont, still at the stairway's top and nudging her down like a bulldog hurting a hesitant child. Bullets are no respecters of persons. Go on, girl. And, Ashlov, don't forget to fill my pack. Asher had a couple of empty black backpacks slung over her shoulder. I know, I know, the red ones. Nicodemus came to the top of the stairs, dragging the unconscious guard, and came down the steps, taking the guard along none too gently. Once he had the man to the bottom, he interlaced his handcuffs with those of the men already on the floor and cuffed him there. Well done, Miss Asher, Nicodemus said. We'll secure the hallway, and you can repeat your excellent performance on the second door. Miss Valmont, if you would accompany us, please. I'll want you working on the main vault door the moment we have access to it. Anna Valmont tensed beside me, her fingers fretting over the surface of her tool roll, constantly wiping droplets of water away. Michael, I said, why don't you go on in and make sure Valmont has everything she needs? Michael arched an eyebrow at me, but nodded, and came down the stairs to Anna Valmont's side. He gave her an encouraging smile, which she returned hesitantly, and the two of them went on through in the wake of the others. Tresden, Nicodemus said, his tone amused. Surely you don't think I'd do anything to the woman simply because her purpose had been served. Not if you want that way opened, you won't, I said. Nicodemus smiled at me. He had buckled on a sword belt bearing the long blade he'd used earlier and a curved Bedouin dagger. There, you see, you can learn to play the game after all. He vanished through the security door. A moment later, a huge shadow moved through the narrow stairway. I never saw the Janosqua go by, but I felt the brush of patchy fur against the skin of my right hand and smelled a faint reek of its odor in the air and bits of ash and the scent of burned hair came from the edges of the torched opening as the huge beast squeezed through it. This stinks, Binder said a moment later, his voice pitched low. 
They stink so to hell. Huh, I said. Maybe it's just the furball. He snorted, and we waited in silence for another three or four minutes until Asher reappeared, newly muddy with ashes and soot from burning through the second wall, wearing the manacles again. That big thing creeps me out, she said. Too right, Binder said. Gotta wonder what something like that wants with jewels, eh? He wasn't wrong about that. You're right, I said. It smells. Asher traded a long look with Binder. Should we leave? Binder grimaced. And leave old Nick unable to get through his fiery gate? He'd take that personal, I think. What is Uncle Binder's rule number two? Keep your eyes on the money, Asher said. That's right, Binder said. Don't take things personal. Don't get emotional. We're professionals, love. Do the job. Get paid. Get gone. There could be more than money at stake here, I said quietly. Nick and his cup, Binder asked. Been a lot of bad men and a lot of powerful artifacts since this ball started spinning. It'll spin on. Maybe, I said. Maybe not. Nicodemus is connected like few others. What if I can make you an offer? Cash, Binder asked. I grimaced. Well, not as such. He made a tisking sound and glanced at Asher. What's Uncle Binder's rule number one? Money or nothing, she said. Anything else costs too much. He nodded. So don't offer me favors, wizard, or lenience from the White Council, or power from a fairy queen. Those things aren't payment. They're pretty, pretty things with strings attached, and sooner or later you're all wrapped up like a bug in a web. Money or nothing. What about freedom? I asked him. The cops are going to have this place surrounded by the time we get back. Do you think you're going to fight your way out past an army of CPD? Binder let out a low belly laugh. <laughs> Look at you, Dresden. Damn, but you're a boy scout. This is a mob bank. Belongs to your local robber baron. Eight minutes since the silent alarm went off. And where are the sirens? Where are the uniforms? I grimaced. I'd noticed that, too. You really think the alarm's called the gendarmes? He shook his head. Twenty to one, it'll go to his people first. Then they can decide if they want to call in the coppers or handle the matter themselves. Yeah, Marcone's people. Gulp. Binder busied himself making sure the groaning, stirring guards had been thoroughly disarmed and relieved of their handcuff keys. Now, if you'll excuse me, odds are good if this Marcone of yours is so savvy, someone will start playing circle games with me. I'll need to be ready to counter them. He pointed a finger at Asher. For the hundredth time, the red ones, Asher said, quirking a slight smile. I'll buy us a nice tropical island with a nice beach and get you a new swimsuit, he said, winking. You should be so lucky, Asher said back. I'll hold the door for you, Lot. Don't be too long. Binder went up the stairs, his beady eyes sparkling, fairly bristling with energy. Huh, I said. What? Asher asked. You and Binder. Not a thing. Asher's mouth turned up bitterly at the corners. Not for lack of trying. Well, I said, kind of hard to blame him. You're damned attractive. Not him trying, she said. Me. He's turned me down. She looked up the stairs for a moment and sighed. Rule number one. He's not into entanglements. Oh, I said, trying to imagine Asher coming on to Binder and getting turned down. 
Granted, I'd turned her down, too. Which, now that I thought about it, just couldn't have been awesome for her self-image. Doesn't matter how pretty you are, what's important is how pretty you feel. No one feels pretty when they hear no often enough. Don't take this the wrong way, I said. But you would not believe how many times I've had pretty girls who would have eaten me alive, like, literally, make a pass at me. Makes a guy a little tense about it. Asher scratched at her nose with one finger, making the manacles jingle. She grimaced as the thorns dug at her wrists. Wait a minute. You're saying I'm too pretty to be attractive? To a guy in my business, maybe, I said. Someone as alluring as you, there's a high twitch factor. Binder strikes me as the type to have the same kind of wariness. Her voice turned thoughtful. So if I'd been a little older and a little dumpier, maybe I'd have had some luck with you. Like Murphy. I scowled. Murphy's made a muscle. You just can't see it under the suit and the body armor, I said. And she hasn't gotten lucky with me either. Asher stared at me for a second and blinked slowly. You're serious, aren't you? We're complicated, I said, because you're twitchy, and she's had a couple of divorces, and her ex-boyfriend kind of shot me. What? I asked him to, I said hurriedly. What? My mouth just kept running. Plus there was this whole initiation ride with Map, except I think that only happened in my brain or something. Traumatic, like getting it on with a hurricane. I think it's kind of put me off sex in general. Asher stared at me for a second more, then shook her head and turned away. Man, she said. Don't take this the wrong way, Dresden, but thanks for turning me down. Kind of dodged a bullet on that one. Hey, I protested. Seriously, she said. Way too much drama there for anyone sane. We're not dramatic, I said. Just complicated, she asked. She shook her head. It isn't complicated. You just open up and let someone in. And whatever comes after that, you face it together. It isn't that simple. The hell it isn't. You had a chance for that and you turned it down? You're a fucking idiot. I'm not making the same mistake. Footsteps came from the hallway beyond the security door and Michael appeared, a Marocchius in hand. The sword was glowing with a faint, angry light. Harry, he said, trouble. What's happening? Nicodemus is about to kill Anna Valmont. And you're here? Four of them and one of me, he said. I got out the key to my manacles and made sure it was handy. Dresden, Asher said, her voice tense. If you blow out the electronics, you'll blow the whole job. I love it when a posh bird talks dirty, called Binder merrily from upstairs. I ground my teeth, took my staff in my right hand, and said to Michael, Come on. And then I took off down the hallway. Chapter 35 the hallway beyond the first security door ran for a bit less than a hundred feet, and I found the mental shields against my various pains fluttering as I put more demand on my body. I ground my teeth and got through it, while Michael moved with effortless, well, grace at my side, even steadying me once when I wobbled. At the end of the hall was another security door with a hole scorched through the wall beside it, and again I was treated to the stench of burned Janosqua hair. I ducked and went through the hole with Michael right behind me and found myself in a room that was walled on two sides with what at first glance looked like lockers and which I realized a second later were security deposit boxes. 
Minimum security, I guessed, where people stored copies of their important paperwork and such from the size of them. The third wall was made of obdurate, unjointed steel, broken only by a large steel door with a relatively small, unobtrusive control panel in its center. The panel didn't look like cutting-edge tech to me. It was simply a keypad, a large combination wheel, and a small LED display. Anna Valmont stood in front of the control panel with her tool roll splayed out on the floor beside her feet, all her equipment at the ready. She had what looked like a small flashlight in her hand. She was facing not the door, but Nicodemus. The leader of the Denarians stood off to one side, his little automatic in his hand, pointing it steadily at Valmont. Deirdre stood on his right and Gray on his left. The Genosqua was a giant blur against the wall behind them and a stench in the air. I still don't see the problem, Nicodemus said. The problem, Valmont said, her eyes flicking nervously to me, is that this isn't the door from the plans you gave me. My information sources are impeccable, Nicodemus replied. They assure me that the door I showed you was the one installed when the bank was built. Obviously, they aren't as smart as they think they are, Valmont replied tartly. Marcone must have had the door changed out secretly after it was installed. Then opened this door, Nicodemus said, and gestured with the gun. Now. You don't get it, Valmont said. With the blueprints and a data plan, I might have been able to crack the door. Maybe. This one is another Fenucci, but it's a custom job. And it could be designed completely differently. Not only that, but this door... A horrible instinct hit me. Hell's bells, it's wired, isn't it? Gray scowled at me. How'd you know that? Because my brother's girlfriend had seen Marcone defending one of his strongholds with her own eyes a few years before, against an angry Fomor sorcerer. He'd had the place rigged with mines and defensive strongpoints and booby traps. Thomas had told me about it. But all I had to say to Gray was, How? I'm a freaking wizard, that's how. Valmont gave me a grim nod and jerked her head toward the hole in the wall where we'd entered. We're lucky Asher didn't set them off on the way in. I padded over to the wall and examined it. At the edges of the scorched hole, I could see the melted plastic edges of shapes I recognized from previous horrible experiences. Claymore anti-personnel mines. They'd been set into the wall, between the concrete and the drywall, facing into the room. I swallowed. One claymore, when detonated, would spew hundreds of ball bearings out in a broad arc in front of it, a giant's shotgun. I counted eight of the devices, stacked vertically, one per linear foot. I think the things were about a foot across. So, assume Marcone wanted anyone who tried to force their way into his vault reduced to salsa. Assume he was perfectly well aware how hard a lot of supernatural beings were to hurt. How would he handle it? Overkill, that's how. I was guessing he'd installed one Claymore mine per square foot of wall. Multiply that by, for simplicity's sake, 300 ball bearings each, and you had a whole freaking lot of round pieces of metal waiting to tear us all to shreds. They would bounce around the steel walls of this room like BBs rattling around the inside of a tin can and render any physical body in it to churned meat sauce. Fun, I said. I turned to Nicodemus and said, Looks like this party is over. 
You weren't sufficiently prepared. We aren't stopping now, Nicodemus said, staring at Valmont. Open the vault, Miss Valmont. It would be stupid, Valmont said. I think I could have done the first one. This is a door I know nothing about. Even if I do everything right, I could run into something that trips the circuit just because I don't know it's there. I'm going to give you three minutes to open the vault, Miss Valmont. After that, I'll kill you. Are you insane? Valmont demanded. Hell's bells, man, I said. Calm down. The target isn't going anywhere. You aren't getting any older. What's the rush? He bared his teeth. Time is relative, Dresden, and at the moment it is running out. We open the vault today. Either Miss Valmont does so, or she dies. Or she sets off the mines and we all die, I blurted. Have you lost it? Feel free to wait outside if you're frightened, he said calmly. And I realized that I could. I could back out of the room and pull Michael with me. Valmont would have nowhere else to go, no other options, and I knew exactly what she would do, facing certain death. She'd blow the system in an attempt to take Nicodemus and Deirdre with her. Or maybe she would pull off a minor miracle and open the door, in which case we could proceed just as we had before. If she died, the raid was blown, and Mab's obligation to Nicodemus was met, or at least delayed. And if I got lucky, maybe it would put paid to a room full of bad people at the same time. If Valmont survived, I was no worse off than before. And all I had to do was throw a woman to the wolves. The math said it was the smart move. Math was never my best subject, I muttered. Michael, get clear. He ground his teeth, but Michael had worked with me long enough to trust me when things were tight. And we both knew that not even Amarachius and the purest intentions in the world would save him from a blast like the one Marcone had rigged. He left. I'm not frightened, Gray said. I want to make that perfectly clear. Then he also left the room. What are you doing, Dresden? Nicodemus asked. Helping. Stop the shot clock and let us work, I said, and made sure the manacles were locked tight against my wrist as I strode over to Anna Valmont. Okay, I told her. Let's do this. She widened her eyes at me. What are you doing? Get back. I'm helping you, I said. I'm helping you open this door without blowing anyone to hell, especially yourself. Also me. She whirled the little flashlight up and shone it on the ground at my feet. Stop! It was an ultraviolet light. I barely managed to stop my foot before it came down on a circle of vaguely Norse runes painted on the stone floor, invisible to normal light but picked out by Valmont's flashlight. Stars and stones, I breathed. It's a ward. She shone the light around the floor in front of the vault door. There were at least a dozen wards the size of dinner plates in the immediate area around it. That's why the door is different, I said. They've got passive spells running all over the damned room. I didn't see the first one until I'd already trampled all over them, she said. That suggests to me that I'm not the right sort of person to set them off. Give me the light again, I said, and she shone it at my feet. I bent over and peered down at the ward, examining it carefully. Good call. These are built to react to a practitioner's aura. Not real strong. There's no threshold to base them on, but enough to put out a surge of magical energy. Enough to break a circuit, you think? Definitely. 
So a practitioner walks on one of them, and Valmont opened the fingers of her left hand all at once, an elegant gesture. Boom. The chatter of automatic gunfire came from upstairs. One of the suits had opened up with an Uzi. Valmont and I both flinched at the sudden sound. Christ, she breathed. We have no time, Nicodemus said. Open the door, Miss Valmont. She swallowed and looked at me. Shine the light at my feet so I can see the way, I said. She did, and I picked my way over the wards until I reached her side. Okay, I said. Three things. One, I'm not going to run off and leave you here alone. Two, I'm not going to let him shoot you. And three, you can do this. I don't know if I can, she said in a low whisper. What if this door is more complex than the first one? It can't be, I said. You don't know that. Yes, I do, I said. Because of the way magic interacts with technology. Marcone's got all these low-grade wards spread out around the door. Whatever electronics or mechanics are inside it, the more complex they are, the faster the magic in this room would break them down and trip the circuit. I pointed a finger. That door has got to be assembled out of simpler parts and far simpler electronics than the original. That's why it got installed secretly. Not to stick an even meaner door on, but to hide the fact that the door has to be less complicated than the original. Belmont looked at me for a moment, frowning. Are you sure? Yeah, I said. I mean, you know, in theory. God, Dresden, she said. What if you're wrong? Well, I said, if I am, neither one of us will ever know it, because I'm not going anywhere. She stared up at me uncertainly. I put a hand on her shoulder and said, This is what happened to the audacity of the woman who stole my coat and my car after I rescued her from certain doom? I remembered you with a little more attitude than that. A spark of some kind of defiance or amusement, or maybe both, flickered in her eyes. I don't remember it happening that way. Probable doom, I allowed, and felt myself grinning like a loon. Highly possible doom. Look, Anna, you robbed the Vatican when you swiped the shroud. How tough can it be to handle the pad of a schmuck gangster from Illinois? She took a slow, deep breath. You make an excellent point, she said seriously, and bent to her tools. She moved with swift, precise professionalism. She had the cover off the control panel in half a minute and was getting into the wires behind it seconds later. You were right, she reported. There are no chips or microcircuits at all. Can you open it? I asked. If I don't make any mistakes, yes, I think. Now, hush. More gunfire erupted from upstairs as she worked. It wasn't answered by anything I could hear, but I was pretty sure Binder's goons wouldn't be firing off their weapons for fun. Cray slid back into the room and reported conversationally, They're using suppressed weapons. There are enough of them to make a great big mess of this entire operation, but so far they're just probing us. <laughs> I said, probe. Wizard, Gray said a trifle impatiently. Are you sure you want to keep pushing it like this? Yeah, I said. Think so. Gray, stand by, Nicodemus said. Should Valmont open the vault, we'll need you to handle the scanner. Gray grunted and said, Guess I better put my game face on. And once again, he seemed to quiver in place, a motion that I couldn't quite track with my eyes, and suddenly Gray was gone, and poor Harvey was standing there, looking nervously through the scorched entry of the vault.
More gunfire rang out, and Gray Harvey flinched, darting quick glances behind him. Huh. Bloody hell, Valmont muttered, reaching for another tool. She started operating the combination lock, watching a bobbing needle on some kind of sensor as she did. Impossible to work with all this jabber. I could make some white noise for you, I said helpfully, and followed by saying something like, Thank you, Dresden, for that additional distract. Her eyes widened in sudden terror, and she stopped breathing. I felt my spine go rigid with anticipation. If those claymores went off, there was no way my duster was going to save me from that much flying metal. I clenched my teeth. Belmont looked up at me abruptly, showing me a tigress's smile, and said, Gotcha! Then she pushed a final button with a decisive stab, and the vault door made an ominous clickety-clack sound. She turned the handle, and the enormous door swung ponderously open. Schmuck gangster from Illinois indeed. Get that UV light on the wards again, I said. On it, Belmont said. Gray, Nicodemus said. Gray Harvey hopped rather nimbly through the wards as Valmont illuminated them and went through the vault door. I went with him, my senses alert to any other bits of magical mayhem that might be waiting for us inside Gentleman Johnny Marcone's vault. It was huge, fifty feet wide, a hundred feet long. Barred doors that looked sufficient to keep out King Kong stood at intervals along the walls. Each of the barred doors had a steel plaque on it bearing a number and a name. The first one on the right read, Lord Wraith, 00010001. The room behind it was piled with boxes of about the right size to hold large paintings, strongbox-style crates, and several pallets bearing bricks made of bundles of hundred-dollar bills, stacked up in four-foot cubes and wrapped in clear plastic. The strong room on the other side of us had a plate that read Ferrovax 00010002, and it was filled with row upon row of closed fireproof safes. And there were eleven more rooms on each side of the vault. In between the barred doors were storage lockers, shelves loaded with precious artwork, and more of those giant cubes of money than I really wanted to start counting. It was the fortune of a small nation, maybe even a not-so-small nation, and the only door in the place with a little computerized eye-scanning thing next to it was at the very, very far end of the vault, in the center of the rear wall, the storage cubby of the underworld. Looks like that's it, I said. For a second, Gray Harvey said nothing. I looked at him. He was scanning the room slowly. It's just money, I said. Get your head in the game. I'm looking for gods and booby traps, he said. I grunted. Oh, carry on. I shouldn't be here, Gray muttered, almost too quietly to be heard. This is stupid. I'm gonna get caught. I'm gonna get caught. Someone'll come for me. Those things'll get me. I gave him a somewhat fish-eyed look. Huh? I said. What? Gray blinked once and then looked at me. Huh? What were you talking about, I said. He frowned slightly. The frown turned into a grimace, and he rubbed at his forehead. Nothing. The hell it was, I said. I'm too Harvey right now, he said. He doesn't like this situation very much. Uh, I said, what do you mean, too Harvey? Shift in this deep isn't for chumps, he said. It's nothing you need to worry about, trust me. 
Why should I do that? His voice turned annoyed. Because I'm a freaking shapeshifter, and I'm the one who knows. That's why. He eyed me. You better wait here. Manacles or not, those retina scanners are damn finicky. I'll stop short, I said, and started walking to the end of the vault. I didn't doubt that Gray was right about the scanners, but I'd have to be a lot more gullible than I was to let someone like him out of my sight if I could help it. I stopped thirty or forty feet short of the back wall, and Gray Harvey sidled up to the panel. He lifted his fingers and tapped out a sequence of maybe a dozen or fifteen numbers into the keypad swiftly, as if his fingers knew it by a pure reflex. A panel rotated when he was done, and a little tube appeared. He leaned down and peered into it, and red light flashed out. He straightened, blinking, and a second later there was a quiet clack. Here goes nothing, he said, and turned the handle on the door to the strong room. The door to the mortal vault of the god of the underworld, labeled Hades 0000-0013, opened smoothly, soundlessly. It would have taken more muscle to get into Michael's fridge. Gray turned to me, resuming his own shape, and his mouth twisted into a perfectly invincible smirk. Damn, I'm good. Okay, I said. Go, get everyone else. I'll get the way ready. Gray turned to go and then paused, eyeing me. If I wanted to shut this thing down, I said, I could have done it pretty much any time in the past twenty minutes. I shifted to a maniacally indeterminate European accent and said, We're going through. The Black Hole? Gray asked incredulously. Nobody quotes the Black Hole, Dresden. Nobody even remembers that one. Hogwash, Ernest Borgnine, Anthony Perkins, and Roddy McDowell, all in the same movie? Immortality. Roddy McDowell was just the voice of the robot. Yeah, and the robots were awesome. Cheap Star Wars knockoffs, Gray sneered. Not necessarily mutually exclusive, I said. I wasn't worried about you scrubbing the mission, he said. I was thinking you might indulge yourself in a little Robin Hood action against this Marcone character. Doubt it would make him any angrier than he's already going to be, I said. But ripping off this vault isn't the job. Gray considered me for a moment and then nodded. Right. I'll get the crew. He turned and jogged to the entrance to the vault. And was suddenly pulled out of the vault and into the security room beyond by an abrupt and severe force. Yeah, that can't be good, I started to say. Before I could finish, Tessa, in her mantis form, blurred through the vault door, fantastic in her speed, terrifying in her strength, and slammed the door closed behind her. Her rear legs rotated the inside works of the door, meant to allow the door to be locked or unlocked from the inside, and the lock of the heavy vault door shut with a very final-sounding clack. Suddenly, the only light came from some tiny floor lamps along either wall and they gleamed madly from the mantis's thousands of eye facets. You, came her buzzing, two-layered voice, poisonous with hate. This is your fault. What? I said. My hand went to the thorn manacles still on my wrist, and then froze. Michael and the others were outside, in the booby-trapped security room. If I started throwing magic around, even at this distance... I would almost certainly trip the anti-wizard failsafe Marcone had built into it. No matter, Tessa spat. 
Your death will end the chain even more readily than the accountant. And then a furious knight of the blackened denarius came hurtling toward me with insectile speed. And if I used a lick of magic to fight her, I'd blow my friends to kingdom come. Chapter 36 Tessa's wings blurred and she came at me, scythe-hook arms raised to strike. The voice inside my head was screaming a high-pitched, girly scream of terror, and for a second I thought I was going to wet my pants. There wasn't any time to get cute, there wasn't any space to run, and without the super strength of the winter mantle, I was as good as dead. Unless... If Butters was right, then the strength I'd gained as the winter night was something I'd had all along, latent and ready for an emergency. The only thing that had been holding me back was the natural inhibitors built into my body. Not only that, but I had another advantage. During the past year and a half or so, since I'd been dead and got better, I'd been training furiously. First to get myself back on my feet and into shape to fight if I had to, and then because it had provided a necessary physical outlet for the pressures I was under. The thing about training of any kind is that you get held back by an absolute limit. It freaking hurts. Little injuries mount up, robbing you of your drive, degrading the efficiency of whatever training you're into, creating imbalances and points of relative weakness. But not me. For the duration of my training, I'd been shielded from pain by the aegis of the winter mantle. It wasn't just that it made me physically stronger— it also allowed me to train longer and harder and more thoroughly than I could possibly have done without it. I wasn't faster and stronger than I'd been before solely because I wore the winter night's mantle. I'd also worked my ass off to do it. I didn't have to beat Tessa. I just had to survive her. Anna Valmont would already be on the vault door, finessing it open again, and now that she'd done it once, I was pretty sure that her repeat performance would be even faster. How long had it taken her to take the door the first time? Four minutes? Five? I figured she'd do it in three. And then Michael would be through the door, and this situation would change. Three minutes. That was one round in a prize-fighting ring. I just had to last one round. Time to make something awesome happen, sans magic, all by myself. As Tessa closed in, I flung my mostly empty duffel bag at her, faked to my right, and then darted to my left. Tessa bought the fake and committed, sliding past me on the smooth floor. I jumped up on top of a money cube and, without stopping my motion, bounded up again to the top shelf of a storage rack of artwork, got my feet planted, and turned with my staff raised over my head as she came blurring through the air toward me. I let out a shout as I swung the heavy quarterstaff, giving it everything I had. I tagged her on the triangular head, hammering her hard enough to send the shock of the blow rattling through my shoulders. She might have been fast and psycho-angel strong, but she was also a bitty thing, and even in her demon form, she didn't have much mass. The blow killed her momentum completely, and she plunged toward the floor. But instead of dropping, she slammed her hooks into the metal shelf, their points piercing steel as if it had been cardboard, and she let out a shriek of fury as she started hauling herself up toward me. I didn't like that idea, so I jumped on her face with both of my big, stompy boots. The impact tore the hooks free of the shelf, and we both plunged to the floor. 
I came down on top, and the landing made my ankles scream with pain and drove a gasping shriek from Tessa. I tried to convert the downward momentum into a roll and was only partly successful. I scrambled away on my hands and knees about a quarter of an instant before Tessa slammed a scythe down right where my groin had been. She'd landed on her back, and for an instant her limbs flailed in a very bug-like fashion. So I dropped my staff, grabbed one supporting strut of the steel shelving, and heaved. The whole heavy storage rack and all its art came crashing down onto her head, with a tremendous crash and a deafening sound of shattering statuary. I grabbed my staff and started backpedaling toward the entrance to Hades' strong room. Tessa stayed down for maybe a second and a half. Then the shelves heaved and she threw them bodily away from her and scrambled back to her feet with another shriek of anger. She turned toward me and came leaping my way. I stopped in my tracks, drew the big 500 caliber out of my duster pocket, took careful aim, and waited until Tessa was too close to miss. I pulled the trigger when she was about six feet away. The gun in the confined space of the vault sounded like a cannon, and the big bullet crashed into her thorax, smashing through her exoskeleton in a splash of ichor and staggering her in her tracks. Behind her, a money cube suddenly exploded into flying Benjamins. I took two or three steps back before she got moving again, and then I stopped and aimed once more, slamming another round into her. I stepped back and then fired a third round, back again and a fourth. After the fifth, my gun was empty, and Tessa was still coming. The bullets hadn't been enough to do more than slow her down, but they'd bought me what I needed most, time. I stepped back into Hades' strong room and slammed the barred door closed just as Tessa came at me again. She hit the far side of the door with a violent impact and wrenched at it with her scythes, but it had locked when it closed, and it held fast. She shrieked again, and her scythes darted through the bars toward me. I reeled back in time to avoid perforation, and my shoulders hit the wall behind me. Hells! Bells! I blurted. At least tell me why! The mantis's scythe hooks latched onto two of the bars and began straining to tear them apart. Metal groaned and began to bend, and I suddenly felt one hell of a lot less clever. Tessa wasn't all that big, and it wouldn't take much of a bend in the bars to allow her into the strong room with me, without leaving an opening big enough for me to use to escape. If she opened them enough to come in, I was going to die a savagely messy death. Seconds ticked by in slow motion as the demon mantis quivered with physical strain and pure hatred. Why? I demanded. My voice might have come out a little bit high-pitched. What the hell are you doing screwing around with this mission? She didn't answer me. The bars groaned and slowly, slowly bent maybe an inch. But they'd been built extra thick, as if they'd been precisely intended to resist superhuman strength, which in all probability was exactly the case. Tessa threw back her insect's head and let out a screech that pressed viciously on my ears. Halfway through, the mantis's head and face just boiled away, and the screech turned into a very human, utterly furious scream as Tessa's head appeared, both sets of her eyes wide and wild. I have not invested fifteen centuries to see it thrown away, she shrieked. I stared at her helplessly, my heart pounding furiously in my chest. 
I tried to think of something clever or engaging or disarming to say, but what came out was a helpless flick of my hands and the words, Psycho much? She focused on me, utterly furious, and she spat several words that might have been an incantation of some kind, but her fury was too great to allow her to focus it into a spell. Instead, she just opened her mouth and screamed again, a scream that could never have come from a simple set of human lungs, one that went on and on and on, billowing out of her mouth along with particles of spittle and then clots of something darker and then of larger bits of matter that I realized after a few seconds had legs and were wriggling. And then her scream turned into a gargle and she began vomiting a cloud, a swarm of flying insects that poured through the bars of the cage and came at me in an almost solid stream, slamming into me like water issuing from a high-pressure hose. The impact drove the air from my lungs and I couldn't suck it back in right away, which was just as well. The insects that hit my body clung on, roaches and beetles and crawling things that had no names, and swarmed up my neck toward my nose and mouth and ears as if guided by a malign will. A few got into my gaping mouth before I clamped it shut and covered my nose and mouth with one hand. I chewed them to death and they crunched disgustingly and tasted of blood. The rest went for my eyes and ears and burrowed beneath my clothing to begin chewing at my skin. I kept my cool for maybe twenty seconds, slapping them away from my head, getting a few strangled breaths in through my barely parted fingers, but then the insects got between my fingers and into my eyes and ears at almost the same time, and I let out a panicked scream. Burning agony spread over my body as the swarm chewed and chewed and chewed, and the last thing my stinging eyes saw was Tessa's body emptying like a deflating balloon as the insect swarm kept flooding out of it, and I had a horrified second to realize that she was in the strong room with me. And then my mental shields against pain fluttered as panic began to settle in, and agony dropped me to my knees, putting me hip-deep in the focused malice of thousands and thousands of tiny mouths. I dropped my hands desperately to fumble with the key to the thorn manacles, because without the use of magic, I was going to die one of the more ugly deaths I'd ever considered. But my hands were one burning sheet of flame, and I couldn't find the damn manacles and their keyholes under the layers and layers of swarming vermin, which seemed devilishly determined to keep them hidden from me. Seconds later, the swarm filled my nostrils and started chewing at my lips and forced me to close my eyes or lose them, and even then I could feel them chewing at the lids, ripping at the lashes. I have been trained in mental disciplines most people could hardly imagine, much less duplicate. I have faced terrors of the same caliber without flinching, but not like this. I lost it. Thought fled. Pain came flooding through my shields. Terror and the urgent desire to live filled every thought, blind instinct taking over. I thrashed and crawled and writhed, trying to escape the swarm, but I might as well have been holding completely still for all the good it did me, and after time, the lack of air forced me to the floor on my side, curled up in a fetal position, just trying to defend my eyes and nose and mouth. Everything turned black and red, and voices filled my ears, thousands of whispering voices, hissing obscene, hateful things, vicious secrets, poisonous lies, and horrible truths in half a hundred tongues all at once. 
I felt the pressure of those voices coursing into my head like ice picks, gouging holes in my thoughts, in my emotions, and there was nothing, nothing I could do to stop them. I felt a scream building, one that would open my mouth, fill it with tiny tearing bodies, and I knew that I couldn't stop it. And then a broad hand slammed down onto the crown of my head, and a deep voice thundered, Lava quod est sordium! Light burned through my closed eyelids, through the layers of insects covering them, and a furious heat spread down from the crown of my head from that hand. It spread down, moving neither quickly nor slowly, and wherever it passed over my skin, as hot as scalding water in an industrial kitchen sink, the swarm abruptly vanished. I opened my eyes to find Michael kneeling over me, a Maracius in his left hand, his right resting on my head. His eyes were closed and his lips were moving, words of ritual Latin flowing from them in a steady stream. Pure white fire spread down over my body, and I remembered when I had seen something similar once before, when vampires had attempted to manhandle Michael many moons before and had been scorched and scarred by the same fire. Now, as the light engulfed me, the swarm scattered, outer layers dropping away, while the slower inner layers were incinerated by the fire. It hurt, but the pain was a harsh cleansing thing, somehow honest. It burned over me, and when the fire passed, I was free, and the swarm was scattering throughout the vault, pouring toward the tiny air vents spread throughout. I looked up at Michael, gasping, and leaned my head forward. For a second, the pain and the fear still had me, and I couldn't make myself move. I lay there, simply shuddering. His hand moved from my head to my shoulder, and he murmured, Lord of hosts, be with this good man and give him the strength to carry on. I didn't feel anything mystic. There was no surge of magic or power, no flash of light. Just Michael's quiet, steady strength and the sincerity of the faith in his voice. Michael still thought I was a good man. I clenched my jaw over the sobbing scream that was still threatening me and pushed away the memory of those tiny, horrible words. The voice of Amario, it must have been. I forced myself to breathe in a steady rhythm, despite the pain and the burning of my skin and my lungs, despite the stinging tears and tiny drops of blood in my eyes. And I put up the shields again, forcing the pain to a safe distance. They were shakier, and more of the pain leaked through than had been there before, but I did it. Then I lifted my eyes to Michael and nodded. He gave me a quick, fierce smile and stood up, then offered me his hand. I took it and rose, looking past Michael to where Gray stood, melting back from Harvey's face to his own one last time. He'd opened the door to Hades' vault again. Behind him, the rest of the crew, minus Binder, was approaching, while the huge, vague shape of the Genosqua closed the door to the vault with a large, hollow boom of displaced air. She came through fast during the firefight, Michael said to me. There wasn't any way for me to stop her. My throat burned and felt raw, but I croaked. It worked out, thanks. Always. Nicodemus approached us with his expression entirely neutral and eyed Michael. 
We needn't fear further interference from Tessa. It will take a time to pull herself together. How did you do that? he demanded. I didn't, Michael said simply. Nicodemus and Deirdre exchanged an uneasy glance. All of you, hear me, Michael said quietly. He turned and stood between them, fallen angels and monsters and scoundrels and mortal fiends and me. You think your power is what shapes the world you walk in, but that is an illusion. Your choices shape your world. You think your power will protect you from the consequences of those choices, but you are wrong. You create your own rewards. There is a judge. There is justice in this world, and one day you will receive what you have earned. Choose carefully. His voice resonated oddly in that space. The words, not loud, but absolutely penetrating, touched with something more than mortal, with an awareness beyond that of simple space and time. He was, in that moment, a messenger, and no one who heard him speak could doubt it. Silence settled on the vault, and no one moved or spoke. Nicodemus looked away from Michael and said calmly, Dresden. Are you capable of opening the way? I took a steadying breath and looked around for the key to the manacles. I dropped it while being simultaneously eaten, smothered, and driven insane. Hell, I was lucky there hadn't been any anaphylactic shock involved. Or, all things considered, maybe luck had nothing to do with it. Michael spotted the key and picked it up. I held out my hand and he began unlocking the manacles. What did that mean? I asked him in a whisper. You heard it as well as I did, he replied with a small shrug. I suppose it wasn't a message for us. I looked slowly over the others as the manacles came off and thought that maybe it had been. Uriel, I thought, you sneaky bastard. But you weren't telling me anything I didn't already suspect. The thorn manacles fell away and the icy power of winter suffused me again. The pain vanished, the raw, chewed skin became nothing. The exhaustion fell away, and I drew a deep, cleansing breath. Then I summoned my will, spun on my heel, slashed at the air with my staff, and called, Aparturum! And with the surge of my will and power and a sudden line of sullen red light in the air, I tore an opening into the underworld. <laughs>